Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, May 14th, 2022, and this is Cheryl. And I'm so grateful to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History, Herstory, and True History, Herstory of Nasara. Blessed be everyone. We have a full moon. In Eastern Time, it is Monday at 12.14 a.m. For many of you, it will be on Sunday night. It would be 9.14 in Pacific Time on Sunday. But this full moon is the Weezak full moon, the festival of the Buddha, the most important of the three festivals of the spring and considered by many the holiest time of the year. So we take this time to receive the blessings that Lord Maitreya gives each and every Wisak. So please make a note before we do our meditation that Lord Maitreya will be giving his blessing at 3 p.m. your local time, no matter where you are in the world. It is 3 p.m., and it is Sunday, the 15th of May. And all you need to do is set the intention to receive this. And if you can, take the time to sit for an hour, being open receptive, opening your crown, and bringing in the frequencies, the blessings, this gift of enlightenment that Maitreya brings us. He will be part of our Wesok ceremony as we celebrate that here today. So take a nice deep breath and go into your heart center. Going into the heart portal to all that is, we call forth at this time for each of us to merge with our soul our higher self, our monad, our mighty I am presence, and 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 integrate each of the aspects of these of the parts of our multidimensional being, and we call forth to merge and integrate with all of our multidimensional being through to our God presence, our Goddess presence. And we see ourselves in our pillar of light, expanding it to its fullest breath. As we receive the blessings of enlightenment, a beautiful yellow golden light coming through, coming through directly to source into the heart of Mother Gaia as we allow ourselves to be that vehicle to anchor enlightenment for the planet. Expand your heart that we might hold the planet and all upon her in our sacred heart. Let us affirm, I am my I am presence. 
as my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And take a nice deep breath as we invite everyone to join us. And we're seeing everyone anchoring their own golden pillar of light. Connected to the heart and the mind of God. As we connect with each one heart to heart. High heart to high heart. Cosmic heart to cosmic heart. Connecting all of us with the cosmic heart of all that is. So we invite in for one and all, all soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, all of our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods. We welcome for one and all all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome all of the kingdoms to assist us here today. The plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the angelic realms from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome the ascended masters, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the raisin rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, all divine mother emissaries and divine father emissaries. all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, all ascended master healers and healing teams. We welcome our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light, especially those that we work most closely with, and all of their healing teams, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus. We welcome all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking our Mother, Father, God, to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it in divine order for each being in divine will, in divine order, 10 billion times, 10 billion fold, individually and collectively for all. We call forth all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all of the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level. With that every cell, chakra, meridian layer of our auric field, multidimensionally, 
the maximum that we can receive through our divine presence, ever expanding to perfection. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and evocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be easily and effortlessly digested and assimilated, grounded and anchored, integrated and embodied with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium and love and light and laughter. And we ask at this time that Gaia receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her auric field multidimensionally. Through every ley line and song line. Through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system. And through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place, place of power, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution along with Mother Gaia, as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. We call in our circle of support from the very first name that created them, to every person, every family member, every loved one, every pet, every animal, every group, every organization, every nation, every military, every government, every institution, every weather event, every situation, every meeting and summit, everything that we've ever put in our circle of support. And we call in all of the energies from the spring equinox through to the festival of the Christ and Easter and Passover and Ramadan, all of the energies that we've been celebrating through the month of April into the month of May. St. Germain's Ascension Date, Mother Mary's month of May, all of the energies given to all of these events, and especially this Wisak weekend, this Wisak festival, the festival of the Buddha, through to the energies coming up in the next full moon in June, the festival of humanity. We call in all of those energies into our collective cup of consciousness to work with us right here and right now in the transformation of the planet and the enlightenment of the planet. The enlightenment of every man, woman, and child. Opening them to divine wisdom, to divine love, to divine peace and harmony. And establishing our new golden age. As we recommit ourselves through this work to be the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age and the open door that no one can shut. 
So as this work magnifies for us here, I'm going to speak a little bit about the WESOC Festival for those that may not be familiar with it. And then we're going into a ceremony, the actual ceremony that takes place in the WESOC Valley, which we will experience both on the Sunday call in a very special format. And then again, on the Monday call, we'll do it again. So know that the WESOC Festival, and this information comes from Joshua David Stone. The WESOC Festival is the most important of three major Ascended Master Festivals. It is the time of the year at the Taurus slash Scorpio full moon when humanity receives the highest frequency of light. So again, just open yourself to receive. Open your crown. Receive the blessings that we're bringing in here today. As a representative of humanity, we share it with all life. <clears throat> we saw as a living event based on current astrological cycles, not just past events that occurred centuries ago, as most religions celebrate. The WESOC Festival, and know that it's being celebrated right here and right now throughout the world. There are so many people that celebrate the WESOC. The WESOC Festival is the festival of the Buddha, commemorating the anniversary of his birth, his attainment of Buddhahood, and his ascension. The Buddha, the perfect expression of the wisdom aspect of God, is the embodiment of light and divine purpose. This great Eastern festival, this is the great Eastern festival and serves to show the solidarity of the East and West. The term Wesak refers to the Wesak Valley in the Himalayas, where every year all the ascended masters gather on both the inner and outer planes to share in a sacred ceremony. At the precise rising of the full moon in May, the Manu Alanobi, Lord Maitreya the Christ, and St. Germain the Mahakohan stand in a triangular formation around a bowl of water that sits on a crystal. The Buddha appears, hovering over this bowl of water, transmitting cosmic energies into the water and through Lord Maitreya to be disseminated to the spiritual hierarchy and into all the initiates, disciples, and new group of world servers. At the end of the ceremony, the water is shared by all those in attendance. We sunk is also the time when initiations are given to the disciples on the earth by Lord Maitreya, Lord Buddha, and Lord Melchizedek, the Universal Logos. We saw as a time of great renewal and celebration. The quality of the energy is the force of enlightenment. This energy emanates from the heart of God, Goddess, and is related to divine understanding and the love-wisdom aspect of God. On a planetary level, it initiates the new world education. This affects educational movement 
values, literature, publishing, television, radio, newspaper, magazines, writers, teachers, and speakers on the entire planet. This force of enlightenment is so prevalent at WESOC is why large groups coming together at this time can be such an awesome experience. WESOC is where the greatest window for mass enlightenment can occur on a planetary level. During this ceremony, Buddha sounds forth a great mantra and becomes an absorbing agent of the first ray force. That's the sapphire ray of divine will. Buddha then uses the magnetic power of the second ray to attract this force to himself. He holds his study and then redirects it to Lord Maitreya, who is the receiving agent of this energy. This energy is then disseminated to the seven kohans and their ashrams for a sevenfold expression and direction into the world. All the disciples and initiates on earth are invited to come to the Wisak Valley, attend this sacred ceremony, and join in this festival festivities. This is also a time to come and stand before Lord Maitreya, Lord Buddha, and Sanat Kamara to give your vows of service and receive special blessings. So you might want to include that in your intention with Lord Maitreya for tomorrow about your vows of service and the special blessings that you might request for that. The Wiesach Festival has always been regarded by the inner plane ascended masters to be of paramount importance in the world affairs. So on top of that, we have our eclipse tomorrow at the same time. Through the two representatives of deity on our planet, the worlds of spiritual realities and human affairs are being brought closer and closer together. Many people have dreamed of this event but have not known its spiritual significance or where or why they were doing what they were doing in their dreams. At WESOC, a channel was open for humanity that allows disciples and initiates to connect certain energies not normally available or as easily accessible. This allows great expansions of consciousness to take place. That is our intention for ourselves and humanity this greater expansion of consciousness. Joel Cole has also stated that it is the intention of the Buddha and the Christ that in each country there shall be eventually be someone who will act as their representative at the time of the two festivals so that the distribution of spiritual energies from the first great aspect of Ray will be directed from Buddha to the Christ and then from the Christ to those initiates in every country who can be overshadowed and so act as channels for the direct current of energy. This references both the Festival of the Christ and the Fest and the Wesak Festival. Joel Cool in the Alice Bailey book Ponder on this has also said about Wesak, no cost is too great to pay in order to be of use to the spiritual hierarchy at the time of the full moon of May, the Wesak Festival. No price is too high in order to gain the spiritual illumination, which can be possible, particularly at that time. So the WESOC has four basic functions. To substantiate Christ's continued physical appearance on earth. To physically prove the solidarity of the eastern and western approaches to God. 
to number three, to form a rallying point and a meeting place for those who annually, both literally and symbolically, link up and represent the Father's house, the kingdom of God, and the humanity of, and the kingdom of humanity. Number four, to demonstrate the nature of the work of the Christ as the great and chosen intermediary and leader of the spiritual hierarchy and the disciples and initiates on earth. He voices the hierarchy's demand for the recognition of the factual existence of the kingdom of God here and now. The purposes of the Wesak Festival are as follows. Number one, the releasing of certain transmissions of energy to humanity that will stimulate the spirit of love, brother and sisterhood, and goodwill. So just see that extending both now and as we do our meditation. Number two, the fusion of all men and women of goodwill into a responsive integrated whole. Three, the invocation response from certain cosmic beings if the prior goals are received. And Joshua Stone wrote, I would like to end this section with one final quote from Joe Poole on the Wesak from a passage in Alice Bailey's The Rays and Initiations too. Quote, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed and what I have told you, if you have a staunch belief in the work of the Spirit of God and in the divinity of man, then forget yourselves and consecrate your every effort from the time you receive this communication to the task of cooperation and the organized effort to change the current of personal and world affairs by an increase in the spirit of love and goodwill in the world during the month of May. Through the Buddha, the wisdom of God is poured forth. Through the Christ, Maitreya, the love of God is made manifest to humanity. This festival links the work of Buddha and Lord Maitreya, symbolically and literally. This is a time of enormous blessings being poured forth to the disciples, initiates, and new group of world servers and all humanity on earth. As the masters, initiates, and disciples leave the ceremony, they are left with a sense of renewed strength to undertake another world, uh, another year of world service. There is such an important, enormous importance of the Wesak Festival, and I hope you can see that. From the perspective of the Ascended Masters, it is the single greatest event on our planet, one that has the greatest effect on the human race. It is also in this time that the Lodge of Masters meets on the inner plane for the following four reasons, as outlined by Joel Kuhl in the Alice Bailey books. First, to contact spiritual force which is transmitted to our planet through the medium of the Buddha and the Christ, to confer together as to the immediate necessity and the work to be done for humanity, 
to admit to initiation those who are ready and to stimulate their disciples to increased activity and service. So we call forth all of humanity to join us in celebrating the Wiesnach Festival. We call out with the assistance of the entire spiritual hierarchy of Ascended Masters to all initiates and disciples and all world servers to prepare themselves this full moon for an intensive holy month of accelerated service. And we call forth, with the assistance of the entire company of heaven, the increased receptivity of humanity to the new spiritual forces released at this time. Focus, the focus of WESOC has been recently extended to cover five days for work and service. The two days prior to the full moon, the day of the festival itself, and the two days after the WESOC ceremony. The two days of preparation are called the days of renunciation and detachment. The day of the festival is called the day of safeguarding. And the two succeeding days are called the days of distribution. Take a nice deep breath as we proceed into our ceremony. I do this ahead of time because there is no time and space, ultimately. And so we're going to go into the energies once again to take our trip to the Wiesock Valley. So bringing your focus and attention back to your heart center. Feeling the amazing wave of golden light flowing through you. knowing that you are surrounded by all of the beings that we have called in and especially all the ascended masters that we will be working with. We call forth the planetary and cosmic hierarchy to assist us in experiencing this WESOC ceremony. And we call forth the full opening of all of our chakras, especially the ascension chakra, which sits at the back of the head, where you might experience a ponytail. We ask for all of the ascension chakras to be activated as we allow ourselves to experience this most holy meditation and activation. We are all starting from different places. And thus, we ask, with the assistance of Archangel Michael, with the assistance of all of our inner plane spiritual hosts, to be raised up 
into a group Merkaba. So you might feel a gentle lifting of your own Merkaba, of your spiritual aspect of your being, into a gigantic group Merkaba. It's like a gigantic boat that will take us all both on the inner and outer planes to the Wesak Valley. Take a nice deep breath and allow yourself to experience this. Allowing yourself to soul travel <clears throat> as one to the actual Wesak Valley in the Himalayas as we ask to experience the Wesak ceremony conducted by the inner plane ascended masters. And we gently feel ourselves descending into the Wesak Valley, joining all the other ascended masters, initiates, and disciples already gathered there. And believe me, they are there. They are present. Feel the sublime energies of this sacred space. And you begin to see beings that you recognize. And we can see, sense, or feel the presence of Lord Maitreya, the planetary Christ. and St. Germain, Kohan of the Seventh Ray, and Maha Kohan. Take a nice deep breath. As we recognize, feel, sense, and experience, the Alagobi, the Manu. We see all the Kohans of the race, all the masters. We see Sanat Kamara. We feel so many presences that feel so familiar to us, beings that we work with from the hierarchy, beings that we work with in our dream state. Now the three masters, St. Germain, Lord Maitreya, Alagobi, are standing in a triangle around a bowl of water that sits on a very, very large crystal. And they are preparing for the ceremony.
they were preparing through their mantras. through their activities as they prepare for the full moon and the appearance of Lord Buddha. As the full moon is still just below the horizon, the excitement continues to build. the excitement building as all are awaiting the arrival of Lord Buddha. Feel the cells of your body tingling in excitement. Allow your heart to be open and receptive. Your mind, your crown, every cell and fiber of your being open and receptive to the blessings and gifts that await us. And we see the moon begins to rise. And a beautiful stillness settles upon everyone. And all are looking toward the northeast sky. And certain movements and mantras sound forth under the guidance of the seven kohanas of the seven rays. And in the northeast, a tiny speck can be seen in the sky. We watch in amazement as the speck of light grows larger and larger. And the outline of the Buddha becomes discernible seated in a cross-legged position. As you see more and more detail of Lord Buddha, you see he is clad in a saffron-colored robe and bathed in amazing light and color with his hands extended in divine blessing. Lord Buddha hovers above the bowl of water. And a great mantra is sounded by Lord Maitreya, one that is only used once a year at Wisak. And this invocation and intonation sets up an enormous vibration of spiritual current, marking the supreme moment of intense spiritual effort of the entire year for all the initiates and masters present. And we watch in awe, in total amazement, as Lord Buddha hovers over the bowl of water, transmitting his divine cosmic energies into the water. And through Lord Maitreya, This divine energy is then sent forth by Lord Maitreya to the entire spiritual hierarchy and all of us who form a part of this hierarchy on earth. 
breathe and receive. As you feel this massive downpouring of cosmic energies from the planetary and cosmic hierarchy. Flowing not only into us, but through us. And flowing out into the world and into the earth herself. Feel, sense, and experience as these energies continue to pour in. And you observe that the bowl of water has been taken from the crystal and is being passed around person to person around the crowd. This beautiful, pristine, blessed water comes to you and you take the bowl and you sip this holy, blessed water. feeling a wonderful sense of renewal as it floods through you. Everyone partakes. Everyone receives this blessing. Particularly significant as it resonates and activates the water in our bodies. Filling us with divine frequencies, filling us with divine love, with divine wisdom frequencies, with illumination, with enlightenment, always at the level that is right and perfect for each one. And as the masters intermingle among everyone, You see yourself now walking toward Lord Buddha, Lord Maitreya, and Sanat Kamara, who overlights Lord Buddha. Buddha being the planetary logos. Sanat Kamara being our previous planetary logos. And you are feeling so very, very blessed. And you see yourself standing before these three loving masters. And take this time to share with them on the inner plane what you feel your service work mission and puzzle piece is in God's divine plan here on earth. And you also take the time to make any requests to our Mother, Father, God, as well as these three divine masters for help for yourself, for others, and in manifesting your mission. So set before them your divine intentions. And if nothing comes clearly to you, You call forth for the illumination, for the divine wisdom, for the clear understanding of your work, your service work, for this year ahead. And then you take the time over these next 
24 hours to set clear intention. That you might use them in participation with the WESOC Festival ceremony as we do them for the next two days. You feel very blessed, and you feel and visualize these prayers being answered. And your heart is overflowing with gratitude as you think, Lord Buddha, Lord Maitreya, and Sanat Kamara, for their divine guidance and amazing blessings. Take a nice deep breath, let this integrate. I want you to visualize yourself integrating as well, walking now in the Wiesock Valley, where it is less populated, where there is a very beautiful spot in nature. Imagine yourself sitting and allowing yourself to just be resonating with all that has taken place. Feeling the full joy and blessings of this divine moment, of this sacred WESOC weekend and ceremony. Allow this feeling to become truly embedded into the core of your being. And know that all of us and the entire hierarchy of inner plane ascended masters are one. Can take a nice deep breath. You now find yourself looking toward the ceremonial circle once again, gathering near the large crystal umbrella. Everyone is standing in awe once again as they feel, see, and visualize Lord Buddha beginning to rise in the lotus posture, floating back to the northeast to the realm from which he came. As Buddha rises higher and higher, he becomes once again a small speck in the distance. And you know that this ceremony is complete. And you can see and feel the arrival of your inner plane spiritual hosts ready to gather us on this gigantic group Merkaba in which each of us will be then dropped back home. So feel yourself now joining this Merkabah in total oneness, joy, and love. So very, very grateful for this WESOC experience. As we feel, sense, and experience the group Merkabah floating through space and time, returning us in our own individual Merkabahs back into our own physical body, into our own room, into our physical body. Fully integrated body, mind, and spirit with the sacred 
experience we've just had. As we take another moment to send love to all of our brothers and sisters across the planet, all who have shared this journey and this WESAP celebration with us, as well as every man, woman, and child across the planet. So feel the love being shared with us. Be both the receiver and the transmitter of this love as we extend it to all life. We are also being blessed by Lord Sai Baba, the Cosmic Christ, who gives us another blessing, a final blessing and sacred benediction, closing this Wesak ceremony by sprinkling his sacred Vibhuti ash etherically among us all. Upon the earth and every man, woman, and child, as we receive this sacred blessing and dispensation now. And Sandal Fawn is with us. Mother Gaia is with us to help anchor these energies, anchoring them through every cell, chakra, meridian layer of our orc field, multidimensionally, allowing us to be fully grounded, fully integrated with all of the blessings of the sacred time. Again, when you're ready, feel your feet on the floor. Perhaps you move your hands and feet. Make sure that you are back in your room, back in your body, fully grounded and integrated. And gently open your eyes, refreshed, renewed, and feeling so exceptionally blessed by the Wiesach blessings. I hope you enjoyed our ceremony and travel to the Wiesach Valley. And thank you once again for your divine service. I remind you to please take advantage of the blessing of Lord Maitreya. We saw it as one of the few times of the year. We received one at Easter. The next one is for the Wesak. It's just a few times of the year that Lord Maitreya extends his dispensations and blessings, so please tap into that on Sunday, May 15th at 3 p.m. your local time. I usually have to set my alarm to make sure I don't miss the exact moment, but open up your crown and receive, because this is the holiest time of the year and the time that we can receive most easily the most amazing blessings. So set your intentions and be open to receive. Again, I hope you enjoyed our trip to the Wiesach Valley. We'll make one for the Sunday call and the Monday call. So all of our Ascension meditation and activation calls are pretty amazing. 
but the ones for WESOG will be very, very sacred. So please plan on joining us tomorrow night and Monday night and every Sunday and Monday for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Clause. We begin our calls at 8.45 p.m. Eastern, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. Normally what we do is we have about 25 minutes of greetings and then about 10 after Tarn Rama join us to give us an update. And tomorrow at, uh, we will begin, again, we begin our meditations always at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time. That's where we begin our divine service work of bringing heaven to earth. So we'll do that through a very, very special meditation. Tomorrow is going to be Again, uh, an exceptional one because we're going to tap into a three-hour meditation. It begins um, 9.45 Eastern, the WESOC ceremony, because it always goes over the exact time. So 12.14 Eastern is the exact time of the full moon. You want to be in meditation at that time. You want to be a part of that ceremony. And so we will run till probably 12.45. You can sleep through the whole thing and receive all of the blessings. If you've listened to this, you'll have a basic of the ceremony itself in the Wiesnock Valley. It's going to be a totally different meditation, but it's going to include that process. And then we will celebrate once again on Monday evening. So I hope you'll join us. This is a teleconference call, so let me give you that number. It's area code 425-436-6260. 425-436-6260. The code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. And don't stress that it's going to run over tomorrow. Again, you can sleep through the entire thing. When I end the call, it will drop you off the line. Your phone will be hung up. Okay. So (coughs) thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us here this afternoon. I hope you have a most amazing, amazing WESOC weekend. And stay in the grace of God. Stay in this energy of love, wisdom, and allow yourself to receive these sacred frequencies of enlightenment at this holiest time of the year. Now, there are additional numbers. There are international numbers. There's a way to get on by the computer. So if you need that extra information, contact me as soon as possible at Cheryl Croce at AOL.com, that's C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. And again, infinite blessings. May magic and miracles fill our world and each and every person's uh, lives. May this be an amazing time of transformation for us all. So with that, 
I'm going to pass the talking stick. We want to thank Torn Rama for their wonderful service all these many years. We want to thank each and every one of you, and we want to thank our sister Rainbird for her service as well. Rainbird, this is a torch, a talking stick of enlightenment. May only enlightened words come from our from our mouths, <laughs> the uh, hours, days, and weeks ahead. So infinite blessings, my dear. Happy Wesak. Blessings of enlightenment and illumination to us all. Well, thank you for that torch. <laughs> and thank you for your divine service as well. So much gratitude for that journey that we all just took to the Wesak Valley. And and thank you for your leadership and guidance and, and, and uh, yeah, assisting us and celebrating this holy of the day. So I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. And uh, each week we need $300 to cover our expenses with PBS Radio. And that is currently due on Saturday, which is today. And we need $135 to complete that so that we can send that off today uh, for this week. And so as we can make uh, an immediate response, it would be awesome. Here's how we do it. Go into your heart space. See what is yours to give. Then go to bbsradio.com. Click on Radio Station 2, or you can scroll down and you'll find a menu for Radio Station 2. That's what you're looking for is that menu. On the Thursday, Friday, and Saturday is when our shows are. And so we're looking for... On Thursdays at the 6 o'clock hour, uh, night at the round table with the panel. And as you click on the icon there, that'll take you directly to our, to our account where you can make a donation any amount using your bank card. And then on Fridays at the 6 o'clock hour, these are Pacific times, um, at the 6 o'clock hour again. So it's the hard news with Tara and Rama on Friday night at BBS Radio, and you click on that icon there. That takes you to our account, and it does the icon for this program starting at the 1.30 hour, uh, the true history, history of Missara and our galactic origins. Um, so any one of those icons takes you right there to our account. So thank you for taking that action. We need $135 today, and next Saturday we'll need another 300 So. Let's let's keep up, just make it happen, and so much gratitude for all of you for participating in this part of the deal. It makes it go smoothly, and and it's how we need to do it. So lots of gratitude for all of you in all the ways that you show up. Um, we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and this week they need... Uh, Pay a bill that's ninety dollars. It's the Geico bill, and they also need basic uh, money for basic food and gas and, and um, that sort of thing. So um, feeding all those kitties. <laughs> so as we can help them with three hundred dollars for that, that'd be wonderful. And the ninety dollars for the Geico bill, that's awesome. 
So here's how we do it. You want to go to rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, as you click on the menu gr- grid, it's up in the left-hand corner. Uh, menu will drop down near the bottom of that list is the donate link that takes you to Rama's PayPal account. Where using your bank card, you can make a donation in any amount. So, um, yeah, let's take that action. And and then as we have our own PayPal account and would like to access the friends option, you do that by in putting in Rama's personal email with PayPal. And that email address for Rama at PayPal is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, nine 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 four nine at hotmail.com and then as you as you're sending something and it doesn't matter which way you do it either way it's perfect we're grateful for those contributions and as you're sending something please let Rama know that you sent something and what you sent when you sent it and that email for Rama the personal email is Coran K O R A N nine 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 at Comcast.net. So thank you for taking that action. If you need the physical address, it is as follows. Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. Post Office Box 280-280, and that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. The zip code in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information you need. Thank you for assisting. Uh, we're grateful for all that Tara and Rama have <laughs> bring to us each week with uh, those daily updates. And, um, yeah, and lots of gratitude for all of you as well. And now remember also that as we need the 135 for the the radio today. Next Saturday we'll need another three hundred. So let's let's keep the uh, donations coming to the kitty for the BDS radio. Uh, so thank you for for working on both of those. Lots of gratitude. Thirteen thank yous and honey in the heart. And I'd like to give you a couple of websites. The one is for Freemark and the other one for the New Gen Co- Coin Project with the crypto coins that is uh, based on liquid assets. So here here are the two addresses, https colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemark.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. And that's the username for the Rainbow Roundtable site. Um, so that's how we get there. We go there and look around and see if we like it. And if we want to join, that's where we go to join. So um, and then that, that way you set up your own account under the Rainbow Roundtable account. And that's how that works. So thanks for participating and, and many blessings on all the different products you can enjoy there. And then also for the new gen account, there's two addresses. I want to give you Marshall so that uh, he's the one that brought this to us, and it's a good way to um, pay him back. So that address, whttps forward slash forward slash 
www.newgencoin. That's spelled N-U-G-E-N. Then coin, C-O-I-N. Newgencoin.com forward slash Marshall. It's M-A-R as in Marshall and N-O-R as in Norris. So it's kind of like that's the way that works. M-A-R-N-O-R. And that other site where you can join is Tar and Rama site. And that address, https colon forward slash forward slash www.newgencoin, N-U-G-E-N-C-O-I-N dot com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. And um, I'm working as a sponsor for them, so if you have any questions and about any of that, and as far as signing up and registering and needing any assistance, you can let me know. My email address is lightenergynt at gmail.com. So it's L-I-G-H-T-E-R-G-Y-N-C as in North Carolina. Lightenergynt at gmail.com. So I'd be happy to assist anybody who needs any help um, in registering with new gen. Um, and then, of course, Marshall will help you if you're signing up on the Marshall. So, there you go. Um, actually, actually, Micah Green is also assisting us in sponsoring for the Tara and Lama site. So, any one of us works. And so, good luck with it. They've changed a lot of things where they've extended the, the good deals that are happening. And they've also eliminated the matrix thing. But they still have unit levels for one and two, so it does matter how you do that, and and it's good to know how to do that. So if we can be of help, let us know. So with that, thirteen, thank you, honey, in the heart. And I'm passing this torch over to you, Tara and Rama. Um, and it's delightful and it's fresh from the Weasel Valley. Lots of high energy in there. So greetings and welcome. Here comes the torch. It's a talking stick. Ah, we got it. We got it. It Takes a while. Sometimes it gets sticky to get that thing unmuted. Thank you, Rainbird. The mouse is a bit squirrely. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Yes, we are so grateful. We are. And, for all uh, the help we are getting and the wisdom that is coming forth right now. We are the ones. Just want to add one thing that Rama has an appointment on the 26th to go see Frederick Versweaver for his next appointment for his shoulder. And so that requires another $185, everyone. So uh, we'll just put that in the cauldron with gratitude. And that uh, this... uh, process 
will be exponentially uh, moved forward with uh, the ability to care for what our needs are, everyone, as we all manifest collectively uh, in many ways, and it, uh, it indefinitely includes financially. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, thank you. And there are two offshore jurisdiction trusts that Leonardo added to the mix here. And did you send these to Penny? I still got to do that. I had trouble copying that. It won't let me, so I got to try another program to copy it. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah, get that done today so that Penny can send it out to everybody. There's one from the Cook Islands. It's called Cook Islands Limited Liability Company. <clears throat> and then the other one is um, in Belize. I don't know what it's called. It doesn't say it right up there. I'll see. Mm, yeah, I don't know the name there. Don't see it. But the article will be available it's got a lot of good information and uh, you got two to choose to start for and um, I just to bring that back up Rama said when the packages come when we get our deliveries every man woman and child across the planet it'll take a year for that to be accomplished they start with the United States Canada <clears throat> Australia and New Zealand those are the first four countries as the people in those countries have been at the behest of the worst criminal activities and the actors. And I don't know about this latest story that's out there. There's seven dead at a supermarket shooting in Buffalo, New York. And like I talked with the nameless ones today, they're up in the Weesock Valley holding the energies with, you know, all the folks, as Cheryl was bringing in, all the masters, Sanat Kumara, Kutumi, Lord Maitreya. And the dark side is playing with stuff to create more chaos and blaze of violent fire. Um, I'm not sure what else to say about that. It's... They're out of time. They're not out of love, but they're choosing not to accept the love. Well, I guess this gentleman that did this has got a bit of a record, and he usually shows up in full full fatigues, uh, and he began firing a rifle. He had two rifles. And uh, one of the rifles had a very white supremacist uh, slur etched into itself. I don't know exactly where it was. In other words, identifying the purpose is fairly clear. This was uh, about a, this was about a, about three miles north of the, the downtown area of Buffalo, New York, in a in a neighborhood where there were people of color living there. So this is what that is. 
Okay, so is that everything you need to know, Rama? Yeah. Okay, shall I read this? Sure. Yes, sure. <laughs> okay, sure. So this is what Rama had to say today after he went out into the world to talk some fat, talk to some faction three white knights. I received a call from the nameless ones at 11.45 a.m. late this morning. I was very happy to hear from them. They said to me, Lord Rama, we are here up in the Wiesach Valley awaiting the arrival of the Ascended Masters to our little community of 20,000. They live in circular or spherical homes up there. Yes. And they're completely off the grid. So they're not locatable by certain gremlins. So that's a very important piece, too. And so they're really connected to Mother Gaia. Yeah. And Father Sky. and That's all that's out there is Father Sky and Mother Earth. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure there's plenty of... Oh, and all kinds of beings. Yes. <laughs> uh, snow leopards, along uh-huh. with the Yeti, the Sasquatch people, and a few other folks. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, energy is a good thing to have. It's a little bit chilly up there, right? It's still kind of winter, slowly turning to spring, yeah. Yeah, but that's not the same as if we're living where we're living and slowly turning into spring. No. It's chilly. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so... um, Lots of mud. Really? Yeah. (laughs) So that means they've been having lots of snow melting? Yes. Oh, okay. We have created a Jedi temple here where all kinds of folks are coming and going from the various realms. The energies are extremely high with the sun activities, our sun Saul's activities. The dark side would like to play with false flag events as usual. Give them no energy. Zero. Zilch. We are here to tell you Captain Ashtar has the final word. Expect us, Lord Rama. We know where you live. (laughs) What's after that? Uh, See you in the light of the most radiant (laughs) one. Satnam Namaste. Place of violet fire. That was a very, very good report, Rama. Yes, it's focused on these energies that are coming in that Cheryl talked about that what this billions of people right now are celebrating Buddha's birthday coming in. Oh, they just upped it and said there's 10 dead now. They've got 10 that have died from that shooting in Buffalo. Yeah. This is Buddha's birthday. Billions of folks are calling these energies in with Wiesach, and it can change space, time, energy, everything. 
Um, today, on Living on the Edge, they were talking about this fiasco that the folks on the lunatic fringe of the right are pushing called criminalizing the right to take care of yourself if you need to with your health care provider, preferably not Medicare Advantage. Do not get caught up in Medicare Advantage. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about Medicare or Medicaid. I... I have not gone. Well, what you know is that you get snagged and they won't cover things like lots of things. Yes. And you're paying through the nose. This is why Bernie Sanders, they wouldn't let him become president because we would have free health care right now, like Sweden and Norway and other civilized countries. Well, it's kind of a nebulous statement because... We have to get rid of them all yeah. before that would happen. I mean, Bernie isn't just going to be the magic beam light. Mm-mm. And they made sure to rig it so that, I'll just say, Bernie could have been uh, voted in by the people, for sure. Yeah. Uh, that that was also, lots of people got pra- paid off to, you know, Make it different. Make the outcome the way they like it. So that's why they got to go. When you got to go, you got to go, right? (laughs) Yeah. There's a large cat lady who has their ticket punched. I'll put it that way. Okay. So... I think that we've got it all pretty well. There's a couple more things. Let's see. Um, They've been talking about encouraging people in November to elect more pro-choice members to Congress. And there's been strong <clears throat> suggestions to add four more <clears throat> pro-choice-minded people to the Supreme Court. That would be good. I, I This is coming across... As a woman with her body does not have the privacy of her person... That's against the Constitution. It says that you have privacy to your person and you have to decide what to do with your body. And this is not doing that and this is against the Constitution. There is no such thing as having this this way. It's really important and it's it's always harder to uh, push for the light. In the darkness, it's a challenge, yeah, to say the least. And I was listening to Moonwise today, the astrology that is played here on the public access channel on the radio, 
and they were saying that this Scorpio Bulbon is going to bring up a lot of stuff for folks to transform, transmute right now. Yeah, there's five stages of that scorpionic energy in astrology, and it starts with the scorpion itself. And what the scorpion does that's unique to it is it kills itself with its own venom. It, it, when it's, when they decide they're going to leave, they sting themselves with their own stinger at the, at their tail. They literally, uh, when I was in Mexico with Micah and his father, we watched a scorpion do that right in front of our eyes. Ooh. And here is a still as we, we didn't expect to see it when we saw it. It was nighttime and we were going to visit. We were living in a house that was off of the beach and there was one in front of that one and we were going to visit the people that were in front of there and when we got to the back, back patio, the scorpion was doing that to himself. And we could see it because there was a light there. Uh, so that's that's the first stage. And then, and again, this is delineated this way for a reason because the energy of Scorpio, at its highest level, is ascension. That's it, it, the fifth level is called the Phoenix Rising. It's literally the ascension itself embodied, yeah, the scorpionic energy. And then so in between there, the second level is the uh, <clears throat> it's the swan. And you know, in the in the little in the in the fairy tale story of called the ugly duckling, one day the ugly duckling looks into his reflection in the water and he sees this beautiful swan and he didn't realize that was him. And he did, but it took a while. Uh, and there's something about seeing ourselves and the true part of ourselves that that story is depicting. Honoring the light within. And no false evidence appearing real that we can we can figure out all kinds of ways to get out of being who we are. Yes. That is not what we came here to do. But a lot of us have made it a pastime. Oh, I'm not worthy. Uh, that's called false humility. And the galactics will have none of it. Right? Right. What you looking at? I heard some scratching. You mean kitty stuff? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, the third level is the, what is it, the third level? I think the fourth level is the dove, or is the third, third no, the third level is the dove. Mm -hmm. And that's talking about the purity of heart with which you ascend with uh, pure white fire core of being that that kind of dove transformative loving presence in and outside of everywhere 
And then the fourth one is the eagle. And you know that the eagle has a keen vision. Yeah. Can see very far in all directions. And that's really a place where we can find ourselves uh, with that eagle eye. Uh, and you can say, what's that song? Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Hold on. Who sings that song? Um, <laughs> playing for change. You know, does one person. Oh, well, we can play that later. That's good. We need to keep our our eyes on the prize of ascension now. Sweet Honey and the Rock talk do that too. Oh, okay, there you go. Lots of good songs to to share with the energies now here. Nothing better than what Penny found on Thursday night. We're going to play it again, Sam. We'll let you hear it when we get to the music time. Oh my God! Mm. What's his name that sang that song? Knuckle Bear. Yeah, you can find it on your computer. It's a new one. Seven minutes long. <laughs> okay, so, um, and then the fifth level, like I said, it's literally the Phoenix Rising, which is the metaphor of all of us rising to who we are fully. And and spreading our wings and sharing in ways that you may not have thought of before, but discipline is absolutely required on this path. I'll just put it that way. Okay, so we're going to play a few things here just a little bit before we do something from our brother Greg Braden. So there was something... Here from the last word. Okay, there we go. And we just gotta turn the sound up, everybody. That what they believe in is more important than your choice about your own body and your own family and your own future. Now is the time to lift up our voices and fight back. Joining us now is Democratic Representative Katie Porter of California. She's a member of the House Oversight Committee and the Deputy Chair of the House Progressive Caucus. Uh, Representative Porter, you were with us on that night uh, when we were holding the draft opinion in our hands for the first time. Uh, it was kind of, it was shaking in my hands. I was so shocked that we possessed it, first of all, and then that we were reading it. Uh, on reflection now that you've had more than a week to live with it, and you saw what the Senate did today, what are your feelings about it tonight? I think it is not. My frustration, my anger, my disappointment hasn't diminished one bit. In fact, I've had more time to think about what the consequences of this decision are, not just in the immediate term um, for women who are who are worried about what this means for them, for families that are worried about what this means for them, but thinking about the long-term economic consequences of this decision. We saw you know, Janet Yellen from the Secretary of the Treasury talking about what this decision will mean as women are forced to drop out of the work 
workforce, are able to cut out to cut their education short. Um, so I think my my sense of frustration, my sense of rage, my sense of disappointment, my anger as a citizen of this country um, that I feel like my own ability to control my health care is being taken away from me. And I think that we've, we're going to see the frustration and the rage, the anger, the disappointment. We're going to see it keep building as people begin to really grapple with something that we thought, we hoped would be unthinkable. Uh, I want to go back to the point uh, you mentioned, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, pointing out the economic consequences of this for women, uh, most women, most, a majority, uh, who use abortion services already have one child. Uh, so what's happening there in many, many cases is a decision about what is economically possible for them and what is possible for them given that they already have one child. Absolutely. This is not, uh, abortion is not about whether it's in contrast to motherhood, it's not about people never becoming mothers. It's about deciding when to start a family. So, the, as you mentioned, the majority of people who have an abortion are already mothers at that time, and some of them have several children. Some of them will have an abortion and will go on to have children later. And so, I think this idea that it's this choice that somehow Republicans are choosing mothers and motherhood, and Democrats are choosing to to not be mothers to choosing abortion is just wrong headed. This is part of family planning. This is part of reproductive health care in the same way that things like birth control are. And when we see Republicans start to invade our our choices about abortion, we're gonna see them come for birth control next. Uh, President Biden has said that inflation is the number one priority for the Biden White House to try to get under control right now. Uh, as you're out there in California talking to constituents uh, during this re-election year for Congress, uh, how, how does inflation compare to this newly uh, important, in the sense of the Supreme Court decision pending, uh, abortion issue? How do those two issues compare? Well, I don't think they compare. I think they actually reinforce each other. So the fact that things like inflation can happen and it can become more expensive to feed your kids and to fuel your car um, is exactly why people need to be able to be in charge of how many mouths they're going to have to feed. So I think the fact that we're seeing this jump in expenses, um, that we're seeing people having to pay more in the grocery store, pay more at the pump, pay more for housing, is a reason that people are saying, I need to be able to make my own decisions about when and if to start a family. So I don't think we're going to see them. I don't think it's about comparing them or contrasting them, I think they reinforce for people just how big of a responsibility it is to take care of a family. Uh, I want to take a look at a poll uh, of, of Florida voters. Uh, this is a, a University of South Florida poll about the causes of inflation. And they say they have at the top of the list, 87% say supply chain, is, uh, 60, uh, 83% COVID-19, 64% Biden administration, then comes war in Ukraine at 62, Trump administration at 49. Uh, the, I personally would move war in, war in Ukraine way up there. Uh, how would, how does that list look to you? Well, I think it's missing a really important kind of contributor here, um, which is price gouging. So look, the, the evidence here is not is not tricky to understand. I don't need a whiteboard for this one. When, when you are selling a product and one of your inputs, say you're selling gasoline, and your input, which is oil, goes up in price, you might have to charge more. 
But if you're just covering the cost of your higher input, you wouldn't see your profits double, quadruple. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing it with oil. We're seeing it with food products. So we're seeing these companies, they're not just passing along the cost of the higher input. They're not just passing along their supply chain difficulties. They are using this supply chain moment to increase their profits by raising their prices well beyond the higher costs that they're facing. So it's nobody is taking away anything from the war in Ukraine, from supply chain issues, from labor shortages. These are all real factors. And the price of fuel, of course, affects the price of many other goods. But there is simply, you cannot look at Wall Street's profits and not come to the conclusion that this is one of the most profitable moments that Wall Street has ever seen. And they are profiting off what they view as really an opportunity to engage in price gouging. And we have to crack down on that as we also try to solve some of these underlying inflationary factors. Uh, Representative Porter, uh, could you please stay with us across the break? Because I want to ask you uh, something about what you did uh, in your subcommittee And this may sound like something Congress does all the time because there's been recent uh, reference to it with the January 6th committee. But you actually sent a criminal referral to the Justice Department for recommending an investigation of a Trump cabinet member. I'd really like to get the details on on that on the other side of this commercial break. Uh, Please stay with us. I can tell the story of your uh, criminal referral to the Justice Department, but I'd rather have you tell this story uh, and, and how it came about. And one of the things that really stuns me about it is it, it centers on, among others, a Trump cabinet member who I forgot existed. I, I forgot who, who was Secretary of the Interior after the first one uh, had to leave. But But please tell us what this criminal referral is about. So what happened here is the Deputy Secretary of the Interior, um, the Secretary of the Interior at the time was Ryan Zinke, who's currently running for Congress, uh, but the Deputy Secretary, um, his name was Bernhardt, he took a secret meeting with a developer named Mike Ingram trying to develop a project in Arizona in a very environmentally sensitive area. This was a secret meeting. It was never disclosed on any of Secretary Bernhardt's um, calendars. It wasn't disclosed to our committee when we were investigating. A couple weeks later, this fish and wildlife career employee, 30 years just doing his job, gets a phone call and is told that a high-level politico wants him to reverse his decision that this development would harm the environment. And on October 6th, three things happened all at the same time. First, the Army Corps of Engineers announced they were reopening this permit process. They were going to reevaluate their decision. They had previously denied the permit. Second, Mike Ingram and his 12 buddies of his donated nearly a quarter of a million dollars to the Trump Victory Fund and to the Republican National Committee. And three, this fish and wildlife, this whistleblower, this fish and wildlife person got a phone call telling him that he needed to reverse his decision. Um, and he got the phone call directly from the Department of Interior in Washington. So the facts here are really shocking. This is a quid pro quo. That's what it appears to be. In return for making nearly a quarter million dollars of donations to the Trump Victory Fund and to the Republican National Committee, 
This developer was basically able to buy his way around environmental protection law. So the facts of this case are shocking, and they are very, very serious. Quid pro quo is the most purest form of corruption that there is. And officials need to know that just because they're out of office, just because they try to hide their tracks, doesn't mean Congress isn't going to do its job and conduct that oversight. And when we find crimes, we're not afraid to make the referral to the Department of Justice. And you found all this in your subcommittee investigation, which you've now basically forwarded on to the Justice Department uh, to see if they find criminal conduct. Yes, the chair of the National Resources Committee, Ro Rojalva, um, was working on this investigation. Um, I took it, you know, I took it over on the oversight subcommittee. We did it together. And I'm really, really proud of how careful and thoughtful. What we really tried to do here was get the facts. And then we're making the criminal referrals so that the Department of Justice can conduct the depositions and go through the formal legal process to reach their determination of whether or not criminal charges should be filed. But given the evidence before us, we have it, we have a responsibility as Congress members to see that the law is being followed. And so that does not appear that happened here. And that's why we made this unusual step. This is the first time that the House Natural Resources Committee has ever made a criminal referral. And I think it speaks to just how egregious the conduct is here and just how important it is that we in Congress are reestablishing the rule of law and the expectation that administration officials are going to follow it. Representative Katie Porter, thank you, as always, for joining us again tonight. We always appreciate it. Graduation season, which means lots of speakers are hoping to inspire and motivate students one last time. But today, one speaker and graduate inspired us in a big, big way. Elizabeth Bonker, she's the 2022 valedictorian at Rollins College in Florida. She has non-speaking autism. And even before graduating, at the top of her class, she accomplished a lot co-authored a book of poems, participated in a TED Med Talk, and founded a nonprofit. But resume aside, Elizabeth's message to her classmates is what really caught our attention. Rollins College Class of 2022, today we celebrate our shared achievements. I know something about shared achievements because I am affected by a form of autism that doesn't allow me to speak. My neuromotor issues also prevent me from tying my shoes or buttoning a shirt without assistance. I have typed this speech with one finger with a communication partner holding a keyboard. I am one of the lucky few non-speaking autistics who have been taught to type. That one critical intervention unlocked my mind from its silent cage, enabling me to communicate and to be educated, like my hero Helen Keller. My situation may be extreme, but I believe Rollins has shown all of us how sharing gives meaning to life. During my freshman year, I remember hearing a story about our favorite alumnus, Mr. Rogers. When he died, a handwritten note was found in his wallet. It said, life is for service. You have probably seen it on the plaque by Strong Hall. Life is for service. So simple, yet so profound. Personally, I have struggled my whole life with not being heard or accepted. A story on the front page of our local newspaper reported how the principal at my high school told a staff member, the can't be valedictorian. Yet today, here I stand. There are 31 million non-speakers with autism in the world who are locked in a silent cage. My life will be dedicated to relieving them from suffering in silence. So, my call to action today is simple. Tear off a small piece from your commencement program and write Life is for Service on it. Yes. We gave you the pens to really do it.
What does it say? And on that note, I wish you a good night. From all of our colleagues across the networks of NBC News, thanks for staying up late with us. I'll see you next week. to another edition of Economic Update. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. In today's program, we'll be talking about how emerging market economies, in this case, Sri Lanka, uh, get themselves into the kinds of catastrophic problems that that island country now has and that many other countries have had and will continue to. We're also going to talk about how billionaires here in the United States keep evading the fair share of taxes uh, year in and year out. And then finally, the bulk of today's program, mostly in the second half, but some in the beginning, we'll be talking about that inflation we're suffering and how it connects to our market economy and to the capitalism that is the name of our system. Okay, let's begin. Sri Lanka, a country in Asia known in the old days, by another name, Ceylon, off the coast of India, an independent country, uh, has had a strong man government for quite a while, very powerful leader. But it is less interesting for that fact, which it shares, unfortunately, with many others, than it is for another fact, which it also shares. And that is, it is in the last stages of an extreme economic meltdown. There's not enough food, there's not enough fuel, there's not enough medicine. People are in the streets in huge numbers battling against a government that clearly the majority of people there don't want around anymore. And I wanted to explain why that happened, not so much just in Sri Lanka, although every country has its particular facts, but because it happens so often in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America. And here's how it goes. It starts with international banks, usually not located in these countries, located in, you guessed it, New York or London or Paris or Berlin, uh, one of the old colonial centers. Japan might be another one. And here's how it goes. The bankers see an opportunity to make a very profitable loan. They get in touch with the big strongman government. Sometimes, of course, it goes the other way. The strongman government gets in touch with the bank. By now, it has happened so many times back and forward that it really doesn't matter. They get together, and they make a big, fat loan. These days, in the billions of dollars. And here's how it works. The official word is that the loan is for the economic development of Sri Lanka, or the economic development of Nigeria, or the economic development of Ecuador. doesn't really matter. And here's what happens. The money comes. Billions. But it is used primarily for two immediate purposes. The government of the strongman leader who gets the loan uses it to build up its political support to give money to those areas where they need votes, to bribe all kinds of political movements or communities to vote for them, the usual things that politicians do. 
Another part of the loan is used to pay fees and consulting bids to the very bankers from whom the loan comes. That's right, the bank makes the loan because it's going to get back 10, 20, 30, 40% of that loan in fees, in early payments, in all kinds of money coming back. In other words, the two sides of the loan, the lending bank and the strongman government, each get a pot of money to use for themselves. What then does the bank do? Having gotten back 30, 40% of the loan within a very short time, they then sell the loan. And remember, the loan still says $10 billion or whatever it was for, owed by Sri Lanka to a collection of banks in London. Now, that debt is still there. But the bank sells it to what is called a vulture capitalist, a company that buys that $10 billion loan owed by Sri Lanka, but only pays the bank $6 billion. The bank is happy it's gotten the rest of that money back way earlier than it thought anyway, so it's golden. The vulture capitalist now has the incentive, because they own a loan that Sri Lanka has to pay of $10 billion, but they only paid 6 for it, so they can force payment out of Sri Lanka. Even if they give Sri Lanka a billion off, they will have made a fortune too. And so they go to work. They go into courts all over the world, hounding the Sri Lanka government, taking its money where they can get a court to seize it, blocking exports and imports that aren't paid for in advance because they're demanding repayment of their loan. They use every device to squeeze Sri Lanka. That's what's happened. That's why Sri Lanka cannot import the food, the fuel, the medicine to keep its people going. That's why there's chaos in the street. In other words, in the end, either this strong man will repress these movements, and then you'll really have blood running in the street, or the people will overthrow the strong man. But here's the sad You know what will turn up next? Somebody else who's going to be the next strong man. And even if he or she isn't intending to, they will be approached by the banks and they will be approached by the political forces in their country to do it all again. There are many countries in which this horrific story is repeated over and over again. If you allow the people who run your country to be a small, account, unaccountable group. They will cut these deals with bankers, and the people will suffer and suffer and suffer. It is the history of what has happened in most of the countries that fought for independence from their own colonial master just to discover that even when you're independent, if you don't change your basic economic system, you're going to be stuck again and again, and basically, that's the so-called world of high finance. The ProPublica Internet Magazine released some documents recently that are really remarkable. Uh, they are about the 15 richest income recipients here in the United States, and what they pay, or to be more honest, what they don't pay in taxes. 
I want to just mention one because it's so gross, it'll stand for the others. Michael Bloomberg, once the mayor of New York City, a multi-multi-billionaire, they looked at his income from the five years, 2013 through 2018, in which, during which time he had many, ready, billions of dollars of income. That's in addition to the billions of dollars of wealth he already owned. What was his tax rate over those five years on the billions of his income? Ready? 4.1%. That's way less than most people who work for a living pay as a percentage of their wages. And he didn't work for the money. He got it all in dividends and interest and all the rest. Here's how this works, in case you haven't figured it out already. The billionaires donate to the politicians, and the politicians write the tax laws the way the billionaires who donate to them prefer. That allows the billionaires to hide money around the world, to escape taxes legally, and all the rest. And that gives you Mr. Bloomberg. Some of you know that the income tax in the United States is so-called progressive. What that simply means is the higher your income, the larger the percentage of it you are required to pay. What you may not know is that the income tax, which is the only progressive tax basically in this country, has been bringing in less and less of the government's money. It now brings in less than half of the government's money. Equally important is Social Security, which is not a progressive tax. It is the opposite, a regressive tax. In other words, the richer you are, the less the proportion of your income you pay for Social Security withholding. It is the opposite of progressive. But that's just a federal tax. If you turn to the state and local taxes, they're overwhelmingly regressive. In other words, most states rely on a sales tax. You go into a store and you buy a can of beer, you pay exactly the same amount of money as Rockefeller does when he goes into that store and buys a can of beer. In other words, your ability to pay, the idea behind progressive taxes, doesn't apply. Mr. Rockefeller, for whom the tax is totally irrelevant, is in the same boat as you are, for whom the tax is a significant part of your income. So, if you put it all together, we don't have a progressive tax system. We have quite the opposite. Federal, state, and local put together are regressive. But here is probably the single most grotesque part of our tax system. We don't rely on taxes the way other countries do. For example, we could have a tax system based on property, not income, what you own, not what income flows to you. So, for example, Michael Bloomberg owns billions of dollars, mostly in the form of stocks and bonds and financial assets, they're called. Guess what? There's no property tax on that kind of property. Your local community taxes property in the form of land, in the form of your home, house, in the form of your car, 
That kind of property, called tangible property, is taxed, usually at the local level in this country. Not by states and not by the federal, but by the local government. But here's the gross thing for you never to forget. In our country, the only kind of property that's subject to taxation at the local level is tangible property. Land, house, and car. It's the kind of property middle-income people can afford. The kind of property that rich people mostly have, stocks, bonds, cash, stuff like that, does not get subject to property tax. You sell your $100,000 house, you stop paying property tax. When you had the house, you had to pay property tax. When you sold the house and bought shares of stock, you don't have to pay property tax anymore. That's a subsidy to the rich. There's no excuse for it. There's no need for it. Other countries, and even this one, at different points in time, didn't do that. It is simply and grossly unfair, as is Mr. Bloomberg and others like him, getting away with not paying anything like the same rate of taxation that most of you and I pay as a matter of course. We are being ripped off. Because the government that doesn't get the taxes billionaires ought to pay is a government that either makes us pay in the place of those billionaires or uses the fact that the billionaires don't give them taxes to do something else, to go to them and borrow the money instead. That's right. Instead of the billionaires paying taxes, they lend that money to the government, get it all paid back to them, and we pay extra taxes to give them interest while they wait for the repayment. Only rich people could have designed the tax system like that. We've come to the end of the first part of today's show. And as we at Democracy at Work continue to celebrate our 10th anniversary, we want to invite and encourage all of our listeners and viewers to explore the variety of other shows, podcasts, and books we produce. For example, Capitalism Hits Home, a podcast hosted by mental health counselor and longtime activist in the feminist movement, Dr. Harriet Fry. You can find her show and get further involved with all of the work we do at Democracy at Work by going to our website, democracyatwork.info. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I want to talk to you about inflation, the one roaring across the American economy as we speak, 85 to 10%, depending on exactly how you measure it, maybe worse if you measure it in the way maybe you ought to, but let's leave that issue for the experts and the technicians. Prices are rising fast, everyone is it. And it's really a burden, isn't it? Let's be honest. We as a nation have come through the worst public health disaster in our country's history and the second worst economic crash all in the last two years, 2020 and 2021. What a thing. Now, with that two-year disaster behind us, we get hit with an inflation worse than anything we've seen in 40 years. It's really extraordinary what you are subjecting 
the working class of this economic system to these days. Well, let's be clear what it means when inflation happens. This is all too simple and yet all too quickly overlooked in most of the mass media. Prices are set in our country by a tiny minority of the people. Employers, the class of employers. If you're an employee, like 99% of us, you know that you've never been in a room where you set the prices of the products you help to produce, the goods and services. Your employer has that exclusive responsibility and privilege. So if prices are rising, let's be real clear, friends, it's the employers that are doing it. Mm -hmm. And let's listen to what their employers are saying to explain the prices they're raising for all the rest of us to pay. They give two basic arguments. Number one, we're doing it because everything we buy has gone up in price. In other words, the employers are telling us they have to do it. Why? Because other employers are doing it. Oh, how interesting. All the employers together are using each other as an excuse. Here's the second excuse. Workers are demanding higher wages. Well, here's a problem, folks. Prices are rising roughly 8.5%, 10%. Wages are not rising like that. They're not even rising more than about half of that on average, with millions of workers getting no wage increase at all. So that's simply not true. But let me do the economics with you, because you'll understand something here very clearly. Suppose workers have more money to spend. I mean, they don't these days, but let's assume they do. Let's assume even further that having not spent money during the pandemic and the crash, saving it up, they're now ready to spend. Let's assume they're borrowing more again. So they have more to spend. Here's a lesson in economics you should never forget. Every businessman or woman, the person who's the employer in the factory, the office, or the store, has a choice to make. When workers or consumers, let's call them by their other name, come toward you with more money to spend, there's one thing you can do, but there's a second thing you can do. You can respond to the rising demand for whatever it is you produce and sell, either by making more of it, because you can sell more, or by raising the price. In the so-called free enterprise system, we give a tiny minority of our population, employers, the freedom to choose. And they're going to choose whatever they prefer. So one business will raise its prices. Another one will order more produce to sell. If more people are coming in the store, you can go either way. But the social consequences are enormously different. If the business responds to rising demand by ordering more goods and selling more, that's great because I mean people get hired to produce those extra goods. It'll mean more jobs. We like that response. Compare that to the other choice the employer has. Not to order more goods. To say, oh great, all these extra people coming in with money to spend, I'm going to jack up the price. 
I may even send, sell out less than I did before, but I'll make more profit because I've jacked up the price so much. Then the private decisions of employers produce the inflation we're suffering from. Here's what I want everyone to understand. Whether we have more jobs, which we want, or an inflation, which we don't want, is a decision made by a tiny minority of unaccountable people. They're not accountable to us or to the society. They may bless with more jobs or condemn with more inflation. They do whatever they want for their profits, and we will live with the results. You want to live in that kind of economic system? It's a little bit like choosing to be a slave. Really a choice you want to make? We live in it. Now, and you know what the institution yeah. is I'm talking about? The free market. That's right. It's the free market <laughs> that gives to employers that choice. How to respond to rising demand from the public. Produce more and get more people jobs or jack up the price and produce the kind of inflation we are suffering through now. And by the way, do you have to handle things this way? Not at all. Let me give you some examples of other ways to do it. We could say, look, we're going to produce more because that gives people jobs, and then we're going to distribute them, not in a market, not by allowing anybody to jack up prices. We're not going to do any of that. Prices are fixed. The government's going to fix them. And you you know what the government's going to do? It's going to distribute the goods that are being produced, putting more people to work, we'll get more jobs, we'll get more output, and we'll distribute it. We don't need the market. We don't need all this price nonsense. Well, is that really doable? Yes. Did people ever do that? Yes. Did that ever happen in the United States? Yes. I'm going to give you an example. During World War II, we had a problem. We were fighting a war, partly in Japan, partly in Europe, in Asia and in Europe. And we needed a lot of resources to go to fight the war, to make the bullets and the guns and the planes and the ships, to equip the soldiers and all the rest, which meant that the resources we had left here in the United States to produce food, clothing, and shelter for the American people during the war were less. In other words, there was a shortage. The demand for food, clothing, and shelter at home didn't go away, but the supply was reduced because we were fighting a war. So the question was, how do we distribute the reduced supply of food, clothing, shelter, and so on to the American people? If we had allowed the free market to do it, it would have meant allowing the producers of food, clothing, and shelter to jack up the price the way they're doing now. We would have allowed it then. But wise people in Washington understood if we did that, rich people would be able to get through the war very comfortably and everybody else wouldn't. And that would destroy whatever unity we had in this country, which we badly needed to fight the war. So we wouldn't have a free market. We banished the free market. The government issued ration cards. That's right. A little card that entitled you to buy a quart of milk, a pound of meat, a pound of sugar, 
a gallon of gasoline for your car, and many, many, many other things. If you didn't have a ration card, you couldn't get it. Money didn't buy you anything. The price didn't go up. didn't matter if it did. Without a ration card, you didn't get it. With a ration card, you did. And how were ration cards distributed? Some of you will enjoy the irony here. To each according to their need. If you had a lot of children in your family, you got a lot of ration cards for milk. If you didn't have any children, you got fewer ration cards for milk. Uh, not so hard to understand. And it worked. And it worked for years here in the United States. It's a non-market system of distributing. There was no inflation to worry about because we didn't handle the distribution of goods and services with a market. A market is a human institution. It's got its strengths. It's got its weaknesses. It's important to understand those weaknesses so that we don't get bamboozled by right-wing folks who want us to bend over and pray to the market in the way that we were warned not to let false gods lead us into idolatry, if you may remember. The market is a false guard, and Americans know that. Let me give you some examples of where we don't allow markets. One of them is inside our home. How do we arrange for the division of labor in a typical family household? You know, somebody takes care of the garbage, somebody washes the dishes, somebody cooks the meals, somebody goes out shopping, somebody mows the lawn, whatever. Do we use a market? Do we pay somebody to mow the lawn? Junior, you mow the lawn, give you four dollars. Okay, mom, I'd like a, a piece of cake. Okay, son, here, three dollars. We don't do that. We don't use market exchange. If we do that, we get a lecture from our parents or grandparents saying, in this family, we don't do that. We help each other because we love each other. That's why we do it. We don't do it. I'll give you two. You give me four. <clears throat> Here's another example. We don't organize our public parks. I live in New York City. If I go to Central Park, I don't have to buy a square of lawn to put my blanket down and have my picnic. We all put money in a pot together, don't we? And that takes care of having a beautiful, clean park for us to go to when and if we wish to. And I don't begrudge my neighbor's three children going to the park because I only have one child and go. We don't live like that. We don't calculate like that because we don't want a market in park access. Public school, we put a fund together to run our elementary schools and our high schools. You go if you need it. You go if you're a child. You go if you want an education, etc., etc. We don't do, you got to pay six bucks for two hours worth of instruction in arithmetic. There's lots of places we don't. And you know, here's an irony for you. Many of the largest corporations have gotten large by what we call vertical integration. That is, they bought the company from whom they used to buy something, and they brought it inside the corporation. You know why, if you read the literature? Because they don't want, you love this, the insecurity, the uncertainty of markets. 
They don't want their business. For example, an automobile company doesn't want to worry that it can't get the seal or the copper it needs at the price it can afford at the time it needs it. If it uses the market, it never knows. So it buys the companies from whom it used to purchase, brings them inside. And then even a greater irony, once the company has brought in, merged, if you like, with all these others, you know how it organizes the movement of goods and services among the units of the company? By central planning. They have a whole office that plans how the corporation works. The very thing that the head of that company denounces in the larger society, planning, is what that corporation does inside. Don't be fooled. The market is a sometime institution. It's got as many flaws as virtues. It has to be regulated and controlled like every other institution. And nobody should ever allow someone to tell you it's a perfect mechanism. The next time a politician tells you, leave it to the market, you now know what the real message there is. Leave it to the tiny minority of employers to do what they want for their profit and the rest of us pick up the chips wherever they fall. That's what celebrating the market is really about. Thank you very much for your attention. I hope you have found this of use. And as always, I look forward to speaking with you again next week. I don't know what to say about the market. I'm, uh, it is not set up in a way that's ethical with what St. Germain taught about how we work in service to all of us. That's what I can say about the markets. <laughs> the 1% have gotten their notice, metaphorically speaking, from Mother, let it be, and so it is. Okay. So... Now we'll get some input at the Greg Braden level. (laughs) 5D and higher, everybody. And this is 51 minutes, and it's called Earth, and then in quotation marks, safe operating zone. And this is a part of a series, so there's going to be more where this came from. This is what it says, a little brief description. Greg Braden highlights the work of Johan Rockstrom, S-T-R-O-Umlaut-M, a Swedish scientist, internationally recognized for his work on global sustainability issues. In response to your question concerning climate change and overpopulation. And that's the word. So we go to start here. And this again is 51 minutes, everybody. Here we go.
friends, Greg Braden here. Welcome to this edition of our Questions and Answers. It's good to be with you today, and as always, I really appreciate you making time in your world to communicate with me and my world and the world that we share with your thoughts, your ideas, and your questions. And you know there, there's a phenomenon that I'm seeing, and I'm, I'm not really surprised, I'm, I'm in awe of how often it happens is that many people will send us questions, either in the comments to the videos, or they may send them in emails, uh, or responding to some of our social media. So they're asking different questions, different words, but ultimately they're really asking the same question. And, and I say I'm not surprised, because we're all connected. We're a community. We've got the same concerns. We're hearing the same information. And, you know, we've got the same uh, the same questions about what it is that's happening in our world and our lives. So this particular question uh, is one of those examples, and it is best exemplified through uh, a comment and a question that I have from Tegan. Tegan doesn't say where uh, he or she is coming from. What Tegan says is, Greg, you mentioned seven or eight factors or challenges facing humanity like biodiversity crisis. How do you respond to people who feel that the greatest challenge of our time is overpopulation? Well, it's a great question, and there are actually multiple questions within that question. What we're finding today, unfortunately, is that the problems of the world are no longer able to be observed from the perspective of pure science. Most of the problems we're dealing with have been politicized. You're seeing that, and I'm seeing that, from healthcare to the climate uh, extremes that we're seeing right now technology, the way it's being implemented in our lives, politics and greed have come into play in all of these. And we all know that. But the the drawback is that it hampers our ability to really address the questions in a meaningful way, in a responsible way, or the challenges that we face as a society in a meaningful way. This is a perfect example uh, of precisely that. What Tegan is asking uh, I created a video on this channel uh, last year, and I identified uh, a study that was done from the Stockholm Resilience Center. The man named Johan Rockström is the one heading this up. Brilliant scientist. I have a lot of respect for this man. He is really pushing the boundaries when it comes to the way we think of our relationship to the world because he's looking at it from a non-political perspective, a non-financial uh, perspective, and he's looking at it holistically. And you have to do that. You have to, if you're going to be honest with yourself, if we're going to be honest with ourselves about what we're up against, we've got to look at the big picture. We can't zero in on one crisis or another, which is what we are, are being asked to do. It's what the narrative coming through the mainstream media, the narrative coming from our politicians and when I talk about politicians, I'm not talking about just America or just Europe. This is global. Uh, globally, politicians are hijacking science. They're cherry-picking data. They are then funneling that cherry-picked data through mainstream or what's called legacy media. This is the media on the major networks, the ma major cable channels. And, uh, and they're doing it in an effort to drive opinion in one direction or another so that you and I will make choices, and those choices will be reflected in the way we spend our money and the people that we elect to represent us. 
based upon what we're being told about the world that we live in. So this is, uh, again, this is nothing new. It's been happening for, for a while. What is new is the technology has advanced so quickly now, and we rely so much on social media as well as the legacy media that we're being led to believe that there are some really big problems out there that are going to end our lives and end our world if we don't do something about it, such as climate change. Uh, and the other problems are rarely even mentioned. So what I'd like to do, let me go back. I will highlight the study from Rockstrom. I'm going to bring up a slide to help us to do that. There are 10 parameters that Rockstrom and his team have identified is what they call a safe operating zone for planet Earth, the, the safety zone. Now, I want to be really clear why this is important, because what they say is that all 10 of these parameters must be in place for us to have a healthy planet, for us to continue life as we know it, and for life as we know it to continue in the world. And when these parameters begin to break down, these are the, the warning lights. These are the flashing red warning lights that we're in trouble. And the reason I'm saying this is because of the 10 parameters that I'm going to share with you, we have already crossed the critical boundary for three of those parameters, and climate is not one of them. We've talked about this on this channel before. Climate change is a fact as a geologist, as a degree geologist, I can say that to you. It is a fact. It is rhythmic. It has happened throughout history. If no, <clears throat> Would you please tell us who you are? We are from mostly planets Erra and Temer. That's all revolving around the sun. <laughs> history. If no humans were on the earth, we would still be going through climate change. Humans did not cause it. And that is a scientific fact. And anyone that tells you that humans have caused climate change either does not understand the climate change or is not being honest with you when they say it. Now, humans are contributing and we have to say that. As a scientist, I have to say that because our fossil fuel-based economy is creating uh, carbon dioxide and other particulate emissions we're kicking into the atmosphere, and they become a part of the equation. But the carbon dioxide would be in the atmosphere, and we would be going through the climate change if there were no fossil fuel-based industry. That is just scientific fact. It's not politically correct. Many of you have heard me say I am not, I've refused to be linked to a university. I'm not linked to a corporation, uh, and I'm not beholden to any sources of independent funding. So I have nothing to lose by sharing with you what the data says as I understand it, as it exists today. And when that data changes, I'm happy to change that story. So climate change, it's important. And yes, we need to manage that. Uh, and as I said in, in a recent video, this is not the warmest the Earth has ever been. Earth has been much warmer when life was thriving. It's not the highest levels of CO2. We've had much higher levels of CO2. When the Earth was very green in the past, the problem comes in because the warming and the rising of the sea levels is threatening our way of life and the choices that we made based upon the climate at another point in time. It's inconvenient for us because rising sea levels will uh, ultimately impact or obliterate sea seaside communities. 
without those communities, we've seen this in the past in the geologic record, uh, we can look at the geologic map, we can look at the ice core. So I've talked so much about climate change. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now. I just wanted you to know, if you're new to this and you're seeing this video for the first time, I'm not a climate denier. Climate's important. Climate is definitely changing. And rather than trying to fight against the climate change, we would do well to learn to adapt to the climate change that is part of the natural rhythms of the planet that we live on. So what I'd like to do, I'm going to bring up this chart. Let me share with you the 10 zones that we need to, to keep intact for life as we know it, the three that we have breached already and where we are in the other zones. And then I'll come back to you uh, on a full screen and let's talk about some of the solutions that are available to us today. So the image that you're seeing on your screen right now is taken from a paper that was published by Rockstrom's group. He is working with the, as I mentioned, with the Stockholm Resilience Center. This is he and his team that have put together this report and others. These are very well-known studies uh, in the scientific community. They're not being shared in the mainstream because they don't fit the mainstream narrative. But that's, uh, that's why I want you to see this. I also want to be clear that this is based upon peer-reviewed science. This isn't my opinion. This isn't my theory, if, if you're going to write to me about my opinions and my theories. I support this work, and I believe in it, and I think it's true, and I think it's accurate, uh, and I think it's complete. It gives us a, a much more complete image of what we're actually dealing with. So this paper was published in the very prestigious journal Nature, uh, volume 461, the year that he published initially was 2009. Now, he has continued to do work since and has published since that time. Uh, so this, these ideas have been around for a while, and I wanted you to see this. So what are we looking at here? This is uh, a, a diagram to illustrate from a, uh, in terms of proportions, first, what the 10 parameters are that must be held in place, and secondly, where we are in those parameters. So when we begin, let's just start with the uh, lower left-hand corner. When you see that big, bright red uh, triangle, it's like a triangle there, a slice of a, a pie, triangular-shaped slice of a pie, uh, that is the parameter of biodiversity. So I'm just going to go around and mention these, and we'll come back and look at each of them individually. So biodiversity is, is the first parameter. The second is atmospheric aerosol loading. The third is the chemical pollution in the planet. The fourth is climate change. The fifth is the acidification of the oceans. The sixth is stress, stratospheric ozone depletion. The, 17, uh, the seventh is nitrate cycle. And right next to it is the phosphorus cycle. These are closely related, uh, but the nitrous, uh, nitrogen cycle. Is, uh, is the one that is in red, the, the phosphorus cycle, uh, global uh, fresh water use. And the last one, uh, number 10, is a change in land use. So I wanted to just quickly identify what the parameters are. Let's go back and see what they're saying. And obviously the, the big one here, biodiversity. We not only have exceeded the limits, we are off the chart, literally, there's no room left on the chart to show how far we have exceeded the limits in the loss of biodiversity on our planet. Now, in biological circles, this is talked about frequently. You don't hear much about it in mainstream. It certainly has not been politicized. Uh, it is tremendously overlooked. What's happening with biodiversity? 
scientists don't know for sure how many species of life there are on Earth today. One of the reasons is because there are species that have, have are still being discovered. Every year we are discovering new species of Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Hurt. And, well, there's no shortage of strange things going on in the world today. But you know what? This story may just take the cake. Best-selling author Nomi Prinz has been touring the country. In recent weeks, you may have seen her. She's appeared on Fox. <laughs> I haven't heard Nomi Prinz's name for a long time. Piece of life. Many of them are in the oceans. Many of them are microscopic or very small. So not all of them all, all are like uh, elephants and, you know, tigers and, and things like that. They're very small. However, they're very significant because when it comes to what is called the, uh, the feeding chain, I know you all have heard of this. In the ocean, the, uh, the microscopic life becomes the foundation for the next uh, size of life to feed upon, for the next size of life to feed upon, for the next... And by the time you get to the familiar things like whales and fish and, uh, you know, crustaceans and things like that, you're already several steps up on the, the ladder of where these things are. The problem is that the, the loss of biodiversity in the oceans begins typically at those very low levels. And if those low levels are not there, there's nothing for the higher levels to feed upon. And there's a ripple effect. It's a cascade effect of uh, of the loss of the biodiversity. So scientists estimate that we may have uh, as many as 100 million species uh, of life on the planet today and that we're losing them at a rate of approximately 10% per year, 10% per year, per year. And some of those forms of life, they're disappearing before they're ever identified and documented. We may never know, or we might find them in a fossil record, you know, down, down the road. We never know what they are. So so what does that mean? That would be if if we have a, a hundred million species and we're losing them uh, at the rate that is projected right now. We're talking about the loss of around ten thousand species per year. And even if those numbers aren't right on a hundred percent, in terms of magnitude, you get the idea. It's not like we're losing ten or twenty or you know a hundred species a year. We're talking about thousands of species a year that are necessary to balance the ecosystems. Uh, and to, to balance the environment, including the, the atmosphere in the environment, because those living creatures are interacting with the atmosphere in, uh, in very significant ways. So we're off the charts on biodiversity. That's the first one. The atmospheric aerosol loading, we can't really talk about that so much because it has not been quantified. It is a problem. We know that it's a problem. We know that it has to be maintained. A certain level of aerosols, and a certain quality of aerosol must be uh, in the atmosphere, and there are toxic aerosols that we don't want in the atmosphere. Uh, the next one, chemical pollution. We know that is a problem as well. And also, it is not quite quantified in the way that can be put on this chart. We know it's a problem because of toxic waste, toxic dumping from industry and multiple countries that are doing this, uh, and some of those countries have refused to sign the treaties and the pacts that uh, that are agreed upon to to work down and minimize the the chemical pollution that we're seeing. Climate change, right there in the top of your screen. It certainly is a factor, and you can see, but compared 
to some of the other things, it's not nearly the factor. And it doesn't warrant nearly the concern because it doesn't have nearly the impact that some of these other things have. Now, climate change, as, as I mentioned, uh, we have been in the warming cycle. And according to the charts from the ice cores, we should be in the warming cycle. I would be concerned if we were not. If we weren't warming right now and we were at that point in, in the cycle, I would say, what's wrong? Why aren't we warming? The warming that we're seeing is not the warmest uh, compared to what we've seen in the past. And even with the addition of the, the CO2 from industry, we're still not at the highest levels of CO2 that we've ever seen. Do we want to reel it back? Absolutely. Do we have the technology to do it? We do. And that technology is not being used. I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. But I also want to reiterate, if you're seeing this conversation for the first time, you didn't see the other videos, CO2 is a, a vital, necessary part of our ecosystem. There have been times in Earth's geologic history when the CO2 was lacking and, and the world dies. Plants die because the plants are breathing. That The forests die because they are breathing that CO2. We need a minimum threshold of 180 parts per million of CO2 or we're in trouble. Now, we're right now we're around four, you know, well over that 400 parts per million uh, threshold. And it is higher than what we've seen in the industrialized era. And the industry is, is contributing to that. We need to stop burning fossil fuels. Absolutely. And we've had the technology to do that for 70 years. If the powers that be were really serious about this issue, I personally would think, is my opinion, I would think they would pull those technologies out of the closet and implement them. The problem is economics. It is less economic to implement technologies that do not emit greenhouse gases than to stay with the greenhouse gas emitting technologies. So climate change, I just want to put this into perspective for you because the narrative that is being shared in the mainstream, the anger that it creates, the division in our families, the division in our communities and society, uh, and the politics that are yielded from that misinformation uh, are all part of our lives today, and we all see it. We've got a midterm election coming up. We're going to see it big time. I want you to have a perspective of where this issue fits, and you're seeing that now. The acidification of the oceans is a problem, and they're showing it a lower problem here, but it is also linked to uh, to the nitrogen cycle because Usually bras fit small chested women like this. Gapping, you guys, look at how much space that is. This because it is through fertilizers, that uh, chemical fertilizers that are being used to, uh, to maintain the, the kinds of crops that are being grown in the way they are being grown that is contributing to this. So the fertilizers, they don't stay in the field with the crop. The obviously uh, rainwater uh, takes those chemical residues, it percolates down into groundwater or through surface water, it can run off into lakes and streams, oceans, rivers, uh, and, and it is a problem. We have to maintain that balance. Uh, stratospheric uh, ozone depletion. Ozone, uh, for some people, is a bad word. 
I remember back in the 1970s, there was what was called the ozone hole over the South Pole that was uh, accumulating from the use of another kind of ozone, the byproduct of uh, of industry and commercial applications. You know, every back in the 70s, everything you got in a can was driven by ozone. Everything from hairspray to bug spray to, uh, you know, I've been a musician all my life. My uh, my guitar polish was was in a, a can that was driven by ozone. You had to shake it up and spray that polish on your guitar. Everything was. Mm. We recognized that. We stopped using it. And to a large extent, that ozone hole has healed because Earth is a living biodynamic system capable of healing itself. So uh, the stratospheric ozone depletion is the problem. There is ozone that we need to protect us from uh, CO2, and the depletion uh, in certain areas due to industry has been a problem. The, the next red cone that you're seeing here, the next red slice of, of the pie, is the, uh, the nitrogen cycle. And as I mentioned, this is largely, not exclusively, but largely the result of uh, pesticides and fertilizers, uh, the way that they're made, the way that they're used to support the kinds of crops that we are growing. There are other ways to grow food and other ways to grow food that don't require all of the chemical support. We'll talk about that in just a few moments, but that's what, what you're seeing here. Uh, it's very closely linked also to the uh, the phosphorus cycle, which is, is a problem. It's less of a problem right now. Global fresh water use. I think you know that water, fresh water, is becoming a commodity, a rare commodity. In some parts of the world, uh, the amount of fresh water that is available to some populations uh, is dwindling very quickly. And the quality of water that is available in Europe and North America, among other places, has been polluted. Uh, the, the groundwater, when they drill down into the aquifers, some of these aquifers have been polluted through uh, industry. And once they're polluted, they're gone forever. It's very, very difficult to clean an entire aquifer from, um, from the, the pollution that you find. Now, let me share with you a little bit why. This is, as a geologist, this is fascinating to me. Because when we talk about an aquifer of water in the ground, it's not like you drill down to a, a pool or a puddle of water. You drill into the earth, into porous places in the earth. So porosity is, is very key. And what that means is that between the grains of sand, for example, in, in the sandstones, there is a space in between the grains of sand. Not only is there a space, but between uh, the grains of sand here and grains of sand over here, the space is connected. There is a continuity that allows that water to migrate. So it's not enough just to have a space. You've got to have a space that's connected to another space that's connected to another space. And that's all about the, uh, the, the continuity of, of the flow uh, and the, the porosity of, of the material that it's in. What is happening in large cities, and uh, among these large cities out west in the United States, you see big cities in Arizona and California having water problems right now. And when they need more water, they drill into these aquifers. If they pull the water out too fast, this is the key. If they pull that water out too fast because the population is so big and they, they need more water to you know, for all the homes and all the golf courses and all the swimming pools that you can see when you fly over places in Arizona and California, for example. 
all, and they pull the water out too fast. What happened? They'll get the water. But here's what happens. Those pore spaces, the water, it's called hydrostatic pressure. The pressure of the water is what keeps those particles separate enough so the water can flow, so it can migrate. If you pull the water out too fast, the particles collapse, and there no longer is communication from one space to another. So now the water, it still may be there, but the water cannot be pulled out because it no longer communicates. It no longer flows. It can no longer migrate through that sandstone, for example. So this is one of the keys. It's not enough to have the water. You've got to have the water, and, and when you pull the water out, the water has to come out at a rate that allows nature to recharge the aquifer for new water to trickle down into that aquifer through rain and snow melt uh, before you pull out more water. Now, I live in uh, the rural, rural areas of northern New Mexico, the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, are to my east, and I live in a valley with an aquifer. It's a 2,000-foot-thick aquifer, a potential aquifer. It doesn't mean it has 2,000 feet of water. But what the, the hydrologists have found is that it takes about five years for the water from the time we get a snowstorm up on the tops, the, the peaks of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, that water is going to be there for the season. When the spring comes, it's going to begin to, to melt. Uh, as it seeps down and trickles and percolates down through the rock, it will take about five years for that water to show up in my valley. So, and when it does, it's really good clean water. And this is, this is the case for a lot of aquifers. It may not always take five years. Different, uh, aquifers are recharged at different rates. It depends on where, how far away the snow and, and the rain are occurring. But that, just to give you a, Do you want to know the problem with massage therapy being your side hustle? You can't grow it. Because even though you're passionate about massage... Sorry about that. Just to give you an idea. So it's not like if, if you get a good rainy season, you say, okay, the aquifer's filled because it takes time for that water to percolate down. And, and when it does, all the uh, impurities... Are, are pulled out through the minerals that it flows through. So when it gets down into the ground, it's really clean water. You've got clean water. Uh, if you have access to it, you've got clean, clean drinking water. So this is the problem. Uh, fresh water use. There are the, the drought that is occurring in much of the world because of where Earth is in its climate cycles. Earth's are her climate cycles. Earth goes through climate cycles, and we are in a place... In the climate cycles right now, where drought is happening, certainly through uh, the western states, the United States, I think we're in the seventh year of a drought right now. We can get some good rain. It's not going to fix the drought. The lakes are low. Groundwater is still low. So I just wanted to, to say those things. It is really important. It's becoming a big issue. It's becoming a political issue. Uh, wars are the potential for wars over water is on the horizon unless we find a way to cooperate and work work through this together. And that's why this is important. And the last is changes in land use. We all know that land use, uh, this is important because when you go into a city that used to be a rural community and all of a sudden you start putting in big office buildings and big parking lots and you pave over those parking lots, when the, the rainfall or the snow occurs, 
Mm. That water can no longer communicate with the earth because mm. it's asphalt. So all that water is going to run someplace else, and there are huge expanses mm. where the, the moisture can no longer communicate with the earth. Mm. Uh, and it is being concentrated in some places and depleted in other places. Uh, the land use, the way it is being used for uh, a lot of agricultural land, is being lost to commercial development. And we see that here in, in the rural areas. So I was born in rural Missouri, northern Missouri. You see the same thing happening. Uh, it's common. We're seeing this a lot. Uh, actually, I'll just be very honest about what we're seeing. We, America, I'm, and I'm speaking to Americans, and I think it's a bigger problem in America probably than it is in Europe right now because America is younger than Europe. So in America... A lot of families have had land in their families, farms, or at least, you know, some kind of acreage for a long time. It was prized. It was appreciated. It was uh, an asset to be passed from one generation to the next. Well, over the last uh, generation or two, the the attractiveness uh, of, of having land has, has lessened. The value of having that land. A lot of young people, unless they were, you know, raised in a rural family and those values were instilled within them, unless those values were instilled in an early age, they may not see the value of having land. And I'm not, there are always exceptions. I'm not saying it's everyone. But, uh, and I'm saying that this is happening to a greater degree and I'm seeing it in my own communities here. So what happens, the land that has been in families for generations, sometimes three, 300 years, 400 years. As the elders uh, die and they leave that land to the younger people because the younger people have, have not been privy to the, the value of the ability to grow your own food and the value to have that land. When that land, when they inherit that land, uh, they don't see the value and they'd rather have the money that the land is worth. So they'll sell that land out of the family. And we're seeing this happen a lot. They'll break up the acreage. They'll sell that land. They say, well, you know, I'd rather have the money than, than have some land in the middle of nowhere that, you know, nobody's using. So what's happening is that land is being sold. And rather than being sold and maintained as agricultural land, it's being sold and developed as commercial property. So we're losing farmland, the bottom line. That was a long way. Uh, I wanted to understand how it's happening. But that was a long way to get to the, the statement that we're losing uh, agricultural land. And this is all speaks to the change in land use. All right. These are the 10 parameters that are called the, the safe operating space for humanity, safe operating space for planet Earth. What Rockstrom says is it's not about just one of these. Right now, the focus is on climate change. It's not about just one of these. All of these parameters must be honored, must be held in place, and where they've exceeded the boundaries and, and we're in the danger zone, we have the ability to reel that in. We have the ability to mitigate the damage and begin the repair and the healing if we recognize that it's a problem. And to do that takes leadership. And when I say leadership, I'm not talking about just a president of a country. It's not just about America or Europe or Australia or Canada. It is the leadership in our communities, the leadership in our families <clears throat> that recognizes that we are part of a, of a whole, part of a greater system, and that we must honor this system 
uh, and the integrity of this system holistically. We're, we're not talking about just one thing. We're talking about honoring all of these. It's like the human body. You know, in the human body, we, it's important to maintain all of the systems. We got to keep all the systems functioning. So, you know, if you have a problem with the immune system, you don't put all of your energy in the immune system because you have other systems, cardiovascular system, respiratory system that, that have to be maintained as well. We're talking about the cardiovascular and the respiratory systems of the planet when we talk about freshwater use and biodiversity and, and all of those kinds of things. So, I, you know, I was going to switch back to the bigger screen. I'm not. I'm just going to go ahead. This took longer than I thought. I want to honor your time. So what I want to say to you is this. I wanted to honor the question uh, because Tegan asked uh, what we say to people that feel the greatest challenge is overpopulation. I believe that the greatest challenge we can honestly say is anything that threatens these 10 boundaries. If overpopulation threatens those 10 boundaries, it could be a factor. This is where we open the door to a bigger conversation that's delicate. Uh, there's a lot of emotion underlying the conversation. And, uh, and it's hard to have this conversation sometimes because, because there is an intentional effort to create a narrative in the mainstream to drive people to think in a certain way and to make certain choices that are based upon greed. And this is the thing, greed. When we begin looking at these parameters, you know, if, if we are only putting our energy into climate change, I, I think many of you probably remember a little game called Whack-A-Mole where you've got this little mole that pops up in, in a, a grid in a number of different ways, and you have a hammer. You see these at carnivals all the time. And, you know, you hit the mole here, and, yeah, it takes care of the mole there, but then he pops up over here, and you hit him there, and he pops up over there. This chart it works precisely the same way. We, we put all of our energy into climate, and we're trying to, to fix climate, which isn't broken. Um, what we're trying to do is force the climate into uh, a place where we are comfortable and we can live the way that we choose to live. That's the truth of what's happening. Because Earth's climate is a dynamic system. It's always changing. It's not static. And we've been led to believe, and the mainstream has indoctrinated many of our young people into believing that climate is a static parameter. And when it changes, something is wrong. Parsley Health changed my life by giving me more hope in the entire medical system. For like a year and a half, I was fatigued. Something is wrong, something is broken. When in truth, much of our climate is driven by Earth's location and space that changes over time. The tilt, the angle, and the wobble, specifically what's called the obliquity, as Earth travels around the sun, it's not a circular orbit. It's an elliptical orbit. Sometimes we're closer to the sun on the ellipse, and if you're on the end of the ellipse, you're further away. We know this, and every 5,000 years we go through these climate changes. It has changed populations. It has led to uh, the migrations of some of the great civilizations on our planet. So all this is known by the real scientists, the pop scientists, and the ones that are featured on network network uh, in cable news. I don't know them, and I don't know if they know this, but what I'm saying to you is that what I'm saying to you is known. 
So it's not a secret. It's just not popular uh, to, to have these conversations. If we were honest with ourselves and we wanted to, to fix all of these, I don't think it's so much about population. And that is part of the narrative that's being driven is that there are too many people on the planet and we need to depopulate. That is a very popular narrative in some circles right now, and it's frightening. It's frightening. I personally believe that we have the ability to raise the standard of living for every human on the earth today in a way that is sustainable and clean and honest and fair rather than raising the standard of a few at the expense of the many who are suffering. That's what's happening right now. The way that you do that is you begin to recognize the holistic nature of the planet we live on. We've got to honor these boundaries and others. And when you do that, that thinking is reflected in the technology that you use to create your energy. It is reflected in the way that you grow your food. It is reflected in the way you build your society. Localized living addresses much of what we're talking about right here, rather than centralized living. Uh, there is a push for even greater globalization, and the globalization is counter to what the, the, the way, the lifestyle that will address these problems. So we're being encouraged to globalize even more when, in fact, localized living is it's the healthiest way. So when I'm, I'm talking about localized energy, draw up on the energy sources that are available to you and your community. One size does not fit all. Solar works some places. It doesn't work in others. Don't force it. There are other things that do work. I'm talking about, uh, talking about localized agriculture so that you have essentially farm to table and you can do this year round. And the vertical gardens that are now being, uh, they've been around for a long time, but the technology of vertical gardens has grown uh, and, and advanced so quickly. It's now possible to have vertical gardens growing in indoor spaces that are not vulnerable to the climate the way we've been in the past without using pesticides and without using fertilizers that can feed entire communities and don't destroy the land to do that and don't have the, the chemical runoffs. Energy, we have talked about this extensively. I, I did a, a series, uh, Missing Links, with the Gaia television program. Excerpts of that are on this YouTube channel. Just a few weeks ago, we had a very controversial uh, YouTube video that I made talking uh, about alternatives to the baseload energy that we have today. Baseload energy is the, the vital, sustainable, for sure energy that is necessary for civilization. You can supplement baseload energy with renewables. You can supplement with windmills. You can supplement with solar. Uh, and I shared with you why the solar and the windmill industry are not clean industries. They are energy intensive, fossil fuel intensive to build those things. They're based upon rare earth elements uh, that are concentrated in a few pockets, primarily in nations that are not the friendliest to other nations that have a monopoly on those. They're toxic uh, to mine. They are toxic at the end of their life cycle. When you throw those solar panels into a landfill and they break up and break down, those toxic chemicals leach down into the landfill, into the, the, the groundwater. All of that is in the, the videos that you'll see on this channel. We have other sources of baseload energy. I mentioned the mineral thorium. Thorium is not the answer to all answers. Thorium is a stepping stone. 
It is uh, a path that is available right now because it is already a proven technology that was used to create energy in from 1960s to 1980s, uh, and were called molten salt reactors, MSR molten salt reactors. So if you Google this, or if you go to Wiki, uh, which is not the best source of information because Wiki is biased uh, through the same bias that's driving much of the media today, you will see through Wiki and other places, Wikipedia, uh, that these are controversial, that they're not proven, that they're experimental. Now, there are new molten salt reactors that are evolving for, uh, into a new generation of reactors that are experimental, but the, the principle itself is not. And we had functioning molten salt reactors, again, through the 60s and the 80s. We had them, China, uh, the U.S., India had them. I think India's may still be running. I'm not sure. So the point is that using thorium as a base load energy source, zero greenhouse gases it produces. So right there, you've eliminated greenhouse gases. If you believe that's a problem, you've eliminated that. They... These reactors cannot be, they can't melt down like Fukushima because they work on a completely different principle. And actually, uh, when they begin to warm, they will stop working because the molten salt, the way the molten salt containers are designed. So they can't melt down. The molten salt reactors cannot produce byproducts. It can be weaponized, so you're not contributing to war. The thorium is uh, an element that is abundant in the Earth's crust. Uh, on almost well, it's on every continent, almost in every nation. Maybe not in every single nation, but it is definitely in every continent. It's inexpensive, uh, and it is abundant. And the waste can be recycled into the new fuel cycle. So it's not perfect. Ultimately, we will be using vacuum energy from what we think in the past, what we thought was empty space. That technology is available uh, in some. Uh, some technological programs, it's not commercially available on the levels that we're looking at now. I think we'll probably see it within our lifetime. The point is, if we're looking at Earth's safe zone, if we want to maintain this and if we're serious about it, we already have everything we need to honor these parameters. We don't need to depopulate the planet. We don't need to uh, <laughs> to deplete the small reserves of rare earth minerals that we have uh, already for a, a, a sustainable base load energy that works in any temperature, hot or cold. It works if there's sun, if there's no sun, wind, no wind. Uh, it can be 50, 60 degrees below zero. It can be 150 uh, above zero, and these reactors are going to pump out continuous power. Uh, economically, we need to decentralize, decentralize the economies that we have today. This is where the problems are. All of the, the money that is used in the developed world is linked to governments. And that is the problem. Because when your money, which is a reflection of an exchange of your life energy that you exerted in a task, you rewarded with money, and that money is linked to a government. And as long as that money is linked to a government, uh, it can be manipulated. Interest rates can be raised or lowered. It can be valued. It can be devalued. And all of that is happening to the major currencies of the world today. And that causes suffering to the people that can least afford those kinds of changes because they have no buffer. They, many of them don't even.
Welcome, dear one. I've been eagerly awaiting your arrival. You see, the divine... ...them don't even have bank accounts. They are living paycheck to paycheck. Those are brothers and sisters that are suffering. We have the technology now, and I've talked about this briefly, through blockchain technology to decentralize our finance to own our own money, to interact directly, not have it linked to a government. And I want to tell you why I'm so passionate about this, because the money I have in my bank and the money you have in your banks, that money, it's called fractionalized banking. The money that we put in, a fraction of it remains in the bank. The rest of it is lent out at interest, whatever the interest rates are. That money is being used to finance war. It's being used to finance research projects that I know that you would never believe in. If, if you knew about them, you would never support them. And uh, the ones that I know about, I, I don't like knowing that my money is supporting these things. So, and I'm not saying blockchain is the only way to go. And I mean, I'm uh, Bitcoin. Some of you all know, may read that into what I'm saying. It's a possibility. Uh, but it will, I don't think it's a currency. We need something that holds value, and I did a video on this recently, uh, that is not linked to a government, that is peer-to-peer, you-to-me, it's between us, uh, and that we have the ability that is transparent and that is secure, and blockchain technology uh, allows for all of that right now. So, all of this to say, if we wanted to honor these 10 parameters, here's what's happening. Right now, the attempt is being made to try to fix one or another living the same way that we've always lived, just trying to fix what's happening there. If we if we go to an electric nation, all electric cars, it sounds so beautiful, so clean, and then you ask yourself, where does that electricity come from? Because right now, we do not have the capacity to create that electricity. We don't have the grid to carry that electricity. We don't have the way to store that electricity. Uh, and the electricity, much of it is coming from fossil fuels because the other technologies have not advanced to the point where we can replace those fossil fuels. So if we're going to build an electric infrastructure and we think the electricity is going to come from fossil fuels, then we've defeated the purpose or, and this is, this is where the politics comes in. And, you know, we're a community. We can talk about this. Policies and politics are in place right now to lead people to believe that uh, their industries can be cleaner and greener through carbon credit offset, carbon offset credits, for example. So maybe you can't meet the greenhouse standards, the, the non-CO2 standards. So you say, okay, I'm not going to be able to, to reduce my CO2 footprint, but I'm going to pay a price to do that. Well, okay, so you pay a price. The CO2 is still there. What has happened in past uh, in the past is that the United States and other uh, Western nations, uh, modern nations, have offloaded our labor, the people that make these products, and the factories to other parts of the world that uh, do not adhere and are not bound to the agreements to reduce greenhouse gases. So if we're really concerned about it, Sure, we can offload all of our manufacturing to another country where the labor is inexpensive and they're burning coal to create the windmills, for example, or they're burning coal to create the copper, all of the copper 
that is needed in these electric cars. You can do that, but you got to be honest with yourself. Are you really, are you really honestly addressing the problem or are you just shifting it from one place to another? So I'm, uh, I'm just being honest about, let me ask this. How can we solve the problems if we're not honest about the problems? How can we solve the problems if we're not honest about the problems? And I want to be honest with you because you, my community, are asking me the questions and you want me to be honest. I'm not a political person, but I recognize that greed is, is driving us into a way of thinking and a way of living because they've hijacked technology and media to inundate and indoctrinate young people into a way of thinking that supports these ideas. And it's, it's effective because the TV commercials, man, I gotta tell you, even I'm drawn. They're sexy. They are, uh, the special effects. They are uh, mesmerizing. I mean, who wouldn't want some of these technologies? And then you ask yourself, where's electricity come from? Where do the rare earth minerals come from? What about the eight and 12 year olds with no protective clothing, barefoot, standing knee deep in the water in the mines in Africa? with their hands digging in the mud to find a few chunks of these rare earth minerals, to give them to the elders that are going to sell them to another country to refine them, to put them into the chips that we're using so we can feel good about having green technology. That is the reality of what we're looking at, and it doesn't have to be that way. We have everything we need to create Abundant energy, zero greenhouse gases, inexpensively and equitably so that everyone has it and no nation can hoard it. We have everything that we need to create a financial system based upon an economic system, two different things, uh, that is no longer centralized and controlled and regulated and manipulated to hurt people the way that money is being weaponized today. And you all see that happening in your world today. And we have the ways to grow the food in a way that keeps it local and fresh, doesn't have a huge carbon footprint. Maybe I, maybe I don't get blueberries in the middle of December that come to me from South America, because that's what happens right now. I get blueberries year-round in my local market, and then I look and say, man, where did these come from? Because they're out of season. Well, they came from below the equator where they're in season. And, you know, they're, of course we all can appreciate those blueberries, and I love supporting my brothers and sisters in agriculture in South America. But there are other ways to do it without the huge carbon footprint of the jet that has to bring those blueberries all the way to my market and the trucks that bring it, you know, from the the airports or wherever it comes from. Um, So you see where I'm going with this. We have everything we need. If you actually go into any bookstore in Israel and ask for the New Testament in Hebrew, they're going to look at you as if you... (laughs) everything we need to make the changes we need to honor these 10 parameters it requires a shift in thinking and to have that shift in thinking we've got to be honest with ourselves and one another all of these topics are coming up in the united states in a midterm election the data will be hijacked it'll be politicized and a narrative will be created and when that happens i want you to think about this conversation and not be angry This, this isn't about angry just to be honest with yourself and informed and to do your best to inform maybe your family, your community, and to make choices in your life that help us to live in a way that makes sense, to live locally, 
to live responsibly, and it doesn't mean you have to live primitively. I'm not saying that at all. I don't want to live primitively. I, I don't think we have to. We've reached a point in our civilization where we have everything we need to raise the standard of living for every man, woman, and child in a clean, sustainable way without depleting the vital resources that we have right now if we are to implement the technologies that already exist in a fair and honest way. That's where we are right now, and that's how I'm going to answer the question that came from Tegan. Population is important. It's all about how you think of that population in relationship to what you know exists and what's possible in the world today. So we covered a lot of ground and um, went a little bit longer than I typically do, uh, but I felt like it was important to really flesh these things out rather than just throw this chart up and say, here's where we are and uh, have a nice day. <laughs> so these are my opinions. They're only my opinions. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share my opinions with you. And as always, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I will look through the comments that come in from this uh, publication of, of this video. And when I can and when it makes sense, I will answer those in a way that I'm doing right now. All right. Thank you all so much. Have a beautiful, beautiful rest of the day. And I look forward to our next. <laughs> okay, everybody. We got time for one more. Thank you. Thank you, Greg Braden. That was exactly what. The doctor ordered. Okay, the geometry of consciousness. What esoteric secrets did Michelangelo encode within his fresco on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel within Vatican City in Rome, Italy? I've actually seen, I've been in there, I've seen it. The energy in the Sistine Chapel it is a vortex, a portal. That's why they built that there. But, mm -hmm. you know, the Vatican uses it for darkness. Yes, we know. Yeah. Uh, we have a way to turn that upside down, inside out, and send it up. Yes. So we shall listen to this. Exploring the missing links between the mysteries of music and mathematics, polymath, and entrepreneur Robert Edward Grant illuminates, quote, the universal language of consciousness in relationship, in relation to philosophers and philomaths throughout the ages. Analyzing works from ancient Greeks like Plato to modern unsolved math problems, such as the, the Riemann, the Riemann, Hypothesis, R-I-E-M-A-N-N, -N, hypothesis. Grant exposes the inherent musical interview, intervals of sacred geometry. So here we go. This is 26 minutes. Hmm.
what is philosophy? Well, if we break it down, it's actually two words. Philo, or philo, and Sophia. Philo just simply means lover, and Sophia means wisdom. Philo, Sophia, lover of wisdom. But philosophy was never intended to be something that was simply the study of rhetoric or of what other philosophers said and thought. Maybe that was an element of it. But in the ancient sense, philosophy was irrevocably tied to the concept of polymathy. A polymath, also in the ancient sense, poly simply means many, and math meant learning. Philosophy was not specifically an area of study. It was something that came as a result of studying many different things. And those things would be a mix of what is today referred to as the quadrivium. The quadrivium is referring to music, geometry, astronomy, and arithmetic. Today, we teach children that math is entirely separate from music, when actually it's not. We also teach our young people that art has nothing to do with science, when actually that is false. Mm -hmm. The way we're teaching our children in the world today is separating them out from their own things that they would like to pursue in their lives. I was a musician who had to give up music when I decided to become a responsible contributor to society. <laughs> But if I could still be able to practice music and also recognize that it is the foundational form of geometry that informs all science and all matter and all energy in the entire universe, isn't that something that's important to know? We often think of our brain some sort of a hard drive for information. But what if we looked at this differently? What if we recognize that the brain is really just a radio receiver? And that in order for us to tune the receiver, our emotional state has a huge impact on that. In this analogy, we could say that the brain is a radio and the heart is the tuning dial. If we take this analogy even further, then maybe some certain things we need to do to be able to optimize our radio receivers and their tuning would actually benefit us. If we were a runner and we only exercised one half of our body, that would really cause a problem for having the balance required to be a very successful runner. The mental athlete and philosopher knows that they must have a balance of understanding to tune their minds and their brains to their optimal performance to receive universal consciousness. If we look through time, we'll notice that the people that seem to discover the most mathematics and physics throughout history, from Pythagoras and Plato to Socrates, in concepts not only relational to geometric forms like the platonic solids or musical ratios and intervals like Pythagoras discovered, but all the way up into including discrete mathematics as well as physics. 
Isaac Newton discovered gravity. But Isaac Newton was also a musician. A lot of people don't know that he was a deep alchemist. In fact, 80% of his works were all centered around concepts of alchemy and astrology. Isaac Newton believed that he was finding the signature of the creator. He was a deeply spiritual man. And he realized that everything was connected. Just like Johannes Kepler, who gave us the Kepler's laws of motion. He also was looking for this architect of the universe. Understanding as well the musical concepts in what he termed the harmony of the spheres. If we go to René Descartes, the famous philosopher who references, I think, therefore I am. Also a mathematician. He's the person who gave us the Cartesian plane in mathematics. As we go through history, we start to realize that even mathematicians like Leonard Euler, Euler was an innovator not only in math, but across music, as was Bernard Riemann of the famed Riemann hypothesis, still an open problem in mathematics yet to be fully proven. He's also famous for neo-Riemannian music theory. It's interesting, isn't it? Because today we've broken up all of these different disciplines into their individual categories and never the twain shall meet. Thus turning off our ability to receive from the universe. Ramanujan was a famous mathematician who was deeply spiritual also. He was never trained directly in mathematics. Yet Cambridge University, the same university from which we had Isaac Newton, declared Ramanujan one of the top mathematicians of all time. Yet Ramanujan claims that his discoveries mathematically were received from a great universal source. I fundamentally believe that as well. As one who has tapped into this higher consciousness from time to time, what I experience is actually that they all come out as equally balanced across science and art. When I'm drawing geometry, I'm not trying to draw an artistic form. Most of the time in my efforts, I'm actually trying to discover and understand a principle of the universe. And while I'm trying to depict it in a way that my mind can synthesize, it comes out in, in an artistic way. I believe that the future of humanity is to go deeply into this next stage of our evolution, to realize that our brains are not actually simply hard drives and storage units of information, but rather radio receivers with which to receive and understand the universal language of consciousness. I've said before, I don't really consider myself much of a mathematician because I don't want to be pigeonholed into my way of thinking. The old adage applies. If you're a hammer, then everything starts to look like a nail. What I noticed is that for me to get deeper into understanding of mathematics, often it is through the doorway and portal of music 
or art or philosophy that I'm able to tap into a higher understanding of the underlying math and language behind the concepts I'm trying to understand further. We've all seen the very famous Sistine Chapel in the fresco in the ceiling. And I remember going there for the very first time and just being awestruck at the beauty of Michelangelo's artwork on that Sistine Chapel ceiling. We've all seen also Adam outreaching to God in this representation. But I remember the first time I went there, I started to ask myself the question, what is it that's around God in the painting? Could it possibly be the cross-section of a human brain? And as you get deeper into that analysis, you'll notice that the cerebellum is prominently displayed on the right side. You can also see all of the different aspects of the prefrontal cortex, the temporal lobe, all of it being displayed simply in this artistic form that he left on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Even God the Father in this famous iconic image has his legs shaped in a mirrored imagery of Adam's right leg. Just as the fingers outreaching to each other are mirror images of the same concept. What's Michelangelo trying to tell us? Is he trying to tell us something about the nature of the universe and the U inverse? <laughs> we also notice that God the Father's head is in the prefrontal cortex where the brain has its highest degree of higher order thought and creativity. But what if the only means to tap into this and move beyond this reptilian brain of fight or flight is to balance the muscle? The mental athlete will know that he or she must be balanced above all else. And that balance can only be achieved intellectually by having an understanding of music and its equal mirrored opposite across the corpus callosum, mathematics. Math and music are simply representations of two opposite sides of our brain. But that's also true as well for visual art which we have near our occipital lobe at the back of the brain. And its mirrored opposite representation, in this context, is the natural sciences. So we can now see the brain as a different kind of receiver that ultimately is intended to ignite and activate the center right amid the corpus callosum, the connective tissue that allows us to both think and feel simultaneously. As we can balance our brain muscle through our study of the quadrivium, then we can actually activate the pineal and pituitary glands. And when we do so, it forms a Merkaba. That Merkaba allows us to access different fields of awareness that are above and beyond our third and fourth dimensional planes of understanding. The philosophers knew this. And yet, it was something that could be very dangerous during their lifetimes. 
Because as they got to this point of higher knowledge and ascension, their lives were at risk. And this has been seen over and over and over again throughout history. The good news for us today is we're now living in a different time. The earth is intended now through this aeon, this portion of our procession of equinox, and this age of Aquarius is intended for us to be able to seek and not only seek, but also experience this level of higher awareness. That what the philosophers experienced and all the myriad discoveries that they had in their renaissances throughout time will now be coming again to this earth. Carl Jung was a very famous psychologist and psychiatrist. Carl had been a protege of Sigmund Freud, but he realized the limitations of Sigmund Freud's philosophical perspective on psychiatry. And he noticed that most of the concepts of Freud were rooted in these very arcane approaches and and belief that mankind was literally chained to the lower segments of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But Carl Jung believed a different future for humanity as a philosophical, wisdom-seeking alchemist. Carl Jung noted that there was a divine future for humanity. He called this process individuation in a book that he wrote called Aeon. This individuation process is something that is achieved through balanced thought and study resulting in philosophy. What Carl Jung believed is that as we ascend to higher knowledge through learning to balance our brain centers across the quadrivium, that we will be able to experience new higher dimensional experiences, provided, however, that we learn how to integrate our shadows. If we live in a you inverse, every experience you have is your responsibility. My experiences are my responsibility. Fear could be real from the perspective of danger. Danger is real, but fear actually is a choice. How we interact and deal with the deck of cards that we are dealt on a day-to-day basis is what defines our reality, not the deck of cards that we're given. Every moment that we experience can either be the best or the worst. The choice is up to us. How we decide to perceive the world defines our ultimate experience with it. And Carl Jung understood this. And he taught this in the concepts of shadow integration. Whatever we're judging in other people is actually what we do and simply don't want to acknowledge in our conscious minds. And as we understand this, we start to see the world around us in a very different way. This is the mirror of consciousness. In order to access higher planes and dimensions, we have to learn to transcend these notions of duality. 
even down to the very basic concepts of how we perceive light and dark. The word guru comes from two Sanskrit terms, gu and ru, which means light from dark. The light needs the dark as much as the dark needs the light. Even the very separation of that light from dark is simply the polarity of our own perception. The alchemists knew this concept. They taught it in a process called the alchemical path. And you can find it in numerous images, both found in Hermeticism and Rosicrucianism and its many different orders and forms. You can imagine that each of us is like a iceberg. And imagine that your conscious mind is the component of the iceberg that's above the water. It lives in a world that it believes it's separate from altogether. All the while, the iceberg may not even be consciously aware, if it were sentient, that most of the iceberg is actually underwater. It perceives all of it as being separate. But what if that entire world above the surface of the water were actually a projection from the iceberg that is under the surface of the water. <laughs> this is the philosophy that was taught to us by Carl Jung. Everything spins and all experiences come back to oneness, but it's up to us to perceive it. In alchemy, the way that this process of the alchemical path is represented is through the representation of birds. These different categorizations of the alchemical path are broken into the following categories and stages. Negredo, or blackening. The albedo, or whitening. The rubedo, or the reddening. And the final stage, which is the phoenix. These different stages are represented by a crow for negredo. A swan for albedo. A pelican representing sacrifice for Rubedo. These images are contemplated and well portrayed in numerous pieces of Hermetic art. Often at the center, we will find the divine hermaphrodite, often depicted as wearing both a black cloak on one side and a white cloak on the other. We see also the archetypes of Apollo, the god of the sun, and Diana the god of the moon, representing our own way of seeing the masculine and the feminine energies of our universe. They are accompanied often by similar archetypes of the phoenix that is on fire, that is adjacent to Apollo, holding the sun in the palm of his hand, and in fact, next to a rampant and powerful lion, representing courage. Whereas Diana... On the other hand, is holding the moon in her left hand and accompanied by the deer and all the representations that accompany that, the Aguila or the Thunderbird. All of these are simply different perspectives across polarities of male and feminine perception. And yet, in order for us to merge these worlds together, we must balance our minds and learn to observe rather than to judge. 
Jesus gave two great commandments. He said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength. And love thy neighbor as thyself. Then he goes on to say, judge not, lest ye be judged with the same judgment with which you have judged others. His message was not one of hate thine enemy, take out an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, as had been taught in the Old Testament. But the New Testament was one that was more about good news. Don't judge, because really you're just judging yourself. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. The stages of alchemy are intended for us to be able to learn to integrate our shadow side and accept and love those things about ourselves that we have a hard time accepting. In the beginning, you'll start noticing crows in the world around you, like daily, making their squawking sound, causing all kinds of havoc, and make it to the point where it starts to really bother you. Then you'll know you're clearly in the negredo stage or blackening stage, which is where you're intended to confront and learn the aspects of your shadow, those aspects of yourself that you've repressed so deeply into your subconscious mind so as not to identify with them whatsoever. These are the things that you don't like about yourself. Albedo is a respite, and many confuse the stage of albedo as an enlightenment stage in itself. You get a bit of a break, and you start realizing that life isn't so bad after all. Much of this activity will be precipitated by some life crisis. And Carl Jung also points this out, along with all the other alchemists through history. As we proceed to the next stage, we start experiencing the opening of our other eye, our third eye, which can see everywhere, represented by the peacock, which has so many eyes on all of its feathers. This is represented by the yellowing. It's kind of a greenish yellow. And imagine the beauty of the peacock opening up. This is the center of this wave of new experience. You'll start experiencing these things on a day-to-day basis. In fact, you'll start to see new experiences and perceptions that you never had noticed before. Then you'll be introduced to the concept of the animus and the anima. The anima and the animus would be the representation of all those things that you haven't liked about yourself and have not been attracted to in yourself (laughs) that personify the opposite sex. Carl Jung says that as we meet our anima, that would be their opposite personality type embodied in the form of someone you would not normally think to be attractive and now you find yourself magnetically drawn to this personage. This is called the rubedo. The rubedo leads us to the alchemical marriage, a necessary step and process of the final integration of the shadow into your consciousness, whereupon you start to see the world in terms of empathy, love, and compassion. The alchemical marriage is such a critical aspect of alchemy that 
It is something that must be entered into as a very sacred union. Think of it not as a physical union per se, but rather as a union of the two sides of your mind. The left brain, if you're right-handed, representing the rational thought, the seats of mathematics and natural sciences like physics and chemistry, and the right brain being the seat of music, creativity, irrational thought, out-of-the-box thinking, and as well, total creativity. When we learn to merge these two aspects, then we find our lives take on an entirely different meaning and scope, as if by overnight. And then the soul emerges as a newly resurrected, and we call this the stage of the phoenix. This is when the soul takes flight to experience once again the oneness of self. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Uh, Penny, if I think you remember that you had this amazing question about just two laws. And here was the answer right here in this little talk here. <laughs> Love the Lord thy God with thy whole mind, soul, body, spirit. And that's number one. And number two is love thy neighbor as thyself. Mm-hmm. That's it. And then the eye of the peacock is the opening up to the center of our beingness as one beingness. What can we say? Um, what comes to mind is if you want to go to space, you got to go in here. <laughs> In your heart. Yeah. You also got to place yourself in a place where you can physically be brought up. That's right. Might be good to have a few crystals to spin for a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, uh, I can attest to that. <laughs> Want to tell a little short story of one of those experiences, Ron? We got about five minutes. Oh, it's 6.14. Yeah, we got, well, then we got 10 minutes. Oh, um, I, um, before I met Tara, I would go up to Santa Fe Ski Mountain and spin the crystals after I got off work and I would go up sometimes with mother, sometimes with Soltec, sometimes with Monka. This was 1991. And when where did you go up to? Iraq, Kuwait, when Bush Sr. Oh, you didn't go up anywhere. You went over I went to an area that needed your help. Yeah. On the planet. Yeah. And I got to see what war was like. And Uh, let's not go there. 
Yeah. Right. Well, it yeah. helped you. It helped you tremendously, right? Yeah, it did. You were, it, it was a reflection for what you were going to do. Were you going to just react or were you going to respond and use love? Right. <laughs> and right now, all I can say from what he was talking about, the, when you open up your third eye and it connects with the pituitary and the crown chakra and the nine stars above your head you create that Merkaba that he spoke about and you actually can physically visualize that where you see yourself sitting in that Merkaba and you go up I kid you not it's real I've done it with Ranamu. I've done it by myself sitting on the mountain up there. And you have to know where you're going and what you're doing. And keeping yourself in the violet flame helps. Any other place might get a little tricky. I can put it that way. Well, you had that experience in Farmington. Where you thought you were going to be real clever, right? I, yeah. (laughs) And Shiprock is a portal and it is an intergalactic beacon. When you activate, when you activate Shiprock, it sends a beam of light out across the galaxy. And (laughs) Ashtar is alerted. And let's just say the shit hits the fan. That's what it's well, about. Well, yeah, you kind of, um, you, you call to your father. Yeah. And then the government, uh, who has, uh, a whole pile of folks looking out for stuff like, uh, star, stars, starships in the sky. Got a whiff of Ashtar's New Jerusalem overhead where you were down there spinning your crystals. Yeah. And all of a sudden you had, you had the military involved, right? Uh, there were four F-16s that flew over. And, and then, then I was speaking to Ashtar on the other side of his desk in his ready room. You are already up on the ship. That's right. Oh dear. And, of course, the ship was cloaked, but he said, you know, you only use those crystals in the event of world evacuation project, not just because you want to talk to me. And he was a little stronger in his... uh I'm being polite, okay? Well, your father was probably stern. He wasn't mean. No, he wasn't. And you didn't do that again? No, I didn't. So what happened? Did they go away because he was Uh, Yeah, they just went away, and I can only assume they saw something, and then they have to write in their report, maybe I saw it, maybe I didn't. You mean the Ashtar Command members? No. No, No, the the F-16 pilots. Oh, God. 
Yeah. When you see stuff like that, you have... In other words, they didn't get any hard evidence. No. At all. No. But but to make this story short, Shiprock near Farmington is an intergalactic beacon. And it is to be lit up or ignited when it's time to beam up. And nobody has told me... Is that the name of the... uh the sacred place. Okay. What's the name of that sacred place that you got to drive 20 miles on a really bumpy road to get into? I went to see that's in the four corners. Chaco Canyon. Chaco Canyon. Uh, Mesa Verde. I don't remember. No, Mesa Verde is way up in the four corners. No, it's, uh, it's, it's in Farmington. I don't recall. Oh, well, I drove there. Going to have to look it up. I forgot what it's called, but um, walking that land with all those um, vortices on it. Oh my goodness! I stayed there all day and I stayed overnight. Go to Chaco Canyon. I thought Chaco Canyon was up by Chama. Uh, yeah. That's not anywhere near where we're going over here. Oh, okay. This is another one. That's. Almost to Four Corners, and you drive 20 miles on a really bumpy road to get to it. I don't know. Uh, well, we'll have to look it up. I'm sure it's available. Uh, the point being made is all these places are are completely opened up right now. Right, Rama? Yes. And there's all kinds of people that are being drawn to these Places all over the world. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of them, right? Yes. Above, on the surface, and under the water. Yes. And what we're doing here is we're connecting from wherever we are to those higher frequencies, and we're going to stay there. We're going to keep our heads in the clouds and our feet on the ground. Right, Rama? Yes. <laughs> Anything else you want to say? We got two more minutes. Oh. Um. I mean, the last time you talked to to Ashtar, did he give you a message? How long ago was that? I can't really remember. But the last time I talked to him, he he let me know that. There is a good side to some of the folks at the Pentagon who know about the Intergalactic Confederation of Living Love, Living Light, I can call it. And they know what they can do. There's another side of the Pentagon and the military that are tied in with the fallen angels and the other ET groups, Dr. Greer talks about, they don't necessarily have our best interests at heart, yet we're good property to trade on the intergalactic market. And They don't use the intergalactic tr- market to trade us. No, I'm talking about ancient times, but they would like to revive those ancient times. They don't get to. That 
old timeline is gone. All gone. Mother comes to free all the slaves. That's what I got to say. That's what Mother Sackman meant when she said, you know, you folks don't know what dark is. No. Ancient Egypt times were dark. Yeah. uh, Yikes. (laughs) But we're going to emphasize and accentuate the positive here. And the power of the positive thought can manifest with our feet on the ground, of course, and yes. our heads on the cloud, can manifest heaven on earth and through us, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it's time to go for a little break, everybody. Uh, so we will do that break taking and we'll see you in about, what, 10 minutes or so. And we yeah. love everyone. What a amazing time that we get to have this kind of mentorship in our lives. Thank you, Greg. And uh, thank you, uh, uh, who is this gentleman? Robert Edward Grant, the geometry of consciousness. What a, what a, what a, um, a mind-opening, heart-opening way to look at the world. All right, so Satnam for now, everybody. See you in a little little while. Pass the talking stick to you, Richard. Hello. Hello, Richard. Hello, my friends. Yeah. Greetings and. Best wishes from my uh, humble cabin here in the Northwest Georgia Mountains. Welcome regular listeners and new listener. Is there a new listener? I think. I think I shall do my normal thing here. Okay, I'm looking at the chart for tonight. At my location in Blue Ridge, Georgia. And if you're a regular listener, you've got this chart on your laptop or your iPad or whatever. Saturn at 25 Aquarius is exactly square the sun today at 25 Taurus. So this square is probably... It's Kicked in 10 days ago and it's going to last another 10 days. You know, it's Saturn and the Sun. These are very potent, potent, potent energies. Mercury is up at 5 Gemini, but it's retrograde. So it's backing up into an exact square with Saturn. Isn't that interesting? Now, the North Node's at 23 Taurus, and, you know, it, it's always retrograde. Uh, Uranus is at 15, and it's opposite the moon over there at 9 Scorpio right now. So as, as the next day or so... Uranus is having a full moon with the moon, and then the sun is going to have a full moon with the moon. So you got uh, you got moon opposite Uranus, 
And then in a couple of days, you got moon opposite sun. And then in a couple of days, you're going to have moon opposite Mercury. So those are the tricky configurations. Right? Now there is some help here. Neptune is also at 25 degrees, but it's in Pisces. So Neptune is sextile to the sun at 25 Taurus. And uh, looser not so exact with Mercury, but uh, a combination sextile Mercury. Remember, Mercury's moving backwards towards the sun. The sun's moving toward, forward towards Mercury, right? And Neptune uh, at 25 on, on the stimulant Mars. Let's see, Mars is at 23 Pisces. All right, and Neptune's at 25 Pisces, so they're operating together. With Jupiter, which is the same place it was last week, at 1 Aries. All right, so those three guys, you know, in the latter part of Pisces are going to while they're currently sextile, they're going to become squares as uh, Mercury and the, and the Sun move into Gemini. Won't that be tricky? And let's not forget dear old Pluto at 29 Capricorn. It's trine Mercury retrograde. And it's trine the Sun. The sun is going to move towards an exact trine to Pluto. Mercury is retrograde. It's going to be moving in the opposite direction, in quotes, relatively speaking. So we're going to we're going to we're going to have a, a very interesting uh, Mercury conjunct Sun trine Pluto coming up. In a few days, let's see here. Yeah, like midweek. Won't that be interesting? So let's see. What is this other here? We got a. We got a. Uh, is that a in conjunct? Let's see here. Thirty, sixty, ninety. 120 plus 15, yeah. Moon in conjunct that uh, Neptune and Mars tonight and tomorrow. Now, moon in, moon, moon in Scorpio. These, This is a, the sign of the Stoics. You know what a Stoic is? That's one, that's one of those people... Male or female, who's got their emotions under control. You know, they don't get pushed around by their emotional nature. They've got their emotional astral body under firm control of their integrated personality. So, you know, that's, you know, 
I kind of like being called a stoic, you know. I'll take that. All right, let's go listen to Carpaccio. I ran, I ran out my whole time for the hour. So um, I will pop in here shortly after we uh, after we listen to Carpaccio because I'm sure he'll have something interesting to say. It's so interesting with all of the, the great the. You guys found two great presentators that you played this afternoon, and I heard every word of both of them. So thank you yep. for that. Thank you back to you. All thank right. You. Fire up Kaipacha, and I'll talk to you in a few minutes. Here we go. with the weekly paleo report and that is an osprey oh my uh, beautiful amazing bird the osprey big bird sitting, it's a mama osprey sitting on her eggs on a special nest I'll put a little uh, information at the end of the paleo report but yeah they uh, they have to have a 360 degree view for their nests, so they actually constructed this uh, nest here in where am I? It's called the Chain of Lakes near Fox Lake, Illinois. Oh yeah. Let me get my zoom back to one. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the name of this lake, but like I say, there's a whole chain of lakes mm-hmm. here. Uh, and, uh, yeah, visiting my brother and his family and heading out. I came out to the state park here to get some space for the Paley report and, uh, lost my lunar planner. I, I mean, I, I write all my notes in it. I write all the aspects in it. And I, <laughs> I mean, I need my lunar planner, man. <laughs> this is so amazing, especially with the theme for today's uh, report, which I will uh, talk to you more about. But I know that the moon is in Virgo now. Uh, she is heading into Libra, okay, for a couple of days. Uh, I mean, today's Wednesday. Uh, I think it's the 11th. And, uh, then she's, for the weekend, she's gonna go into Scorpio. Because what? We all know, hopefully, if you are into astrology at all, you will know that we are having a total lunar eclipse on Sunday. Some places in the globe, it is on Monday. But, uh, in general, for a lot of uh, a lot of the population that listens to the Paleo Report, anyway, uh, it will be on Sunday, and then she's going to move on through Scorpio. Uh, it is at the uh, it's, I think twenty three degrees uh, some odd minutes, uh, you know, uh, no, maybe even twenty five. Anyway, I have the Sabian symbol, 
And so I can uh, tell you that later. But in the meantime, what else is going on? So we have this full moon on the moon's nodes, sun conjunct the north node. It is total, okay, because it is uh, within three degrees of the of the nodes. The nodes is right where the path of the moon crosses the ecliptic, the path of the sun. And that's where we have we always have our eclipses there. Yeah. In addition, and in, in, in trine, okay, to the moon, sextile the sun, we have Mars coming into a conjunction with Neptune. And uh, that will be exact next Tuesday. So, but Mars is going actually pretty slow. Um, and, you know, it's uh, going to be conjunct Neptune all week. Venus is moving a little faster, okay, through Aries. And she is coming up to conjunct with Chiron. So we're going to have Venus conjunct Chiron, Mars conjunct Neptune. And the last thing that I want to be talking to you about also is just that we will have, indeed, Saturn up there in Aquarius at 24 degrees something in a very tight square to this full moon. And moon's nodes. I've been talking about Saturn square the moon's nodes. Okay, it's been, that's been going on for quite a while. Um, but uh, yeah, now uh, Saturn is uh, basically square this total lunar eclipse. Um, and the moon's nodes it is a very intense time. Um, if you are sensitive, I'm sure you're feeling uh, the intensity of this time. This is called the eclipse season. This two-week period between that solar eclipse that happened, uh, you know, uh, about a, you know, a little more than a week ago, and then the lunar eclipse that's coming up. This two-week period, as the moon has been growing, growing, waxing, building, the tension, energy, emotion, intensity has been building, 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 and it's going to just kind of blow, baby. <laughs> I think, you know, with this lunar eclipse, it's going to be one heck of a weekend. So let me look at the camera and talk about it. Okay, everybody. I tell you, I just want to do this Pele report before the sky falls down. <laughs> Not only did I lose the lunar planner, man, I lost my uh, gorilla. I got a, a, a gorilla tripod thing for my camera, you know, so, like, I can put it anywhere, hang it from a tree, put it on a rock, whatever. So I got no tripod. I lost my shades, my sunglasses. I lost my uh, lunar planner now. And, and so I borrowed my brother's uh, tripod and some tape so that I can tape my phone onto his tripod, you know, <laughs> and I don't have the tape. <laughs> so I'm holding my phone onto my brother's tripod with a used mask, you know, because it's got the elastic things for the ears. So I, I wrapped it around the phone. I can't see myself. I don't know what, uh, you know, what I'm looking like, what this is looking like, and... Whatever. This is just uh, so tripped out, particularly for the message for today. And it's like, you know, uh, I got to 
look and learn and listen. Hope that I remember the mantra <laughs> and just go for this. So what is this energy about besides like enough for me to pull my hair out? And I don't think I am the only one. I mean, I do have Mercury, Mars, Venus, and Pluto in Leo. So it is opposite uh, Saturn. I'm getting a Saturn opposition. And then, this, uh, of course, this is uh, squaring all of my Leo uh, stellium there. So it's it's uh, really uh, intense for me. I'm maybe personifying a little bit of this uh, kind of energy. But in general, we are all feeling the pressure, the tension that I've been talking about for quite some time. And that is this movement from the south node in Scorpio to the north node in Taurus. Okay. Coming out of, okay, the shamanism, the psychotherapy, the digging and researching and investigating into the deepest, darkest secrets and the, you know, pulling up the carpet and what's in the closet and, you know, mud slinging and, you know, trying, you know, with revenge and, and going for, you know, possessiveness and manipulation, exploiting each other and just like trying to, you know, uh, force other things to happen and all this kind of power plays <clears throat> and using the deepest, darkest, uh, you know, secrets and energy and whatever to try to, you know, um, get our way, our way, what I desire more than anything else. This is the, the dark shadow side of that when you got the south node of the moon moving through a sign, you look at the dark side of that sign because that is what you are wanting to let go of. And, uh, you know, K2 is the, the dragon's tail, the south node of the moon. It's got kind of an evil connotation in the Vedic uh, astrological, uh, you know, way of, uh, you know, viewing the, the world. And the north node of the moon in Taurus Okay, where the sun is conjunct. Now the sun is conjunct the north node. The moon is conjunct her south node for this total lunar eclipse. And it's just kind of like kicking our butt out of Scorpio. Okay, throwing us into Taurus, self-sufficiency. And coming into getting our trip together. And really simplifying our lives, getting rid of all things that are excessive, all forms of indulgence, all, you know, distractions from identifying our deepest uh, capacities, developing our own skill set instead of using other people's skill sets to advance our interests. <laughs> other people's money, other people's ideas, other people's influence, other people's subscribers, whatever. You know, this is like, like I said, I think I said it last week, you know, this is really moving, you know, into this Taurus field of self-sufficiency. Now, in addition, what we have now this week, you know, this is something Venus coming up to Chiron. Let's really look at this because Chiron, the wounded healer, Moving through Aries is wanting to heal the wounded warrior, heal the wounded masculine, heal our sense of our wounded sexuality, our feeling of being impotent, 
not able to get what we want and what we truly desire. And now here comes Venus, the goddess of love, coming to visit Chiron in Aries. This is a very special, unique time of healing. This is an opportunity for us to go into our wombs. Why am I not getting what I want? How do I unconsciously sabotage myself? How do I become a victim of this, that, or the other thing, or person, or place, or government, or corporation, or, you know, where's my power? If it's not in Scorpio, like other people, and soul made and soul union, and business partnerships, and sexual partnerships, and marriage, and if it, yeah, if I'm not getting my power, you know, through relationship, then I have to like really rely on my own power. And then it's like, huh? What? What power? <laughs> what do I have, you know, that nobody else has or that makes me powerful or that makes me valuable or that makes it so that I should or I deserve to get what I want? <laughs> so this is and let's let's remember that Chiron is a healing crisis. So there can be financial crisis, uh, sexual crisis, uh, you know, mental crisis, emotional crisis to put us in touch with the deeper underlying programs and conditions that are separating us from just living a simple, natural, intuitive, instinctive life. This is what this north, the sun, north node, Uranus, and Taurus is opening our perception to maybe how far out of alignment or attunement to nature and our natural expression and our natural flow, we really are. But now here is the trick. In order to get to this Venus Chiron healing, that wound, it goes deep down into the recesses of our soul. It makes us feel vulnerable, scared, um, defenseless, helpless. It's, you know, it's, 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 you know, to really open up that wound, you know, we've put bandages and band-aids and gauze and, you know, all kinds of, to hide our wounds, to bury our wounds, to maybe ignore our wounds. And one of the dangers at this time that could be, you know, Easy to fall into because the moon is trying Mars conjunct Neptune in Pisces. And this Mars conjunct Neptune in Pisces can go one of two ways, just like the fish in Pisces. One is going one way, the other is going the other way. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes Pisces will try to go both ways at the same time. <laughs> 
Uh, even though it's square Gemini, where they're always trying to go two ways at the same time. Anyway, but with with this Mars, Neptune, and Pisces, what is this about? Well, you know, Mars is my desire, my you know, uh, charge, go. I want. It is our warrior. It wants to penetrate, and here it wants to penetrate Neptune, a, a cloud of gas. Uh, our illusions, mysticism, spirit, fantasy, imagination. So Mars, Neptune can in some ways want to escape, avoid, deny through our addictions to Mars is sex. Okay. Neptune is alcohol, drugs, uh, fantasies. Uh, movies, Neptune rules movies and film. It's the collective unconscious. Uh, we could just want to escape into, uh, you know, Netflix or, you know, even the latest. And if we just, and, and, and because why? Because, well, this, the, the moon on her south node is really tugging at our desire body. Our astral body is really getting triggered in this total lunar eclipse, okay? I mean, if you're not horny now, okay, it's like you probably, this is like, that means that you, like, you don't get horny. <laughs> because, you know, this Taurus-Scorpio axis is the passion, sexual, uh, you know, emotional, physical union, merging desire to feel good and to you know, whether it's chocolate, wine, drugs, CBD, you know, you know, sex and touch and whatever, and you know, music in your headphones or, you know, a virtual reality. <laughs> but you know, there's this whole kind of thing of I just want to feel good because I don't, I'm not comfortable. This Venus Chiron triggering my wounds, my need to evolve out of codependency and all forms of distractions and come home to my innermost stable, solid, maybe boring or monotonous or simple, or I have not really discovered my truth or my value or my talent or my genius. And so I get tired of myself. You know, and now is a time where, like, if if we're if life is throwing us onto ourselves, and and we're bored with ourselves, or we don't know ourselves, or we're you know we don't like ourselves, well, then it's not a comfortable place to be. <laughs> so this it's a process of learning how to love ourselves, right? Ow. <laughs> Without blaming, you know, like, you know, so-and-so-and-so-and-so or judging or falling into. And, and, and this kind of brings me around to what? Freaking Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, man. I, I did a, uh, you know, like a, a two-hour webinar looking at their relationship. And, of course, uh, you can get lost. And I've talked to lots of people who, once they start listening to the testimony of Johnny or Amber, that you get sucked into it. And you know why? This is like the ultimate perfect timing. 
at the end of that uh, uh, reading that I did, it's on YouTube, right? There is uh, their composite chart. And, and uh, you know, Amber is a Taurus, okay? She's got the sun in Taurus. Uh, uh, Johnny's a Gemini, but uh, in, in their composite, the midpoint, in their relationship chart, they have a, a, a Taurus sun opposite a Scorpio moon. So their relationship, this, this eclipse is exactly on the composite full moon of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Can you, I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, you can't make this stuff up. And the other thing is what? Johnny is going through his Saturn return. He's got Saturn in Aquarius right now. Saturn is on top of his Saturn. And if that wasn't enough, <laughs> both Johnny and Amber have Venus conjunct Venus at like 23, 24 degrees of Taurus. So they both could be sexually addicted. Okay. They both have a sexual attraction. They both have very strong sexual needs and their relationship mirrors and amplifies with the moon in Scorpio opposite their sun Venus conjunction in Taurus. <laughs> okay. This, you know, intense could be even addictive, you know, nature of indulgence and wanting and I want to fulfill my desires on the five physical senses, the level <laughs> of the bull. I talk about Aries and Taurus. The first two signs of the Zodiac are very primitive. The bull and fertility and Taurus is it's it's our it's our primitive instinctive desires and needs for pleasure through our five physical senses. So actually this, this moon now on this eclipse in trine to Mars Neptune, the high side of that fish going in the opposite direction, the, the one direction is addiction. The other direction is transcendence, mysticism, uh, you know, Mars, Neptune, and Pisces are very platonic. It's so spiritual that we are connected on psychic, spiritual, extrasensory perception levels to where physical sex is not even needed to feel at one with you. This is... This is the subtle, subtle, refined, transcendent, mystical nature of this Mars, Neptune in Pisces. So I want to, you know, I want to kind of bring this all around and bring this all together. What else I want to do is, you know, in addition to that, you know, what I did was I have a, a school of astrology. I've got over 500 students learning astrology with me. And, and every Sunday we get together on Zoom. And I, basically that webinar that I did on uh, Johnny and Amber's relationship was a class in my for, for my students in the New Paradigm School of Astrology. This week, Sunday, I'm introducing a new faculty 
member, Brandy Price, another evolutionary astrologer who is like super amazing. And I'm going to have a panel of my faculty and my graduates from the school on Sunday. And we're going to have a, a question and answer. And each of these, uh, I've got six astrologers here. We're all going to go through these eclipses <laughs> and give different insights. And I'm going to take the eclipses through the 12 houses because where this eclipse falls in your personal chart is going to trigger, okay, and you're going to feel it in a different way, one of 12 different ways, okay? And, and it's going to be affecting one of 12 different realms of your personal experience. So you might want to tune into this. And, and then this is the last... A weekly class that I'm going to just like uh, put up on YouTube and make public because <laughs> you know my students are chipping in you know to to, to get a to get these <clears throat> but I'm going to make this one open and public because I want to introduce Brandy and and my other uh, faculty members and my graduates and so if you are wanting to know more astrology and more about these eclipses you can tune into that class on Sunday but. Besides that, I want to uh, want to read you the Sabian symbol because this is all about, okay, you know, moving beyond gain and loss, black and white, third dimensional yes and no, good and evil, heaven and hell, yin and yang, you know, all of this polarity is third dimensional. Mars conjunct Neptune in Pisces is multi-dimensional. So we, it's actually a portal to get out of this third dimensional ego world. Okay. And, and into a bigger, wider, broader reality where everything just is. It's not about good or bad. It's not about winning or losing. It's all evolution. It's all evolution. And that's what, you know, that's what we really want to do. And, and, and this is, this is kind of inspired. Okay. You know, my, uh, the, the Sabian symbol for today, <clears throat> it's the 26th degree of Scorpio. So I think that the eclipse is happening at uh, the full moon is 25 degrees, 10 minutes or something. It's at the, I'll put the chart at the beginning. You can see it. American Indians making camp yeah. after moving into a new territory. The ability to adjust swiftly to a new situation by tuning in to its requirements. He who lives in harmony with nature, moving on as new needs arise finds himself intuitively at home everywhere. He does not make demands on life, for he has identified himself with the great rhythms of the biosphere, and he functions at peace with what they produce. This is the message of the American Indian culture. 
which European invaders so wantonly and meaninglessly destroyed nearly everywhere. Western man has lost faith in life because he wants to dominate and enslave manifestations. This brings us a message we greatly need today. The message of peaceful adaptation to nature and through adaptation of efficient functioning in all life situations. I know I am getting tested on this. I checked into a hotel where they've got no internet. (laughs) I have to find a way to upload the Paylay report, to do this, to do that. AT&T has, uh, you know, disconnected my phone. I have no mobile data. And for a week now, it's like they, uh, yeah, as soon as I landed in the United States, they said that my device is uh, lost or stolen and uh, they won't, Give me service. I've been on the phone for hours with AT&T. So I'm getting thrown like curveball. And you may, I'm not just talking about myself here. I feel we are all getting thrown curveballs. You know, try this one, you know, try that, you know, you know, life throws us off balance to see if we can regain our balance. How long does it take you to regain your balance? How long does it take you to get back in your center? Okay, when someone says something or something happens or crypto, you know, takes another dive, you know, and you get thrown off center. How long does it take you to get back on center? (laughs) You know? Check it out. I mean, this is, I think, what is really going on these days. It's an initiation. We're getting initiated into our center. And as we get initiated into our center, we find that our center is in the center of the galaxy. Yeah. Our center is in the center of the universe. Our our, our center is in, you know, all that is. It's not here or there or, you know, in that bank account or that house or that address or, you know, that uh, YouTube channel or that, uh, you know, website. Our center is galactic. This is Mars and Neptune in Pisces. (laughs) Maybe a little out there for some of you. That's okay. So the the mantra for today, now I have to frickin' remember it. Ow! Living in harmony with nature, I instinctively go with the flow. Whether winning or losing, coming or going, there is something life wants me to know. You get it? It's all about evolution. It's all about learning. It's all about growing. You know, you get a new bicycle, you get a new pair of skates, uh, you get a new pair of skis, you get a new pair of, you know, and it is just about 
right? You know, finding your balance. Well, this is, you know, this is what's going on now. And you may be getting stripped with, you know, Scorpio needing to let go. Mars, Mars, Neptune, Pisces, let go, let go, let go, let go. You know, I mean, can you, you know, can you stand on one toe? Because <laughs> you lost all your other toes and you lost your other leg or whatever, man. I mean, it's like now it's like, whoa, you know, uh, you know uh, how, how little, how little can I, do I need, you know, in order to be, Satisfied, content, fulfilled, have a meaningful, purposeful life, have an identity, right? I mean, just like, wow. So, you know, this is our challenge. This is our, uh, this is our initiation. This is our test. And may you pass with flying colors. I mean, you know. Life does not give us more than we can handle. I keep saying that. And I'm, uh, you know, because uh, uh, <laughs> I am getting freaking smacked, man. <laughs> okay, one more time. Living in harmony with nature, I instinctively go with the flow. Winning or losing, coming or going. It's just something life wants me to know. Don't take it personally. <laughs> just go with the flow. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Oh, <laughs> one more thing I forgot. <laughs> you can't always get what you want. <laughs> that is our song for today. <laughs> you can't always get what you want, but you get what you need. Yeah. And then I thought of another one that particularly comes out of the mantra. Should I stay or should I go? Do, 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 do. You know that one? Yeah. It's pretty old. Yeah. It's not one of my favorites. It's kind of funky, but you know, whatever. Those are the songs for this week. Uh, down below in the YouTube, there's links. Uh, you know, to the songs and my newsletter and the school and everything that uh, you could ever want to get more astrology, more astrology and more astrology. Ah! And speaking of more astrology, how about the astrology of relationship? This is going to be almost a week long course over at beautiful Corfu, Greece. Where we are going to be looking into Venus through all of the signs and Mars through all of the signs and houses. Black Moon Lilith, we're going to be looking at the shadow that pops up in relationships. Uh, and then we're going to be looking at how your chart describes the perfect partner. And uh, this is going to be a, a tantric experience with uh, Aldebaran who uh, will be teaching with me. She does um, Tantra, and check Maybe it out below. Hey, DJ, fade the music out. Hey, hello. Hi, Hi Richard. 
Hey, I got a couple words for the group. Yes, sir. Over the last couple of weeks, I have been rereading Esoteric Healing, published by Alice Bailey, uh, first printing 1953. All right, now this this is one of those treatises by the Master DK. Yep. Yep. All right. So here I am on page 143, and the section is the psychological causes of disease. Oh, boy. And this this is in the section, the bloodstream. And I, I would love to read it to you, but I'm just going to give you this thing four points he makes here. The etheric vehicle from the circulatory angle is governed by the moon. The nervous system, we're talking about human bodies here, okay, the nervous system is ruled by Venus. Everybody should write these down. The endocrine system, right, that's just the major glands, they're governed by Saturn. And the bloodstream itself is governed by Neptune. So the heart, which circulates the bloodstream has a has a Neptune component in it. Alright? So I I would think most of our listeners understand that the etheric vehicle is the energy vehicle that supports the dense physical body. They all know that, right? I hope that's a kind of a given. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're new to this subject, uh, I'd be happy to help you get up to date. And, and this is I've been thinking about this for a couple of days now. The nervous system is ruled by Venus, so keep that in mind. Because I got this thing going on with my my uh, my arms, and my hands. I think it's, I think it might be labeled arthritis. Uh, but anyway, so Richard, uh, what was the one right? Richard, can you repeat what was right before the nervous system being ruled by Venus? What was the first one? The the first one is the 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 entire etheric vehicle. From the circulatory angle, right? That's flow, right? Energy flows, energy follows thought. It's governed by the moon. Okay. All right. Full moon moon in Scorpio. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But the bloodstream, which is the circulatory system, right? Neptune. Run, run by the heart. Right? Oh. Right? The 
bloodstream is run by the heart, but the but the stream itself is governed by Neptune. Okay. And then the endocrine system. There's these are the uh, ductless glands. Uh, there's a, there's seven of them, and they're related to the seven chakras. So the health of the chakras promotes the health of the endocrine system, which feeds the bloodstream with hormones and stuff. And that's that's a note on how your human body works. Mm-hmm. All right, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna stick around after the hour, and I want to read you I want to read you something else. All right. Okay. Let's okay. See here, I'm mm-hmm. gonna read you. Yes. And uh, when time permits, let's see here. It's uh. On the moon in lunacy. <laughs> I gotta find out. Yeah, this this is a everybody should get this book and 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 read it once at least. Oh, the full moon in psychosis. Mm. Are you interested in that? That's very interesting. It ex, it explains it explains what we've been talking about today. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's uh, one, two. So Richard, real quick, real quick, the name of the book. Esoteric Healing. Oh, okay, right, right, right. Volume four in the Treatise on the Seven Rays. Okay. Yeah, it's a good one. All right. Um, Here we go. Let's listen to right. Tony. Uh, yeah, you just I'll uh, I'll switch over to the conference call when we get to the top of the hour. Whenever you switch over, I'll be oh. here. All okay, right. love you. Bye. Bye bye. Hello there, it's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist, and welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an important astro-numerology event coming up so that we are equipped with a message and can really tap into self-growth and expansion. And in this case, there's a lot of expansion because we're going to talk about Jupiter and, in particular, Mercury. Mercury retrograde the second one of the year, begins on May 10th. And on the same day, a major Jupiter event takes place. After 12 years going around the 12 signs of the zodiac, Jupiter is re-entering Aries, the first sign. So there's a new beginnings feeling right as Mercury stations retrograde in its own sign of Gemini. So this is a very momentous period, and it also falls during the eclipse cycle. So between the solar eclipse in Taurus and the total lunar eclipse in Scorpio on May 15th, 16th. So the 
opportunities to move through old hang-ups and paradigms and letting them go is truly remarkable because the rebirth aspect of both Jupiter's new 12-year cycle beginning in between the eclipse cycle on the day Mercury stations retrograde in its own sign and the upcoming Scorpio total lunar eclipse where Scorpio is about power and empowering yourself through letting go, through cleansing, is really remarkable. Jupiter really comes to the rescue here because Jupiter is very excited to be in Aries. It likes Aries. Jupiter is a fire planet, being the ruler of Sagittarius, a fire sign. Aries is a fire sign, so Jupiter feels very happy in Aries. And this is coming on the heels of Jupiter being in Pisces and having that conjunction with Neptune, the ruler of Pisces, in April. So there's a real shift in energy here where the dreaminess, almost like living a little bit in a an imaginary world, now moves into action, moves into, okay, well, what are we going to do about the world that we envisioned when Jupiter was in Pisces and conjuncted Neptune, what are we going to do now? And so all of this is coming together in such a beautiful way. Let's look at the date first for the Mercury retrograde and the Jupiter moving into Aries because it's very powerful. It's on the 10th of May. 10 is the instant manifestation number. 10 allows us to move into new opportunity with rapid implementation. And as it happens, the Mercury retrograde starts at four degrees Gemini. Gemini, of course, is the sign Mercury rules, one of two signs, Virgo being the other. But four is also a number of manifestation. Four is about security. It's like a box. It creates boundaries. It's disciplined. And it wants you to make your ideas real. So four and ten are both qualities of manifestation, actualization, bringing things into reality. And so you want to, because of the Mercury retrograde in its own sign, take a step back and give your mind a break. Like stop the running mind, the info overload and overwhelm and just really tune in to what the message is here for your big restart. And this will last a couple of weeks because it starts now and it continues through the eclipse on the 15th and 16th of May, depending on where you live. And so and eclipses, of course, have a long term impact, but the intensity of the shift is really this month. And so there's so much here for you to tune into in terms of inner communication, which Mercury rules, inner inspiration and wisdom, with which Jupiter rules, confidence, which is Jupiter and Aries, and the ability to communicate your message in a way that is very patient. So you are okay with the natural flow And this is where Scorpio comes in. The Scorpio eclipse is a water sign, and it reminds you to trust in the universe, to always be patient when things are moving a little slower in your life than what it is you would prefer, or to be very open to the flow when it moves faster. 
when it comes out of the blue. Remember, Uranus is in Taurus. This eclipse coming up has the sun in Taurus, the moon in, in Scorpio. So this Uranian activation of the two signs that are governing the eclipse cycle, Taurus and Scorpio, means there can be surprises. So let's go back to the Mercury retrograde in its own sign. Everything regarding information, social media, anything online, blogging, you know, sending newsletters, anything to do with connection through media is really activated. And so you're going to be more careful about your words. You're going to really pay attention during this first part of the retrograde about how you use words, how you think, and how you then translate what you're thinking into language. And this is a good thing because words are extremely powerful and they can really make or break a conversation, a moment with a person because they leave a deep impact that is unconscious. So this retrograde is is incredibly important for us to remember that when we speak and share something, it should always be for the highest good of the person we are sharing it with. And of course, that means for our own highest good, because what we do to others impacts us. The second thing is that when Mercury moves into Taurus on May 22nd, it retrogrades into Taurus and then stations direct on June 3rd in Taurus and moves back into Gemini. Once it's in Taurus, Everything that we have decided we need to really pay attention to in terms of our language and communication will integrate and manifest and get grounded in the sign of Taurus, which which is an earth sign. It will also then merge with the Uranian energy because Uranus is in Taurus and Uranus is inspiration. So there's a lot here that's coming together at once because The Uranus and Taurus aspect is very important. The Jupiter moving into Aries aspect is very important because it's the first degree of the Zodiac. Zero degrees Aries begins the whole journey into our Zodiac. The first sign, zero degrees. And that initiates fortunate new beginnings, a fresh start, this whole sweeping energy of a rebirth, a a brand new life. And you feel the confidence because Jupiter expands every sign that it's in. And in Aries, it is expanding and enhancing confidence and courage and forward momentum and going for it, drive, ambition. And then Mercury retrograde starting at four degrees Gemini shows us the importance of having boundaries to protect us against the noise, the info overload. And so we want to really remember that in order to focus on a frequency that uplifts us and moves us forward, we need to detach from the noise, the everybody else's life and, and opinion and idea of this and that. It, it doesn't matter when it comes to our own life. What we have to learn during this Mercury retrograde is really to go into a place where what we focus on takes center stage internally 
retrogrades are always about internal. And this is, this is Mercury. This is how we think, how we verbalize and communicate what it is we are doing, what we're focusing on in every conversation we have, including our own with, our, with ourselves. So this is an excellent period with Jupiter and Aries as well, Jupiter governing higher education to learn, to teach, to be willing, to open up, to write. Uh, there's a lot of positive outlets now to share what it is you you feel and share the knowledge you have, the wisdom you have, and pursue creative writing if that's what you want to do, right? It's very creative. It comes down to giving yourself the breathing room during the retrograde to actually take in all these shifts that are going on with Jupiter and the Scorpio eclipse. I mean, this is very, very big energy. It is literally pulling us and pushing us and inviting us to experience a new world. And the way to experience that world is to take a time out, in a sense, from that thought stream that just goes and goes and goes. And not tune into other people's opinions and external expectations, but rather go into the wisdom of the heart, that Jupiter wisdom, that newfound, I am reborn, I have a new life, Everything is there. I was born with all I need, all the gifts and wisdom that are necessary to trust in the universal flow. They're all there. I have the capability of tuning in. And so if you feel a little bit discombobulated and disoriented and unable to deal with things, it's important to just find that middle ground and stay with the frequency that it is you want to implement. So speaking of frequencies, there are three frequencies that you might want to tune into. The first is to change and reframe a thought that is more heavy into a lightness, a positivity by expressing gratitude. That's really the first thing that comes to mind in terms of shifting that heavy thought. Be grateful, focus on what you love and what makes you happy so that there's this flow of connection. When you're grateful, you're grateful to the exchange of energy. You're saying thank you. So you can appreciate a gorgeous day or something that you've just discovered or something that you just heard and you thank the person and basically say, I love how you said that, or I love that you shared that. Uh, basically it's just moving into the very simple appreciation. So the positivity, the lightness of thought, and then there's humorous thought. So the second frequency is humor. So when you empty your mind of things that are, not happening the way you want or uh, on your mind because they have to get done. So if you are overwhelmed, in other words, you can make a funny observation. You can go to the lighter side of life and just laugh at the ridiculousness of getting caught up in the tense, heavy energy Basically, when you point out to yourself or others things that are funny, 
then you're expressing something with great spirit. And that's what humor is. It really allows us to come back to the basics of, well, in the end, it really just is our perception. So if our perception can have humor in it, the better we are in terms of our ability to handle anything. So positive lightness, humor, and then the third is purposeful. To have a purpose, to to really allow yourself to appreciate what you're here to do. So to examine something, to see if it's true, to study something that gives you a purpose, to explore a new creative idea, uh, to wonder why something is the way it is, to find a solution to a practical problem. And so this is giving you a purpose because you are thinking about life in terms of a solution and a journey and an expansion instead of a limitation and a lack. So we want to move away from that sense of separation where we limit ourselves and we feel a sense of lack. We want to move into the lightness, the humor, the purpose of just the incredible experience that we're having and to appreciate it and be grateful every day. So if for any reason you are thinking about things and, and it's, it's like a memory or it's something that just makes you feel heavy, just know that what's behind that energy is fear. It's just being afraid and it's hijacked your ability to perceive the world in a joyful way. When the mind is being used in a functional way, in an intelligent and wise way, the divine self comes in and literally inspires you. So you've done this many times. The divine self has come through you and has helped you literally integrate and live your life with joy many times. The divine self is never separate from you. So it's basically living life through you and you are a channel for that joy. So when you're aligned with that joy, with that expansion, with that ability to reframe things and perceive life through Mercury and Jupiter and the Scorpio eclipse, through a sense of letting go and following your heart, you are tuning into the planetary movements of the stars in a way that allows them to uplift you. You are literally remembering that you're a star being, that you are a light being. And so then this eclipse, this Mercury retrograde, Jupiter moving into Aries, becomes your guiding light. You literally are inspired and open to receive the gifts of these incredible celestial events. So have a wonderful Mercury retrograde, a wonderful May 10th celebration of Jupiter moving into Aries and the three weeks of the retrograde integrating everything through June 3rd and of course Scorpio total lunar eclipse on May 15th, 16th. It's all coming together in a big way this month. And I know you are ready for this. You are literally excited about this. Even if it feels a little jarring at times, there's an excitement 
there's an understanding, there's an appreciation that everything is transforming so beautifully and you're playing your part by accepting it, by embracing it, by seeking it and by being grateful for it. And just like the celestial celebrations continue day after day, you were born at a very momentous time and the moment of your birth describes your star code map. It's based on your birthday, your birth certificate name, and your astrology chart. And you can learn more about yours in a free masterclass at starcodeclass.com. You get a free handout. You get to understand your purpose and destiny, and you get to understand the people in your life, which is so helpful for non-judgment and acceptance. It's just a really fun free class. So enjoy that at starcodeclass.com. Have a beautiful week. And I will see you in our next Star Code podcast. Lots of love. How's the talking stick back to you, Richard? No, I, we got to go off the air now. Yeah, we got to. Tell us the phone number, Rama. Uh, seven two zero seven one six seven three zero one. And the pin code three five three eight six three pound. All right, so we'll see you there, everybody. Uh, and thank you. We did a little overtime here. We'll see you on the conference, and uh, we'll be right back here at the top of the next hour at BBS Radio Station <coughs> Two, best radio in the universe. Namaste, everybody. See you on the conference. Thank you, Rama. Yes. That was a love song, in case anybody's wondering. And it's time for love. (laughs) Of every possible, imaginable, glorious kind. We're going to jump right into this. Time is uh, Mm. going somewhere here. This is called Race of Giants. Legends speak of ancient giants that once roamed the earth, from Greek cyclops and titans to the Dotun of Norse mythology, to human beings like the Bible's Goliath. These stories of giant beings are countless. In America alone, there have been more than 1,500 newspaper accounts, including one about the discovery of the exhumation of the 3,781 skeletons of a race of blonde-haired giants. Mm -hmm. Where did the evidence of these humans go, these human giants go? Did the Smithsonian Institution cover it up? Possibly. Add a race of giants, our forbidden history, to your must-see watch list. The director is Michael J. Michael Long, and he features Paul Hughes and Simon Oliver. Is that Tigger? Start this. Gotta get going. This is one hour and one minute, everybody. Here we go.
of a race of giants that once walked the earth. The Holy Bible speaks about the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of man. It is believed by some that these were the Nephilim, theorized to be gigantic in nature. Arguments have risen in the theological community for centuries as to what the Nephilim were, or if they were indeed the giants that seem to be described. However, what cannot be argued is that Judo-Christian doctrines are not the only ones to speak of a giant human species. Who were these giants that once roamed the earth? conceived of, there were oral histories passed down from generation to generation in Mesopotamia, Greece, Rome, Egypt, as well as America. Most of these legends speak of powerful gods and goddesses that were larger than life. History has relegated these legends to the myth status, and they are not seen as actual historical accounts. However, it is noteworthy that there were many of these legends all over the world at one point. How did so many different cultures who had nothing to do with each other end up with similar stories of giants? And is there evidence of the existence of giants available today? The legends of giants in Mediterranean countries were probably the most widely known and discussed. Beyond the biblical accounts, such as David and Goliath, there are the accounts of the Babylonian king Gilgamesh. In stone tablets that have been recovered, there are images carved of Gilgamesh taking on a lion. Looking at the scale of the ancient carvings, it appears this man had to have been at least 12 to 15 feet tall, taking into consideration the size of the lion he is portrayed to have slain. Gilgamesh lived sometime between 2800 and 2500 BC. He is the main character in the Epic of Gilgamesh, a Mesopotamian poem that is considered the first great work of literature. In the Epic, Gilgamesh is a demigod of superhuman strength who built the city walls of Uruk to defend his people and survive the Great Deluge. According to the Sumerian king list, Gilgamesh ruled his city for 126 years. Fragments of an epic text found in Maturin, the modern Tel Harad, relate that at the end of his life, Gilgamesh was buried under the river bed. It is generally accepted that Gilgamesh was a historical figure, since inscriptions have been found which confirmed the historical existence of other figures associated with him, such as the Aga of Kish. If Gilgamesh was a historical king, he probably reigned in about the 26th century BC. Where did Gilgamesh come from? In the Qumran scroll known as the Book of Giants, the names of Gilgamesh and Humbaba 
appear as two of the antediluvian giants. Could Gilgamesh have come from Atlantis or be a direct descendant of antediluvian kings? If giants existed in the past, where is the evidence? You may be surprised to find that it's been and is being discovered all over the world. Skeletal remains of giants have been discovered throughout American history and even further back. According to Native American Paiute oral history, the Satika are a legendary tribe whose mummified remains were allegedly discovered under four feet of guano by guano miners in what is now known as Lovelock Cave in Lovelock, Nevada. Several of the fiber sandals found in Lovelock Cave were remarkably large, and one reported at over 15 inches in length was said to be on display at the Nevada Historical Society's Museum in Reno in 1952. The Paiute tradition asserts that the Satika people practiced cannibalism, and this may have had some basis in fact. During the 1924 excavation of the cave, a series of three human bones were found near the surface towards the mouth of the cave. These had been split to extract the marrow as animal bones were split and probably indicate cannibalism during a famine. As reported in the Nevada Review Minor newspaper on June 19, 1931, in February and June of 1931, two very large skeletons were found in the Humboldt Dry Lake Bed near Lovelock. One skeleton was 8.5 feet tall and was later described as being wrapped in a gum-covered fabric not unlike Egyptian mummies. The other was almost 10 feet tall. It was said that all the tribes of the area stood together against these giants and chased them into a cave. The giants refused to leave the safety of the cave, so the Paiutes, along with other tribes, set the cave on fire. The cave then collapsed during an earthquake, sealing the entrance shut. When the area was mined for fertilizing materials, there were several fossils discovered in the early 1920s. Along with those fossils, were the well-preserved human-like skeletons, one male and one female. The female was over six feet tall, and the male was over eight feet tall. Along with the discovery of the skeletons, there were many other artifacts found, including a circular calendar that had the number of days and weeks of a year etched into it. In 1931, two more skeletons were discovered in Lockport, Nevada, that measured from 8 to 10 feet tall. During the past few years, a huge controversy has emerged accusing the Smithsonian and a host of skeptics and archaeologists of covering up the discovery of hundreds of giant skeletons from Native American Indian mounds. Jim Farira is one of the key people who began uncovering hundreds of newspaper accounts of giant skeletons. Today, Fiera has pulled together about 1,500 accounts 
from newspapers and books published in the 1800s and early 1900s. One intriguing set of giant skeleton reports he found factual was the Arkansas Chickasaba Mound reports of many large skeletons found at the site. Many skeletons ranging from 8 to 9 feet in length had been found there. As late as 1976, a 7-foot tall skeleton was found at the site. For the Smithsonian to have found skeletons that were 7 feet tall by chance alone is improbable. The height of many of the individuals entombed in ancient American mounds was far taller than the general populace, far beyond what could be explained by simple chance. Why would the Smithsonian cover up such a find? Skeptics have related that the disorder of giantism probably was the cause of many reports, but they actually cite no evidence for this assertion. It is a weak attempt to explain away and dismiss the issue. Giantism is exceedingly rare. So rare there is no actual evidential statistics for it. America has less than 100 cases of giantism recorded in its history. In fact, the overwhelming vast majority of tall people today who's reaching or approaching seven feet do not have the disorder of giantism. The actual percentage of modern humans who reach seven feet in height is 0.00007%. In the ancient world of America's mound builders, the percentage of the population that reached seven feet in height would have been much lower. Skeptics claim that freezing and thawing make skeletons so big they might look like a giant. It was found to be completely wrong and baseless. Modern paleopathology texts and sources relate that buried bones that freeze can shatter, and most buried bones actually lose mass. They get smaller. There are also a host of Native American legends that were reported to ethnologists detailing a race of giants who invaded the regions where mounds were found. These giants became the leaders and priests of the tribes. Over time, these ruling people, chosen through heredity, became corrupted and were exterminated. You may be surprised at the number of giant skeletons that have been uncovered throughout modern history. There is a number of discoveries that didn't make it to mainstream historical knowledge. Large bones and stone graves in Williamson County and White County, Tennessee, were discovered in the 1800s. The average stature of these giants was seven feet tall. Giant skeletons were found in the mid-1800s in New York State near Rutland and Rodman. In 1833, soldiers digging at Lompoc Ranchero, California, discovered a male skeleton 12 feet tall. The skeleton was surrounded by caged shells, stone axes, and other artifacts. The skeleton had double rows of upper and lower teeth, Unfortunately, this body was secretly buried because the local Indians became upset about the remains. A giant skull and vertebra were found in Wisconsin and Kansas City as well. A giant found off the California coast on Santa Rosa Island in the 1800s was distinguished by its double row of teeth, common among giant skeleton finds. A 9-foot, 8-inch skeleton was excavated from a mound near Brewersville, Indiana in 1879. 
Skeletons said to be of enormous dimensions were found in mounds near Zanesville, Ohio, and Warren, Minnesota in the 1800s. In Clearwater, Minnesota, the skeletons of seven giants were found in mounds. These had receding foreheads and complete double dentation, two rows of teeth. At La Crescent, Minnesota, mounds were found to contain giant bones. Five miles north in Dreschbach, the bones of people over eight feet tall were found. In 1888, seven skeletons ranging from seven to eight feet tall were discovered. Though they may seem like a lot, near Toledo, Ohio, 20 skeletons were discovered with jaws and teeth twice as large as those of present-day people. The account also noted that odd hieroglyphics were found with the bodies. The aforementioned miners in Lovelock Cave, California, discovered a very tall red-haired mummy in 1911. A local native has a dress made from the hair of one of the giants from this area. In 1931, skeletons from eight and a half to ten feet long were found in the Humboldt Lake Bed in California. And in 1932, Ellis Wright found human tracks in the gypsum rock at White Sands, New Mexico. His discovery was later backed up by Fred Arthur, supervisor of the Lincoln National Park and others who reported that each footprint was 22 inches long and from 8 to 10 inches wide. They were certain the prints were human in origin due to the outline of the perfect prints coupled with a readily apparent instep. During World War II, author Ivan T. Sanderson tells of how his crew was bulldozing through sedimentary rock when it stumbled across what appeared to be a graveyard in it were crania that measured from 22 to 24 inches from base to crown, nearly three times as large as an adult human skull. Had the creatures to whom these skulls belonged been properly proportioned, they undoubtedly would have been at least 12 feet tall or taller. In 1947, a local newspaper reported the discovery of nine-foot-tall skeletons by amateur archaeologists working in Death Valley. The archaeologists involved also claimed to have found what appeared to be the bones of tigers and dinosaurs with the human remains. And the Catalina Islands off California are the home of dwarf mammoth bones that were once roasted in ancient pit fires. These were roasted and eaten by human-like creatures who were giants with double rows of teeth. surface in the discovery of giants is the reports of skulls having more than one row of teeth. According to a study on molecular genetics of supernumerary tooth formation, the cause of extra rows of teeth is genetic. 
Despite advances in the knowledge of tooth morphogenesis and differentiation, relatively little is known about the molecular mechanisms underlying supernumerary tooth formation. A small number of supernumerary teeth may be a common developmental dental anomaly, while multiple supernumerary teeth usually have a genetic component and they are sometimes thought to represent a partial third dentation in humans. Mice, which are commonly used for studying tooth development, only exhibit one dentation, with very few mouse models exhibiting supernumerary teeth, similar to those in humans. Activation of APC or forced activation WNT Canton signal results in multiple supernumerary tooth formation in both humans and in mice, but the key genes in these pathways are not very clear. Analysis of other model systems with continuous tooth replacement or secondary tooth formation, such as fish, snake, lizard, and ferret, is providing insights into the molecular and cellular mechanisms underlying successional tooth development and should assist in studies on supernumerary tooth formation in humans. But scientists say this information together with the advances in stem cell biology and tissue engineering, will pave ways for the tooth regeneration and tooth bioengineering. Though having two rows of teeth is not uncommon, the specific genetics of giants would probably be a specific trait to this line of human development. Along with the reports of double rows of teeth, Extra digits in the hands and feet are sometimes reported. Along the Illinois River in a cave, a priest claimed he found prints in a rock. The larger representation of the human foot was 14 inches and had six toes instead of five. Morris's universal geography, according to the priest, gives this account of a number of tracks or foot impressions found in rocks in the mountains of Tennessee. Along these, were a number of tracks representing human feet, and they uniformly had six toes on each foot. Scientists are stubbornly silent about lost races of giants, such as those found in burial mounds near Lake Devlin, Wisconsin, in May of 1912. The dig site at Lake Devlin was overseen by Beloit College, and it included more than 200 effigy mounds that proved to be classic examples of 8th century woodland culture. But the enormous size of the skeletons and elongated skulls found in May of 1912 did not fit very neatly into anyone's concept of a textbook standard. They were enormous. They were not average human beings. First reported on the 4th of May 1912 issue of the New York Times, the 18 skeletons found by the Peterson brothers on Lake Lawn Farm in southwest Wisconsin exhibited several strange and freakish features. Their heights ranged from 7.6 feet and 10 feet, and their skulls, presumably those of men, were much larger than the heads of any race which inhabit America today. They tend to have a double row of teeth, six fingers, and six toes, and like humans, came in different races. The teeth in the front of the jaw were regular molars. Heads usually found were elongated 
been believed due to a longer than normal lifespan. The Lake Devlin find of May 1912 was only one of dozens of several finds that were reported in local newspapers from 1851 forward to the present day. It was not even the first set of giant skeletons found in Wisconsin. On the 10th of August of 1891, the New York Times reported that scientists from the Smithsonian Institute had discovered several large pyramidal monuments on Lake Mills near Madison, Wisconsin. Madison was, in ancient days, the center of a teeming population of over 200,000. The excavators found an elaborate system of defensive works, which they named Fort Astley. The New York Times says the celebrated mounds of Ohio and Indiana can bear no comparison either in size, design, or the skill displayed in their construction with these gigantic and mysterious monuments of earth, erected we know not by whom and for what purpose we can only conjecture. On the 20th of December, 1897, the Times followed up with a report on three large burial mounds that had been discovered in Maple Creek, Wisconsin. One had recently been opened. In it was found the skeleton of a man of gigantic size. The bones measured from head to foot over nine feet and were in a fair state of preservation. The skull was as large as a half bushel measure. Some finely tempered rods of copper and other relics were lying near the bones. Giant skulls and skeletons of a race of giants have been found on a very regular basis throughout the Midwestern states for more than 100 years. Giants have been found in Minnesota, Iowa, Illinois, Ohio, Kentucky, and New York, and their burial sites are similar to the well-known mounds of the Mound Builder people. The spectrum of Mound Builder history spans a period of more than 5,000 years a period greater than the history of ancient Egypt and all of its dynasties. Most scientists believe that we have an adequate historical understanding of the peoples who lived in North America during this period. However, the long record of anomalous finds like those at Lake Delavan suggest otherwise. The January 13, 1870 edition of the Wisconsin Decatur Republican reported that two giant well-preserved skeletons of an unknown race were discovered near Potsy, Wisconsin by workers digging the foundation of a sawmill near the bank of the Mississippi River. One skeleton measured seven and a half feet, the other eight feet. The skulls of each had prominent cheekbones and double rows of teeth. A large collection of arrowheads and strange toys were found buried near the remains. While the normal-sized skeleton of a supposed mound builder is on display at the site of several large pyramidal monuments near Madison called Astalan State Park, the Goliath remains of Wisconsin's giants have vanished along with the hundreds of other discoveries throughout the Midwest. Why? 
Is there some conspiracy to hide these giant artifacts from the public? Giant skeleton finds have not made the local or national news much since the 1950s for the most part. It seems the opinion is that they fear that people would question evolution. the Smithsonian was taking possession of nearly every giant skeleton found throughout the entire country, including the largest discovery of skeletons found in the Great Mound in Ohio. What the intent of the institution was for the giant skeletons has never been discovered, but several investigators today believe the Smithsonian was founded, at least in part, to take the skeletons and hide or destroy them dumping some by the barge full in the Atlantic Ocean. Why, one might ask. Some believe it was to hide the true history of the Earth, as giant skeletons were being discovered throughout the world in the late 1800s. And some believe it was to back up Darwin's theory of evolution. If such entities lived on Earth thousands of years ago, then Darwin's theory would be automatically called into question. Never included in history books is the fact that every Native American tribe in America tells the same tale of having to fight and kill the giants because they were man-eaters and were decimating the Native tribes. Perhaps because the giants were so large, the tribes mounded dirt to bury them instead of digging graves, which would explain the hundreds, if not thousands, of mound burial sites throughout America. Giant skeletal remains have been found from Brooklyn, New York, to the Channel Islands off the coast of California. Most of the remains are mass burials with signs of violent death, as if a huge battle had been fought, then won, and the massacred buried deep in mounds to contain them. Most, if not all, of American history textbooks never mention Cahokia, America's greatest city for its time a very large Indian trading city, 3.5 miles in size, on the site of where St. Louis now stands. It was built about the same time of the Mayan culture and was surrounded by 120 pyramids and farmland. At its zenith, the city had 15,000 inhabitants, which compared to Paris population-wise at the time. The city existed at the same time with the mound builders, and it is surmised that they were the ones who built Cahokia. But the mystery remains, who were the mound builders? In 1170, a mysterious fire destroyed the city when it was rebuilt. Defense walls were built, and new buildings, which were all smaller and fortified. The city was never populated or as powerful following that fire. No one knows how the fire started, but the homes that burned were built with thatched roofs and were easily destroyed. Archaeologists have surmised that rebels burned the town and instituted a sun imagery that was used thereafter. But if you put the pieces of this puzzle together, you might come up with an entirely different history. 
considering the tales of modern Native Americans whose cultures related stories of the giants, you can imagine that they were the ones who burned Cahokia to destroy the giants within the city. When they rebuilt, the victorious Native Americans put up defenses and built much smaller homes to live in because they were not giants like their predecessors. The homes they built were more regulated in size and did not reflect the wealth and stature that the previous larger homes of the giants displayed. Tuscarora Indian wrote in 1825 about a giant tribe called the Ranawakadwa in the Ohio Valley. In his account, he wrote that other smaller tribes grew tired of the giants attacking them. So with a force of 800 warriors, they killed all the Ranawakadwa people. After that, there were no more giants anywhere. Cusick wrote that this happened 2,500 years before Columbus discovered America, about 1,000 B.C. The thousand giants who were massacred were laid together in heaps and covered with dirt, which again could explain the mound building prevalent in the Ohio Valley. One amazing fact withheld from history books is that virtually every explorer who came to the New World encountered giants. Americo Vespusa, Magellan, Coronado, DeSoto, and Sir Francis Drake all claimed giant encounters. Historically supported by these eyewitness accounts of some of the world's most esteemed explorers of the time, these stories were also chronicled by the Spanish and other lesser-known explorers. Stories of giants that occupied Europe comes from the Middle Ages and involves a surprising figure, St. Christopher. While modern stories of St. Christopher simply make him out as an ordinary man, or perhaps a somewhat homely man, Ooh. those who actually saw him had a different story. According to his peers, he was a giant belonging to a tribe of dog-headed cannibalistic giants. Jacques de Bonnet in the Golden Legend wrote of St. Christopher. He was of gigantic stature, had a terrifying mien, and was 12 cooties tall. A cootie is an ancient measurement equal to or larger than the English linear measurement of a foot. According to his ancient account, St. Christopher stood from 12 to 18 feet tall, a fact that had been hidden in or even erased from church history. Giantism is usually caused by a tumor on the pituitary gland of the brain. It causes growth of the hands, face, and feet. In some cases, the condition can be passed on genetically through a mutated gene. Many of those who have been identified with giantism have suffered from multiple health issues involving their circulatory or skeletal system. Hypersecretion of growth hormones causes giantism in children and adults. Reports of giantism exist throughout history, 
and some nations and tribes taller than others. The giants of Crete are listed in various historical sources, beginning with Titan, a Greek mythological giant, and including giantess, after whom giants and giantism are named. Rhodes is another island where giants were said to have lived, with the Colossus of Rhodes, a giant statue of a giant patron god Helios. Goliath, a giant mentioned in the Bible, was a Philistine warrior who was slain by David in a battle between the Israelites and Philistines. A member of Goliath's family is also recorded as having six fingers on each hand and six toes on each feet. The Nephilim, who are generally accepted to be giants, were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men before the deluge, according to Genesis. The name is also used in reference to giants who inhabited Khan at the time of the Israelite conquest of Khan, according to Numbers. A similar biblical Hebrew word with different vowel sounds is used in Ezekiel to refer to dead Philistine warriors. Cotton Mather believed that fossilized leg bones and teeth discovered near Albany, New York in 1705 were the remains of Nephilim who perished in a great flood. However, paleontologists claim these are mastodon remains. Is it possible that ancient monuments found throughout the world were actually built by giants? Legend tells that Stonehenge may have such origins. According to Geoffrey of Monmouth, the rocks of Stonehenge were healing rocks called the Giant's Dance, which giants had brought from Africa to Ireland for their healing properties. The 5th century king of Lourdes and Brushes wished to erect a memorial to 3,000 nobles slain in battle against the Saxons and buried at Salisbury. And at Merlin's advice, chose Stonehenge. The king sent Merlin, Uther Pendragon, and 15,000 knights to remove it from Ireland, which it had been constructed on Mount Killeris by the giants. They slew 7,000 Irish, but as the knights tried to move the rocks with ropes and force, they failed. Then Merlin, using gear and skill, easily dismantled the stones and sent them over to Britain, where Stonehenge was dedicated. It is said that these kings were buried inside the giant's rings of Stonehenge. America also has a Stonehenge, dating back over 2,000 years. America's Stonehenge, sometimes referred to as Mystery Hill, is an archaeological site consisting of a number of large rocks and stone structures scattered around roughly 30 acres within the town of Salem, New Hampshire, in the northeast United States. Carbon dating of charcoal pits at the site provided dates from 2000 B.C. to 173 B.C., when the area was populated by ancestors of current Native Americans. In archaeological chronology, this places indigenous use of the site either into the late archaic or the early woodland time periods. It would have been in use during the time of the giants. Bones and monuments are not the only evidence suggesting the existence of giants. Huge footprints have also been discovered. 
1897, the Los Angeles Herald revealed that laborers had discovered a fossil shoe print in solid rock. The imprint was that of a shoe with a high, narrow heel and a broad, flat sole. It was so clear in the fine-grained shell in which it was found that it looked as though the owner had unwittingly put his foot right in the soft mud a day or two before. Sandal or moccasin prints have also been seen in gypsum of the white sands in New Mexico. Ellis Wright, in 1932, found tracks of human form as large as 22 inches long. The white sands were laid down as an ancient inlet sea gradually dried up around the time of the demise of the dinosaurs. The American anthropologist published an article in February 1896 of a large stone bearing the perfect imprint of a human foot 14 and a half inches long. It was shown to members of the Ohio State Academy of Science in 1896. The stone slab had been dug from the ground in a hill four miles north of Parkersburg, West Virginia, some 20 years earlier. In 1938, Dr. Wilbur Burroughs, head of the geology department at Berea College, Kentucky, announced that he had discovered 10 humanoid footprints in carbon-ferrous sandstone on a farm belonging to Mr. O. Fennell in the hills in the southern part of Rockcastle County. The prints were nine and a half inches long and six inches wide. The length between footprints was 18 inches. No marks of four feet or a tail were found. Infrared photography revealed that there were no signs of carving or artificial markings in or around the prints. A microscopic count of sand grains indicated that the material within the prints had been impacted and created as the result of force pressing down on the firmament while it was soft. These facts show that the prints were made by the natural result of pressure from the human foot and in no way could have been duplicated by carving. The rock in which the prints were discovered was estimated to be 250 million years old. In recent years, the prints have been destroyed by vandals. Giant tracks, seemingly made by a human being, were found by a government tracker in the Alcala Flats area of the Great White Sands, New Mexico, in 1931. A year later, a party of four, including O. Fred Arthur, supervisor of Lincoln National Forest, set out to investigate the tracks with the government trapper Ellis Wright as their guide. They found 13 imprints crossing a relic desert basin in the easternmost foothills of the San Andreas Mountains. Despite the great size of the tracks, the investigators were convinced they were human, for the prints were perfect, and even the insteps were plainly marked. Oval-shaped, the prints are 16 to 22 inches long and 8 to 12 inches wide, with a distance between strides of about 5 feet and a separation in width of 2 feet. In 1882, huge footprints, strongly resembling those of a human wearing shoes, were found in a layer of sandstone in the yard of the state prison near Carson City, Nevada, during digging operations. The prints were between 18 and 20 inches long and approximately 8 inches wide. The stride was about 3 feet, and the distance between the left and right tracks, the straddle, 
was about 19 inches. Since the size of the prints and the age of the rock at the layer they were discovered, two to three million years old, argued against a human or even a humanoid origin, the prints were ascribed to a more acceptable origin, the tracks of a giant ground sloth. It's thought that these animals could stand upright, but only by using their tails for additional support. However, no tail track was found at this site. It was also suggested that perhaps the animal was walking on four feet and that its rear legs were landing exactly in the tracks left by its front feet, thereby creating the impression of a biped. But this fails to account for the fact that the tracks show no toe marks and appear to be sandals. footprint ever discovered was found in 1968 by William J. Meister, an amateur fossil collector. If the print is what it appears to be, the impression of a sandaled shoe crushing a trilobite, it would have had to have been made 300 to 600 million years ago and would be sufficient to either overturn all conventionally accepted ideas of human and geological evolution or to prove that a shoe-wearing biped from another world had once visited this planet. Meister made his potentially disturbing find during a rock and fossil hunting trip to Antelope Spring, 43 miles west of Delta, Utah. His party had already discovered several fossil trilobites when Meister split open a rock with his hammer and made the outrageous find. The rock fell open like a book, revealing on one side the footprint of a human with trilobites right in the footprint itself. The other half of the slab of the rock showed an almost perfect mold of the footprint in fossils. Amazingly, the human was wearing a sandal. Trilobites are small marine invertebrates, the relatives of today's shrimp and crabs, that flourished for over 320 million years before becoming extinct 280 million years ago. are not enough to convince even the most hardened skeptic, then giant tools and artifacts might not budge their restricted perceptions either. However, consider these. In June 1936, Max Hahn and his wife Emma were on a walk when they noticed a rock with wood protruding from its core. They took the rock home and later cracked it open with a hammer and chisel, but they found within seemed to be an ancient hammer. A team of archaeologists checked it and determined the rock encasing the hammer was dated back more than 400 million years. The hammer itself turned out to be more than 500 million years old, according to the same measurements. Apparently, it's so old 
that a section of the handle had begun the transformation to coal. The hammer's head, made of more than 96% iron, is far more pure than anything nature could have achieved without an assistance from technology. There have been a number of intriguing finds in Indiana over the years, including the discovery of eight skeletons, one clad in copper armor, buried in a perfect circle. In 1888, the Logan Graves, a military group led by A.M. Jones, were conducting military exercises on a small island on Eagle Lake near Warsaw, Indiana. Under a flat stone, they discovered a hole that led to an entrance to a secret cave that was 25 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 8 feet deep. Inside was the skeleton of a 6 foot 9 inch giant buried next to a stream that led to what was called a sacred pool. In 1889, near Kiwana, standing stones were found on a mound, and underneath, another giant was unearthed. While in Whitlock, Indiana, another giant was found in association with a group buried in a seating position. in A History of Jennings County, Indiana, published in 1885. It was reported that in 1881, a nine-foot-tall skeleton was unearthed in a local mound, along with the body of a blonde-haired child. And finally, in 1912, an enormous jaw was dug up that had double rows of teeth, a unique characteristic of some giants discovered in other parts of the country as well. What is believed to be the largest Indian stone axe in existence is among the collections of the Missouri Historical Society. The axe is made of granite. It measures 28 inches in length, 14 inches in width, and 11 inches in thickness, and weighs more than 300 pounds. When found, the pointed end was embedded in a small mound of boulders and pebbles, with the body and head of the axe exposed the whole apparently forming a shrine or altar. The axe resembles a tomahawk pipe. Its upper end or head is slightly hollowed out, and in this depression was ceremoniously placed a small quantity of tobacco. A well-beaten moccasin trail led up the incline of the eminence in which the shrine stood, indicating that the place had long been used for religious purposes. According to Chippewa tradition, the axe has been held in veneration by these Indians from time immemorial. The Guadalupe Woman is a well-authenticated discovery which has been in the British Museum for over half a century. In 1812, on the coast of the French Caribbean island of Guadalupe, a fully human skeleton was found, complete in every aspect except for the feet and head. It belonged to a woman about five foot two inches tall. What makes this of great significance is the fact that this skeleton was found inside extremely hard, very old limestone, which was part of a formation more than a mile in length. 
Modern geological dating places this formation at 28 million years old, which is 25 million years before modern man is supposed to have first appeared on Earth. Since such a date for a regular person does not fit evolutionary theory, you will not find Guadalupe woman mentioned in any hominid textbooks. To do so would be to disprove evolutionary dating of rock formations. When the two-ton limestone block containing Guadalupe woman was first put on exhibit in the British Museum in 1812, it was displayed as proof of the Genesis flood. But that was 20 years before Lyell and nearly 50 years before Darwin. In 1881, the exhibit was quietly taken down to the basement and remains there to this day. Many giant skeletons have been found in or near Native American mounds and burial places. Native Americans have many legends regarding giants. Here are just a few. The Apache have a legend about Big Owl, a malicious and dangerous giant often used as a boogeyman in children's stories. In some Apache tribes, Big Owl also plays a more important mythological role as an early adversary of the War Twins. Like other legendary Apache beings, Big Owl is sometimes described as having a human form, in this case a man eating pork, and other times an animal form such as a large horned owl, large enough to carry off a child. Kiwaka are the evil man-eating ice giants of southern Wabanaki legends. According to most legends, Kiwaka was once a human being who either became possessed by an evil spirit or committed a terrible crime, especially cannibalism or withholding food from a starving person, causing his heart to turn to ice. In some Abenaki legends, the stone giants were not transformed humans, but primordial man-eating monsters defeated by the culture hero Kaskavi. Kalowa is a kind of hairy man-eating org from Creek mythology. Some recent Creek storytellers have translated it to gorilla. The Lofa is a malevolent org-like monster of Chickasaw folklore. His name literally means flayer or skinner, a reference to his gruesome habit of flaying the skin from his victims. In some legends, he attempts to abduct Chickasaw women. He is sometimes described as a giant, and other times as a large, hairy, smelly man, leading some people to associate him with the Bigfoot legend. Mashup is a giant who is the cultured hero of Mohegan and Wampanoag tribes, sometimes referred to as a transformer by folklorists. Mashup is strongly associated with whales. In most tribal traditions, he would catch whales to feed the people. And in some stories, Mashup and his children eventually transform into whales themselves. Mashup has a wife named Squanit, who is a powerful medicine woman of the little people. The Shampe is a malevolent org-like monster of Chickasaw folklore. In some legends, he attempts to abduct Choctaw women. In others, he is a man-eater. 
He is sometimes described as a giant and other times as a large, hairy man, leading some people to associate him with the Bigfoot legends as well. His most salient feature is his smell. Champagne's smell is so overpowering that a person cannot bear to be around him, making him difficult to fight. Stoneclad is a monster from Cherokee folklore. Details about Stoneclad vary from telling to telling. In some versions, there is only one, while in other versions, there is a whole race of Stoneclads. He is a stone-skinned giant like the stone coats of the northern Iroquois tribe. In all cases, he has rock-like plates of armor that protect him from fire, cold, and weapons. He's defeated only through sapping his magical power by destroying his talismans. setting a fire at the entrance. 
1754, George Washington was colonel of the Virginia Colonial Militia. When hostilities broke out with France, he supervised construction of Fort Luden in Winchester, Virginia. Laborers digging the fort's foundation uncovered a cemetery of seven-foot skeletons in what appeared to be Native American artifacts. The skeletons were viewed and reported by Washington. It is not known what happened to them. This discovery gives credibility to reports of seven-foot-tall skeletons discovered in West Virginia, Kentucky, Southern Ohio, and Southern Indiana. Thousands of years ago, giants roamed the West. Their crude camps and ferocious ways terrorized the early native settlers that had wandered across the land bridge into the North American continent and traveled south and westward into what later became the West and Great Southwest of the United States. Tribes still speak of these ancient days when their ancestors fought desperate battles against the marauding, loping giants, some towering 12 feet tall or taller, that roamed the land, viciously attacking settlements, brutally carrying off screaming women and wailing children for food. that exist today, most have barely been investigated. The few gigantic skeletons found in some have been dismissed or suppressed as aberrations. Ten and twelve foot humans do not fit dogmatic theories. Usually, when giant skeletons are found, they're laughed off as hoaxes. Unfortunately, orthodox science has too much to lose by investigating the mounds thoroughly. Archaeologists cannot deny that the mound builders are real. What they deny are the things sometimes discovered inside the mounds. Over the past century and a half, it's been revealed again and again that some of the mounds and the small pyramids are the burial grounds of huge men, often eight feet or taller, that had a very sophisticated culture. Some of the giants have been found wearing intricate leather armor and have been buried with swords. One such giant was found near Spiro Mound in Oklahoma during the 1930s. Who were these mysterious people that roamed America long before the woolly mammoths became extinct? Were they our ancestors or another race of giant humans from a civilization that predates our own? From the time settlers first set foot on American soil, we have been finding evidence of giants. Most of this evidence has been destroyed or sequestered away in order to either hide the truth or make it difficult to quantify artifacts and harder to study. There does appear to be a conspiracy to shelter evidence of giants, and it has been going on 
since science has been aware of the bones and materials associated with these anomalies. Our whole history would change if all the evidence of giants could be revealed. Perhaps our civilization is not yet ready to accept the existence of those lofty beings that roamed the earth centuries ago. Or perhaps others have made that decision for us, and we are left with only scant remnants of a civilization larger than life. Eventually, more evidence and artifacts will be discovered. Perhaps then we'll have a more complete picture of our gigantic history. <laughs> yeah. Jump to the next one. That was wonderful, Mom. This one is called Healing with Sound. Can sound heal humans through frequencies affecting brain waves? Exploring breakthrough discoveries in modern science, experts Greg Braden, Dr. Jeffrey Thompson, Dr. Teresa Ballard, Jonathan Goldman, and others offer insight into research connecting different vibrations of sound with different brain wavelengths, with EEG scans, providing proof of frequency-altering states of consciousness. Researchers are finding more correlations between ancient teachings and indigenous rituals with these scientific secrets of sound that could help heal humanity from the inside out. Let's do it, Rama. This is 26 minutes.
This knowledge was mostly lost to antiquity until recently. When I was in school, I was taught to think in terms of cells as little bags of salt water and fragile neurons and tissue. But the new science is telling us that the average human has about 50 trillion cells in the body, and every one of those cells has an electrical potential of about 0.07 volts. It is about 3.5 trillion volts of electrical potential that we have access to in our bodies for healing. Each part of your body has a certain vibration that it needs to have in order to be in a harmonious state, a coherent state, a healthy state. When it gets into a disharmonious state, that's when it gets into a diseased state where illness starts to set in. When healthy, all parts of the body resonate in coherence with harmonic vibrations, which we could call sound health. Frequency plus intent equals healing, which means the sound we make coupled with the intention or the consciousness we put on the sound creates the outcome of the sound. And this includes our voice. So we want to use sound in a very coherent, very intentional way to help us heal. The human body is an elaborate instrument with its own natural maintenance system. Every cell is a transistor. Every cell is a resistor. Every cell is a capacitor. We are gated circuits. We are photon emitters, photon receivers. We store and retrieve information. And we do all of these things with the ability to self-regulate. We are the only form of life that can self-regulate this soft technology that we have in our bodies. The human motherboard includes two vital centers, the heart and the brain. Our brain puts out an electromagnetic field. Our heart puts out an electromagnetic field. When they are locked in resonance or synchrony together, that's called heart-brain coherence. It is interesting that the word heart contains both the words ear and hear. It does seem to be the case that words and music can touch us very deeply emotionally on a heart level. Combined with music's ability to structure brain waves, the head and the heart can come into coherence producing a vast expansion of the biofield and at times expanding the consciousness into mystical states. When you work with sound, you get into a place of deep breathing and deep gratitude and appreciation in order to achieve heartbreak coherence. And then if you tone a sound like an ah, which is a great sound for the heart center, the ah, or a hum, it is possible to create an interface between yourself, other people, but also what I call the Gaia matrix, the electromagnetic field of our planet.
day, we learn more about the full potential of this heart-brain synergy. Now, with the discovery of neurons in the human heart, and the understanding of the heart and the brain, two organs function as one system. They work together. It's giving us new ways to think about our relationship to the world around us, about our relationship to sound, vibration, and matter. Because as we achieve the higher brain and heart states, what we're doing is we're resonating with elements, dimensions of reality beyond what we have known in the past. Various brain states can be achieved by stimulating the entire brain using a technique called brain entrainment. I can expose you to a sound that's pulsing at a brainwave speed, and your brainwaves will try to time themselves to this drum beat because it's the most dominant one in my environment, and that's called brainwave entrainment. Ancient spiritual leaders likely used brain entrainment to guide individuals into expanded states of consciousness. In ancient shamanic cultures, they used to have the drumming or the didgeridoo. The shaman would create a certain rhythm with the drum, like a heartbeat rhythm, for example. You'll see that the speed of that drumbeat is about five hertz. It's sort of like that is about five hertz right there, and that means that I'm tapping the drum at a brainwave speed called theta. Theta is where your brainwaves go when you're dreaming in sleep, and that means that if I start pounding this drum. Your brainwaves, which are awake in beta function, will slow down and cross over the borderline into alpha at about 13 hertz, 12, 11, 10, 9, and finally get down to this 5 hertz in beta and lock onto it. And this would then take them into an altered state, and they would go on a shamanic journey, for example. And if I speed the drum beat up, my brainwaves will follow. If I slow it down, my brainwaves will follow. And we can see all this on EEG. Long-term practitioners of meditation, such as Tibetan monks, exhibit an even higher level of consciousness, now known as gamma. Gamma waves can link all parts of the brain simultaneously. When I was in school. I was taught that there are four brain states, but it was the meditators in the Tibetan monasteries that began to show Western scientists that we're only beginning to understand the brain. That there's much more than those four brain states. Now we know there is a brain state that is called gamma, between 30 and 100 cycles per second. When the Tibetan meditators showed the scientists that, they said, "Okay, well, we rewrite the textbooks." The Tibetans said, "Well." If we do a different kind of meditation, we can exceed this. And then they learned about a brain state called hypergamma. So what we're beginning to understand is that we are only beginning to understand <laughs> our potential and our capacity 
I was involved in some testing of brainwave biofeedback equipment, which shows on a computer screen the various levels of the brainwaves in real time. This allows one to learn to modify the brainwaves in response to the feedback. I wasn't able to produce any of the gamma frequencies, which are above 40 hertz, except while I was playing the didgeridoo, where the gamma feedback went to the very top level. So perhaps playing this ancient instrument helps to entrain the brain waves to simulate expanded states of consciousness. Scientists have recently discovered that brain entrainment can bridge the right and left hemispheres in remarkable ways. The next step, which was the stupendous, knock the world on its ear sort of discovery, was what happens when you put headphones on? What if we weren't pounding an actual drum? What if we did something with something called binaural beats, where you have two sounds, 100 hertz, 105 hertz, and that's now revealed a pure quirk of neurophysiology functioning that this hemisphere listens this, this ear and this one listens to this ear and the ear is going, excuse me over here, are you hearing what I'm hearing? Across the corpus callosum, the right brain and the left brain are trying to talk to each other and they're trying to find agreement with each other of what are we hearing from the environment around us. In all of our biological evolution, there's never a time where it's possible for one ear to hear something where the other one doesn't hear it because sound disperses everywhere. It's an active brainwave entrainment process as opposed to a passive entrainment process through speakers. And it doesn't just synchronize left to right. It synchronizes left to right, front to back, top down. Only with the headphones on, where the ears can't hear what the other ear is doing, do you get the synchronizing of the hemispheres. It's where all of this amazing stuff happens in the brain. On the EEG, when we analyze people, at the moment you solve a problem, bang, hemispheres synchronize and fall back apart. At the moment I have a new, original, out-of-the-box idea, bang, and these come apart. A spiritual revelation, bang, comes apart. What are the benefits of this synchronized zone? The possibilities might literally and figuratively be mind-boggling. Now, for the first time in our biological evolution, we have a situation where we're floating the brain for prolonged periods of time in this synchronicity zone. Now you can use that as a tool to find out what frequencies to use precise to a couple of decimal points, will bring it back to zero so that the master system that tells all systems what to do is now in a state of balance. Using these techniques, we can potentially assist the brain in aligning or balancing our organs, glands, meridians, chakras, and more. Or we can tune our bodies by using simpler sonic remedies.
know, for example, that strumming a guitar or stringed instruments can bring a peaceful and calming effect to our cardiovascular system. Wind instruments also bring a sense of peace and calm. Organs can actually organize the cerebrospinal fluid in our spinal column and awaken our consciousness. Violins tend to engender a feeling of compassion. Listening to or playing music is one of the few things that can light up the whole brain as seen on EEG scanners. Music connects the corpus callosum, which bridges the right and left hemispheres of the brain and stimulates the use of the whole brain simultaneously. It can help the brain to go into coherence, which stimulates higher functioning. A physical instrument can be very useful, but not crucial to healing. Mantras have been used for thousands of years in many different traditions. Mantra, a Sanskrit term, means mind tool. And it is intended to help train the mind to focus. Since the mind generates frequencies and thoughts constantly, the intention of the use of mantras can help to entrain the frequency of the mind's thoughts to cosmic wisdom. Whether it's Amen, Om, Shalom, these are sounds from different traditions that are very similar. There are neurological benefits from the use of chanting a word either aloud or even silently. Ancient techniques for healing are also available. You can go to a sound healer and you have some that work with shamanic tools like drums, the didgeridoo, where you have the crystal singing bowls, There's all kinds of different sound instruments that can be used. With the crystal bowls, it feels like it's opening up into this almost angelic-like realm of frequency that people feel very open to. They feel almost like there's this divine feminine or angelic energy that is singing to them. And there's something about that that really calms the nervous system. Every person has a particular net grid matrix of energy in their subtle bodies that have particular energetic nodal points that we think of as chakras and acupuncture points, and then energetic connections between them. Probably best known today would be the acupuncture meridians, but there are many others as well known to ancient cultures. And so one of the great secrets of the ancient traditions 
is to know what types of vibrational qualities to apply to the energy field or to specific energy centers to be able to ripen them like a plant growing from a seed. The word chakra originates from the Sanskrit language and it means wheel. They are essentially vortexes of spinning energy interacting with various physiological, neurological, and emotional systems within the body. Each chakra has its own vibrational frequency, which is depicted through a certain color, musical tone, geometry, and planet. Your body is vibration. It's incredibly receptive to sound, and it's receiving sound and wants to come in resonance with it. Sound vibration is moving through your tissues, through the water of your body. And these frequencies have the ability to move in and act actually as a technology to bring you back into resonance, to bring your body back into harmony. And the visceral feeling once you leave a sound healing by using these different notes is that you feel your nervous system relax. You feel that your heart may be more open. When I work with people therapeutically, I work with the simplest intervals possible, meaning C and G. It's the first interval that happens in the harmonic series besides an octave. In Chinese culture, in ancient cultures, in Ayurvedic cultures, and so on, C and G was considered the interval of the perfect balance of yin and yang. It was considered the interval of the perfect dance of Shiva and Shakti. This is C, this is G. There's two ways to play. We could tap them. You could hear the overtones ringing. And you can move your body like this, like Tai Chi or Qigong, and you move with the sound. It's a form of active meditation. Or we could tap them on your knees or even your elbows. And they'll ring like this. And that's when we hold them in their ears for a quiet, still meditation. And we do this, this kind of meditation once in the morning, once at night, and it's consistent. It will begin to ingrain the ability to return to coherence. This concept can be extended to harmonize large groups as well. If you have a thousand tuning forks in an auditorium, and there's 50% of them that are C-sharp, and you ring a C-sharp tuning fork, all the other C-sharp in the room, because they have the right distance of the fork, will start oscillating, and that is called sympathetic resonance. <laughs> so things can oscillate or resonate in sympathetic modes, Understanding these principles of resonance and sympathetic resonance can allow us to actually understand how to build very advanced technology instruments that are resonating 
in energetic field of space and time. And now you have access to incredible amount of energy, incredible amount of forces, the gravitational force, the electromagnetic force, and so on. This advanced scientific theory has deep connections to the past. The ancient Egyptians seem to have been onto this. The belief is that the pyramid was a giant speaker that bathed the entire Egyptian civilization in a resonant tone that brought peace, that brought harmony, that brought prosperity. We could literally set up a means whereby masses of people could be listening to the same pieces of music and be activating aspects of our consciousness, healing our body, and literally bathing our culture in frequencies that engender prosperity, peace, love, joy. And each of us can start with ourselves. We can also become the tuning fork. When we can learn to control our own rhythms and be a strong resonator, we can put the right frequencies out into the field around us, and that can then entrain others into our field. What inventions and discoveries might arise from this new era of sound science? To begin, we can reduce or even eradicate disease. We know now that all matter resonates at a specific frequency. And if you look, for example, at a cancer tumor, obviously the atoms in that tumor are resonating at a frequency. If you can isolate the frequency of the atoms in the tumor, and you can use a sound device to create a resonant frequency that actually cancels it out, all of a sudden, you can destroy that tumor, leaving all the healthy tissue around it untouched. I had a dream that one day I would hopefully be able to learn how to work with DNA using sound and light to be able to play DNA like keys on a piano keyboard. That we could turn off certain markers that would be potentially harmful to us or putting us at greater risk of greater and more significant illnesses. And also that we could really play to our own strengths. I always saw DNA with its adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine combinations and nucleotide pairs as actually being musical relationships right from the very beginning. We haven't figured it out fully yet, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence and emerging new scientific evidence that would suggest that we are not very far away from being able to deliver on that dream. And collectively, we can align in spirit. Never in the past, in all of our history, have we had the tools with brain entrainment and binaural beats through headphones to link tens of thousands of millions of people together. It's never been possible before. That gives us an edge on tipping the quantum field. As we achieve the higher brain and heart states, what we're doing is we're resonating with elements, dimensions of reality beyond what we have known in the past, but very, very real. 
And these are the foundations of what our most ancient and cherished spiritual traditions have always led us to embrace. Science is only now catching up with the practices of our ancestors. Everything needs to move towards sound healing. It's going to be healthier, it's going to be safer, and it's going to have better results. We believe that now all the research that we're conducting is leading us ever closer to a future of sound healing rather than pharmacologic healing and a new paradigm for medicine itself. Yes. There are harmonic overtones produced by the movement of celestial bodies. Next, on Sound of Creation, we explore the mysterious music of the spheres. Yes, no more pharmaceutical nightmares. <laughs> Beautiful sound, tone, healing, wonderful. This next one is called Beyond Belief with Mr. George Nuri, Forgotten Fragments from the Fertile Crescent. Could the secrets of humanity be written in the past? Analyzing breakthroughs in archaeology, and his studies of sacred texts, forgotten tablets, and mysterious megaliths, author and researcher Matthew LaCroix explains the significance of different ancient civilizations on earth, discussing what we can learn from these mysterious mysteries of antiquity. LaCroix explores Baalbek, Eridu, Sumer, the Cradle of Civilization, and the Fertile Crescent to illuminate the missing links between lost wonders of our world. Matthew LaCroix is currently co-writing a book titled The Epic of Humanity with researcher Billy Carson. Okay, this is 42 Minutes. Here we go. of Eridu. They went out in the University of Oxford in the 1940s, went out, identified where the site was, walked around, took pictures, and as far as I know, never returned. What do you mean never returned? That's <laughs> that's the ultimate question. If you have something like this that's so fundamentally important, how could something like that just slip through the cracks and disappear? How would you compare some of these structures to modern day buildings today? I think that we're still trying to catch up with what they knew. Wow. The one block that's shown there is the largest single block in the world. It's called the Trilithon, and it weighs 1,100 tons. We have machinery today that can't move that. Isn't that amazing? Welcome to Beyond Belief. We've got a great guest for you, Matthew LaCroix, an author and researcher. And while attending college, he began studying archaeology, history, philosophy, and quantum mechanics. 
Matthew, welcome to Beyond Belief. Great to have you. Thanks, George. It's great to be here. By the way, I'm still getting response from the radio show you did with us four years ago. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed those coast-to-coast shows with you, and I, that's why I've been so looking forward to sitting down to talk to you again. How did you get involved in ancient archaeology and civilizations? Well, it really wasn't a path that I planned for. It was something that sort of fell right into my lap. Aha. By accident, and I, um, it was one of those things that a lot of people talk about being a rabbit hole where you, you sort of glimpse into it a little bit, and then and you want to have deeper more. and deeper. Yeah, and exactly. Deeper. You just keep wanting to ask more and more questions, and then before you know it, you're all the way down, and you're looking at things in a completely different way, and you're, you're, you're trying to understand all these mysteries of the past. These past civilizations are fascinating to investigate, aren't they? Yeah, it captivates my imagination. Try to understand something a culture that's completely gone and vanished to try to imagine how sophisticated they could have been, especially based on the evidence we're looking at. We really get a, a much different picture of, of those civilizations than just being nomadic hunter-gatherers that then all of a sudden eventually became civilized. Sure. It's, a, it's a very different story. Matthew, where do you think the cradle of civilization began? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And I think the history books do get that right with being the Fertile Crescent of Mesopotamia, near the confluence of the, the Tigris and Euphrates River. Which oh, is modern-day Iraq. Right? Exactly, right. which a lot of this instability in those areas preventing a lot of archaeologists from getting to those ancient sites. But I really do think that as we're going to get in and talk about, we're talking about multiple epics of different groups that have been there rather than just one group. The epics of Gilgamesh and stuff like that. Yeah, and that's one of the, one of the great sets of tablets that I, I love to read and, and find some of the secrets in there. The late Zechariah Sitchin was obsessed with the Anunnaki, which he claims came to us from another planet called Nibiru, which is on a 3,600-year elliptical orbit. It comes and goes. Every time it gets close, there's some kind of major Earth change, and then it goes away again. But he claims they came here, seeded us, because they needed workers to pull gold out of the planet. What do you think of that theory? Well, I, I, I want to give Zechariah Sitchin credit for really getting the narrative started. He was the one who brought a lot of these really mysterious texts that a lot of people thought were just poems or parables, and he brought this to life, talking about the Anunnaki, right. what their role was with our our story and how we came here and, and how we came about with civilization rising and the influences that they had. And so to me... He was the pioneer behind it, but I wanted to know more. I, I wanted to understand directly from the tablets, and that was one of the things that I became one of my major focuses was finding out who translated them most accurately and then really getting in and studying them for years and years and years to really understand what this ancient story was. So, Matthew, let's look at some of these tablets, and maybe you can kind of interpret them for us. Sure. Here's our first one. What is this? So the first tablet we're going to be reading is not one that most people are aware of. It was one that I did some digging, digging and actually found. And to me, it, it connected to so many other tablets. Where that did I you read. find it? This is just one of the ones where you, you, the University of Oxford has a great library okay. um, cataloging a lot of these. So the tablet essentially describes how kingship descended down from heaven. And the, the first place that kingship was lowered to was Eridu. And then it goes on to talk about how in Eridu, Aluem became the king, and it talks about this extended amount of years that he ruled for. And it goes through, and it keeps mentioning how er, uh, the city would fall, and the kingship was taken to another city. And, uh, and then it goes on and on and on. But the part that I also particularly want to point out is at the end, when it mentions here, it says at the end, then Sippar fell, and the kingship was taken to Sharupak. 
And if you see right below Shrupak, it says, then the flood swept over, giving us, George, a way to try to measure when this event occurred. Because if we're able to understand when that flood was. This is the flood of Noah? That's right. This is the flood, which I've traced back to really looking at things like ice core samples to geology and all these different pieces of evidence to what's known as the Younger Dryas cataclysms, which is around between 12,800 years ago and about 11,000 years ago. Now, they talk about the king ruling for 28,000 years, a king ruling for 36,000 years. How can that be? It's it's so mysterious, isn't it, George? And one of the things that is the challenge behind this was that they didn't actually catalog these or record them in years. They recorded them as known as shards. And so the shards represented a certain amount of time, and interpreting that amount of time has been has been difficult. Who do you think the authors were? Of those tablets? Well, that's a good question because one of the things you find that when you look at the Sumerians, the ancient Sumerians of Mesopotamia, and then you look at later cultures like the Akkadians and the Babylonians, you find versions of those tablets that were rewritten and translated in the later groups, uh-huh. but they all translate from the ancient Sumerian stories originally. Let's look at our second tablet and tell us what this is. This is fascinating. What are we looking at here, Matt? So here we go. We have another one of these tablets that really brings the same types of information we find for the previous tablet in here. And this this tablet is known as the Area of Genesis. And I want to point out that notice the very the, the same type of language that's used, George. We see this royal scepter from heaven, the same thing as kingship, just another way of saying kingship. Yeah. When it was lowered from heaven, it talks about how it was brought down and the first city was created. And as it says, just like the other tablet. Eridu was the first city created. So it mimics, the tablets mimic each other with the same information. Now the name over there, Nudamid, is actually another name for Enki, meaning that the first city ever created was basically given to this leader, Enki. And that provides us with some background to try to understand when these cities existed, who ruled in in those cities, and what the influences were of those. Where is modern-day Arudu now, do you think? So that's a great question. One of the areas that I've really studied is is as, is trying to figure that out, right? Where is Eridu? Where are these places? Yeah. If it's the if it's the first city ever created for civilization and it's carried over by tablet after tablet, to me, it would be one of the most important ancient sites in the world. Absolutely. Well, one of the things and you find George, be some remnants of this. Yeah. That's right. right. And one of the things that you'll find is that there was a, an archaeological dig that was done in the 1940s by the University of Oxford. And they went out into into Iraq, in, into the near the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, and they found the ancient ruins of Eridu sitting out in the desert. And if you go and, and you look into images, which we're I think we're going to be showing one of those coming up, you see this this giant area of disturbed ground in the middle of the desert, and there's there's nothing around it guarding it. There's no fences. There's no tourism. There's no archaeologists doing digs. It's just there. They went out in the University of Oxford in the 1940s, went out, identified where the site was, walked around, took pictures, and as far as I know, never returned. What do you mean never returned? That's that's the ultimate question. If you have something like this that's so fundamentally important, well, how could something like that just slip through the cracks and disappear? And to this day, it's sitting in the middle of the desert without any kind of archaeological study being done on it, it's largely being ignored by modern academics. See, if you had to guess the complexity of the space, the, how big is it? It's enormous. It contains its own ziggurat, as well as other um, remnants of temples and many, many other structures, but it's so ancient that all we have left are 
largely sand that's blowing up and over it and buried it underneath layers and layers of debris and, and sediment. Matthew, when they found the Sphinx in Egypt, it was up to sand, was up to its eyes practically, you know, just the little top of it was sticking out. Would that be the same thing as the city of Rido? That's right. It seems like rather than history all falling to this 6,000-year window, things are much older than modern academia wants to give credit for. And so what we find is that different time periods of cultures that came and went and then other civilizations found their remnants, their ruins, and either built on top of it or it just remained in the desert and sand blew in until it was almost covered up. Why aren't they digging it out? Well, that's a, again, that's that question that, that takes you down that rabbit hole of just like we mentioned with Eridu, this amazingly important ancient site sitting there in a war-torn region that is being ignored and not even being uncovered. It really begs the question of, is this just disrupting the narrative that's been established for civilizations in human history? And perhaps those, those things that don't fit in, that those pieces of archaeology that don't fit that narrative are just quietly being pushed to the side. Are there any megalithic structures there? There is. There's actually one in Iraq. And the, and the reason why I don't think there's more megalithic structures there is the type of geology. But there is one. It's known as Kinnis Rock. And it's actually just a little bit north of Nineveh, near the ancient um, aqueducts of Jerwan. And there is, um, in in Nineveh, there's a place called Kinnis Rock. And it's this massive rock relief on uh, on a vertical plane. And it basically has the Assyrian versions of the Sumerian gods um, of Enlil and his concert and consort and there and her his name in that is Assur. And he's up on this massive rock relief, basically passing knowledge to these other civilizations. And it's so ancient though, George, that you a lot of it is broken away and there's only pieces of it that remain. But just like Eridu nearby, it's not being studied at all. It's just it's just sitting there largely ignored today. Are there structures, megalithic structures, all over the planet, Matthew? There is, and some of them are much more sophisticated than others. But in what we really do find is that when we can trace the type of uh, building practices, no mortar, no brick and mortar, but using straight, giant megalithic structure rocks and basically carving them to such precision that you can't even fit a human hair or a piece of paper through them. Right. When we can identify that type of stone masonry, we know that that's one of what I, what I call the lost civilizations, those ancient cultures that had advanced building practices and knowledge and even tools that became wiped out and disappeared, and then cultures came later. Just gone, like the pyramids. That's right, and they tried to mimic them, but they weren't able to. How would you compare some of these structures to modern-day buildings today? I think that we're still trying to catch up with what they knew. Wow. I know, and that seems hard for some people to wrap their heads around, but if you go to a place like the Valley Temple of Egypt, or you go across the world or into Peru, and you go to Oyate Tambo or Saskia Human, and, or you look at any of those areas, um, Machu Picchu, where some of the older structures are, some of the precision that's with those stone masonry is from a lot, a lot of the experts that have gone to look at it, even beyond our capability today. On the Gaia show, Ancient Civilizations, Andrew Collins talks about Baalbek in Lebanon. It's an amazing structure, as you well know. Baalbek is one of the big enigmas which, of which there is very little answers. We're talking about a huge complex that was constructed during Roman times. A massive temple dedicated to the god Jupiter. Amongst the foundations 
of this incredible complex are stone blocks weighing around a thousand tons apiece. But the big question comes, did they reuse those stones, those big ones, the thousand tonners? That's the thing. And if they did reuse them, who the hell created those stones in the first place? And why so large? That's incredible what he just said, eh, Matthew? What do you think? To me, when I've studied the megalithic ruins around the world, like we mentioned, not just being something like Stonehenge, but more of using massive blocks to connect together to create some kind of an incredible structure, what you find is that Baalbek was where they perfected their megalithic tool design to create these blocks. Andrew Collins did a great job showing some of those huge blocks oh that are on some of the lower parts. How did they move them? Absolutely amazing. We don't really know, but I will tell you, George, that the one block that's shown there is the largest single block in the world. It's called the Trilithon, and it weighs 1,100 tons. We have machinery today that can't move that. Isn't that amazing to try to – and they've actually had um, construction workers look at some of those those enormous blocks to try to understand and. Our largest cranes today would have difficulty, if not, not even be able to move some of those blocks. What do you think happened, Matthew, with the knowledge that simply disappeared? I mean, they had a civilization. Yeah. Obviously, they made these structures. We don't know how. But where did the information go from that point to where we are today? It's gone. Yeah, so what we find when we look at a combination of ancient writings and geologic evidence and ice core samples, we really find that there have been cyclical series of cataclysms, these disasters that have happened on the earth. And they seem, and it seems like the ancient cultures knew about them though. And they created temples to try to map the heavens to try to understand when they would happen. But when you look at an example like Baalbek, there's actually a quarry near Baalbek where they were quarrying those, those enormous stones. And when you, you find is that the largest stones were actually not even taken out of the ground yet. They were in the middle of working on them. And what you find is still there. Yeah, they're still there, and they never got a chance to take them out of the ground, which means that instead of their culture having some kind of a slow downfall, it was a rapid end to their culture. Exactly, and all, all the work stopped out of nowhere, just like we find in Aswan, Egypt, with the giant obelisk and a lot of the other structures on the world. These cultures had a very rapid end to their, their building, and they largely disappeared after that. And this disappeared. Could it have been in a craft, and off they went? The The disappearance of... The technologies and the wisdom that they had, we don't really know where it went. Could it be ET information? Well, we, we, that's the thing is we're not really sure where it came from. And we can try to perhaps connect the Anunnaki for being perhaps these wisdom bringers that provided some of this knowledge. But we don't truly understand. But one of the peculiar things that a great researcher, Brian Forrester, I'm sure you're aware of. Good guy. Yeah, absolutely. He's one of my favorites. Um, he points out that we don't find any tools anywhere in the world. Nowhere. Not one. Nowhere. Exactly. So where did they go? And that's one of the bizarre things about this is that if whoever built those left, it would make sense that the tools they had, they took with them. Right. I mean, that's the only explanation. It's not like they buried them, did they? In the Hall of Records somewhere? Well, if they buried them, we would have found something by now. So they're all gone. That's right. And, and those cultures that came after them tried to mimic them in many ways. Machu Picchu is actually a great example for those who want to go look at those and check out images or visit the site. But you find those incredibly precise blocks on the lower levels. And on the top, 
what we think of as the Inca, you find more primitive brick and mortar where they were trying to mimic them, but they they had nowhere near the knowledge that those previous cultures So on one hand, Matthew, it's exciting, but it's also frustrating, isn't it? It is because there's such a lack of coordination with the, the academic world to get in there and actually study these. And so it's left to individuals that are just doing this because it's a passion thing for them. Because they want to. They love this. Yeah. They, we, we, As you do. Yeah, we truly love this because it is a, it is, um, an un, it's uncovering the truth, the truth of the past that has been buried and remains a mystery to most of society. I'm going to ask you to speculate. Sure. What do you think happened to these civilizations? A lot of that, there's been two, t- two camps, I think, on the, on this side of looking at it. One camp looks at this as, some kind of an ancient cataclysm from a series of comets or asteroids. And then the other camp, individuals like Robert Schock, look at this from some kind of a solar event, some kind of a mass, corona mass ejection or a solar outburst. It still doesn't explain how the tools have disappeared. That's right. It, it, it like doesn't. That. But the only thing that is interesting, though, George, is when you read some of those tablets, it mentions how the Anunnaki actually created that that event to occur on Earth, that deluge, that destructive event. And they mention how... They left. It actually states in that they left here with, during that event. So maybe they brought those tools back with them in a craft somewhere. We don't know. That's actually when one of most say left. What do you mean by that? Well, it gets it's so peculiar, George, because in places all around the world, Saudi Arabia, all the way down through South America, we find these giant doorways, these gateways, gateways to the gods, where it just seems to go nowhere. It's just a giant stone doorway, either in a like rock portals behind it or something. That's right. It seems like there was technology that once existed Whoa. that no longer is around anymore. And, and all that, all those technologies that they had to, to utilize those things are gone. And now we just look at some kind of a, a rock structure and it doesn't really make any sense to us. They open this portal, in they go, and they're gone. It, the, from as much as that I've studied this, really looking at the Anunnaki and these ancient influences of them, it seems like the doorway theory of being able to travel somewhere makes more sense to me than than a craft. David Politis in his book Missing 411 talks about how people simply vanish in state parks. Yeah. They're just gone. And it could be very well the same possibility that they're stumbling into some other portal or dimension that you can't see and they never can, can come back. That's a great point. I, I don't think we fully understand, even though we think we're so advanced in our modern society today, I think there's a lot of the nature of reality and understanding these types of ancient mysteries that we just don't understand today. Do you think a catastrophe occurred primarily? Or yeah, do you think or a series of catastrophes, actually, George. Okay. Seems like maybe there would have been several in, in a row because when I study these tablets – and when how they state that these different epics occurred with these kingships in these different cities, I've actually separated into three different time periods, meaning that there were likely two, potentially three of these events. Could they happen again? Catastrophes? Well, that's the that's the, the big question, right? When you, if you look at this and you you look at ice core samples from Greenland, they try to get a snapshot for when these types of events occur. It seems like they fall around a twelve to thirteen thousand year cycle. Which, if you were to look at when that last occurred, based on what we, we mentioned during the Younger Dryas, we're right in that, that time period right now. There are many symbols all around this planet of the ancient worlds. Tell me about that. Symbols hold 
in my opinion, the greatest secrets of all. And it's, it's one of the most difficult things though, because you have a linear way to look at it and then you have a symbolic way to look at right. it. And so the challenge is to try to blend those to, to find the truth, because I do think that you, you have to take both sides of that to understand it. But the, the ancient cultures were absolutely brilliant. They were able to create a symbol that represented an entire representation of what they were trying to say in one single depiction. And once you understand what those depictions are, you can get a, a glimpse into what really happened back in the, long ago. Give us some examples, Matt, of some of these symbols. What could yeah, they sure. Um, so if someone was to go to the hospital and, or they see an ambulance go by, you see that's the rod of Asclepius, the, the rod with the serpents wound around right. it. Right. Right. And then you see the, the wings of Hermes on the, the Caduceus symbol. These are ancient symbols, but yet today the serpent is considered demonized by a lot of religious groups and, and, sure. and modern academia. It doesn't make any sense if it's this, it's this symbol that represents health and higher consciousness and ascension. It's a medical symbol. That's what I think. That's right. Whereas on the other side, you see symbols like the eagle as well, which have I, I believe have been completely inverted to their opposite representations. The serpent always represented knowledge and reaching higher states of energy and consciousness. What about the symbols of, like, the pine cone? What does that mean? Yeah, so the pine cone is another one of these extremely important symbols. Once you start looking at things like the eagle and the serpent, and then you get into things like the pine cone, and what we find, George, is that the pine cone has been shown in, a, in these, like, these lost civilization locations around the world. We find giant murals with these pine cones being depicted in every one of these right. locations nearly around the world, and they're always shown the same way. They hold, they hold the pine cone in their hand and they point it towards someone. Like it's some object of some kind. And what I've, what I believe based on what I've studied on what that pine cone means is the pine cone represents the passing of knowledge. And so. Interesting. So if you were pointing a pine cone at someone, it would be you providing knowledge. And I mean knowledge of everything. It's not just knowledge of one area. It is the totality of all knowledge. What about a handbag? So the handbag is another one of these mysterious symbols that is always present or almost always present with the pine cone. So the way I try to figure things out is once you know what one symbol is, it'll often have connections to the other. So in this case, the pine cone was a passing of knowledge and the handbag was being held to their side. That was what, what that was what this sacred pine cone was supposed to be inside. They're, they're both symbolic. So it would be where you would carry the knowledge. Where all, the totality of all the knowledge would be the handbag, and then the pine cone would be the passing of knowledge to those civilizations. Where do you find all these symbols? You find them all over the world, actually. And if you were to sit down and really study them, and just do like a little search for pine cone and handbag, you'll see that they're depicted in nearly every one of these regions around the world where we find this mysterious evidence of these more advanced buildings and more advanced building practices and, and more of the, the types of writings that tend to to be much more ancient and go back to the times when we we have this information that tells us about those. Mysteries. Are these symbols etched on blocks of stone or anything like that? They're they're beautifully drawn. Actually, the the art in some of these murals and stellas is is truly incredible. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about them, George, is you can you can stare at them for hours because every single little thing that was drawn has some kind of a meaning to it, some kind of a symbolic meaning. Um, and so we, by understanding what those murals and stellas say, say, what they're trying to depict, you can, even though you don't have potentially words to go with it, you can understand a story based on just what the depiction is trying to represent. What would you say, Matthew, in your career is the most bizarre symbol you've come across so far? The most bizarre symbol, that's a good one. Um, 
Well, I, I, I guess early on, the swastika symbol was always um, a very strange symbol because I grew up thinking, oh, this is just an evil Nazi symbol, you know, all my life. Right. Realizing that the swastika was just an ancient symbol you know, that cultures had. The Nazis made it evil. It exactly. wasn't evil until they, they, they took it and they turned it into a symbol to use for a very bad reason. Whereas those symbols were just all taken from much more ancient cultures. Interesting. Interesting. Who are the symbol makers? Well, it's, it seems like all roads lead back to the Anunnaki. Every time I, I do this research, and I feel like every time I, I want to look for influences of other connections somewhere, it just seems to always lead back to this group of the Anunnaki, which I do believe may be a group of potentially beings from from other from many different places, not just Absolutely. one. It's just it's a term used for to blanket their, their the entire group of. Sort of, you know, think about beings that are not from here, that are ascended beings that are not from here. Well, I think Sitchin was on to something with his theories, don't you? Absolutely. He, as I said, Sitchin paved the, the, the way for all of this to understand what kind of influences they had here and how they influenced our story. And I think that our story goes hand in hand with the Anunnaki. In fact, I think we are in many ways them but a version that's much different than it used to be. There are some experts who do not agree with Zechariah Sitchin. They, they think his interpretation of the Sumerian tablets are all screwed up and wrong. I have come to, when I really looked at this and I came to say, I want to know what this story really was, and I want to know if Sitchin was telling the truth. Right. Would I find that he, he did make some really, really good points, but there were some areas that I did disagree with, and that was where... I began to truly cross-reference and study those tablets to try to see what that story was. And he definitely got us the right the right direction on that. There was just some minor areas that I disagreed with, just in terms of what the purposes of certain numbers are and certain certain um, origin stories and things like that. I had the honor of giving him a Lifetime Achievement Award at one of the Conscious Life Expo events several years ago before he died, obviously. And he's on stage, and I'm giving him the award and at that time, I didn't know exactly how old he was. He ended up being 90 years old when he died. Wow. But I asked him, I said, in front of this crowd, uh, Mr. Sitchin, congratulations, here you are. How old are you? And he turned to the microphone and went, George, that's very rude. <laughs> but <laughs> that's the kind of guy he was. Yeah, yeah. But the work he did investigating the Anunnaki and piecing things together, I thought was absolutely fa fabulous. Well, we don't know where you'd be right now with this research if it wasn't for him. I mean, exactly. We we think about it where some of these experts have come and translated these tablets, but then they get buried in some obscure book somewhere because they're not considered the significance of what they really represent. Because mainstream academia is really um, handcuffed with with how far they can go talking about some of these topics. In your opinion. What does the Anunnaki represent? Who are they? They they represent the keys to this entire story. How civilizations came out of being nomadic hunter-gatherers. How all the knowledge of astronomy, mathematics, metallurgy, um, agriculture, where everything originated from. That the, And it's not just someone's opinion. The Sumerians come out and clearly say that. They state that all of that was handed down from above to them. Not that they discovered it somehow. How could they make that up if it didn't happen? Exactly. And how could the Sumerians have detailed accounts of where all the planets are and their ratios without the use of a telescope? A absolutely. There are some tablets that depict the solar system that 
They couldn't tell without a telescope. They didn't have that kind of equipment. That's right. Somebody it's, told them something. That cylinder seal is called VA243, and it depicts an exact representation of our solar system thousands of years before the first telescope was invented. Yeah, how do, how do you explain this? It, to me, it would just be knowledge that had to have been provided to them. Either that or they had some ability to, to later on view view the heavens. We don't really but fully where know. Did it go? Well, that's the mystery. If they have a telescope, where is it? That's the point. Just like, just like the tools being gone. Same thing. We don't, we don't know. But one of the things I will point out is that some of these time periods that I've tried to lay out, some of the timeline work that I've done based on those tablets would put some of the early groups of the Sumerians much, much older than we're told. If the Anunnaki seeded us, do you think they are the ones who continue to come back? All these UFO reports that we get and they're just checking up on their farm? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, it, it's interesting, though, when you look at other texts, you look at ancient Hebrew texts like the Book of Enoch, you look at uh, ancient Vedic texts, the Bhagavad Gita and others, they keep mentioning these groups that watch us, that just watch us from from, from beyond. And the Sumerian tablets, they call them the Ajiji, whereas Ijiji. these other writings, they call them the Watchers. And they seem to be associated with, like you mentioned, some kind of beings that seem to be watching just observing how, yes. how things are going here. How how did we do? That's what they're, they're probably yeah, right? thinking. Yeah, like how is human civilization doing Maybe now? Maybe the right? next experiment will make them a little different. Yeah, I know. And it, hopefully there won't be a next experiment, right? Exactly. We've got another last tablet I want to look at and have you interpret it for us. Let's take a look. What are we looking at here, man? Okay, so this is one of my favorite tablets of all. This is called the Legend of Atana. Now, right there, you get the name Legend, which oh, makes. I'm going to let you read this one. First. Okay, go ahead. And it makes it seem like it's a legend, like it's not real. But the more I study this, it, it goes along with the same comparisons of the same information. So it says, "They planned a city. The gods laid its foundations. They planned the city of Kish. The Ajiji founded its brickwork. Let him be there, the people's shepherd. Let Atana." be their architect. The great Anunnaki gods, ordainers of destinies, sat taking their counsel concerning the land. The creators of the four world regions, establishers of all physical form. Now interpret that for us. This is brilliant to me, George, because what it does is, when we read the, the, the other two tablets, the Sumerian king list in Eridu Genesis, it mentioned how Shurupak was the last city before the flood. But this tablet mentions how Kish was the first city created after the flood. After the flood. Exactly. And we know that because the Sumerian king list mentions that, it mentions that in a separate set of writings. Now I thought the flood wiped out civilization. So who was the one who would have created this new city? Well, that's the thing. There were survivors. There were individuals that did okay. survive. And there were certain bloodline kings that carried on those traits like before. And Atana was one of those bloodline kings. And if, as I, when I read that quote, it wasn't that he just became king because he happened to be powerful and lived there. He was chosen to become king. Very do they, specifically. Do, do they make mention of Noah in anything that you've Ab seen? Absolutely. Um, another tablet called the Atrahasis is the original story of what we think of as the biblical story of Noah. But that name was, was a, a religious name that was used later. His original name was either Atrahasis, Zayasudra, or Untipishti. The Anunnaki themselves had a tremendous influence on our past. What about our present? That's the big question besides when the next cataclysm is, cataclysm is going to come, I think. Mm -hmm. Is that are they still influencing our reality here? Is Are we still under their control? And it's difficult to understand whether or not 
when we look at the control systems that exist here, keeping consciousness suppressed and all the different things that happen, whether or not that's just a bunch of powerful elite secret societies or if it is the under, still under the umbrella of the right. Anunnaki, we don't really know. If you were speaking before a group of archaeological experts and you were showing them slides of the Anunnaki and things like that, what would you tell them? What would your theme be? I would, I would discuss with them how, how could we have these detailed conversations between them discussing mankind and wanting to wipe them out and how they felt bad after if they're simply just this myth and it's symbolic and they're not real. There's so much evidence to prove that there was very, very tangible influences that came from somewhere. Because think about it. Knowledge just can't come from nowhere. It has to come from somewhere. It's got to originate from something. Exactly. And so if a lot of the mainstream doesn't want to acknowledge that the Anunnaki are real deities or beings, they just want to act like it's some kind of a uh, force of nature or something like the connecting to the planets or something like that. But really, I think that they are the keys to the entire story. I would sit back in the crowd if it were me and I would raise my hand and go, Mr. LaCroix, were they extraterrestrial? Did they come here? It, it definitely seems that they came here from somewhere. But the, the big question is where? And we find bits and pieces of evidence here and there. There's actually a really neat um, ancient text that a lot of people aren't familiar with called the Cobra Bible that was actually yes, an Egyptian and Celtic writing. And it, it actually amazing. talks about, yeah, and it mentions that these these creators that created this place here for mankind, they came from someone somewhere far, far away, not of this realm. Do you think God of the Bible, angels of the Bible were extraterrestrial? I think it's all just the same Anunnaki story. I think the angels and demons is just a way to, to show the different uh, roles that they played. I think it's all the same thing. One thing for sure, something absolutely spectacular happened on this planet a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we're we, still seeking out these answers. I feel like the rabbit hole is, is going to just continue to go deeper and deeper because I want to point out that those those tablets that we just read, all of those came from the same ancient library called the Ashurbanipal Library. And when that was uncovered in 1849 by Austin Henry Laird, they found thousands of cuneiform tablets, thousands. And today, George, less than 200 have been translated by modern academics. That's that's astounding. They're sitting on a on a, a dusty back room they're somewhere. They're there somewhere. They're there somewhere. They haven't been destroyed, altered, smashed. Whether or not they're they're all at the University of Oxford, or some of them are kept down in the Vatican archives, we don't know because as as a society that are are seeking these answers, being outside of modern academia, we don't have access to all of these. We just have access to what we're given. Matt, why is it so important that we get these answers? Because if you want to know the the true story of something, you have to go back to the earliest form of it. When we look at things like the the Old and the New Testament, what we find is right. that it's just being rewritten from previous stories. So I wanted to find answers, and I realized that the only way to find those was to go back to the pure source. And that's what cuneiform writing is. It is the oldest form of writing that exists on the planet. And we know that because anything that would be paper records or anything else that's not in a clay tablet wouldn't have survived till today. These tablets that were made were done approximately how long after the events that they talk about? We find that some of the tablets were rewritten from an earlier story and then carried on, but many of those tablets... of years? Thousands of years? Thousands of years. We can trace most of those tablets to well beyond 12,000 years ago. Wow. 
That's astounding. I know to think that a message like that could be preserved, but that's the brilliance behind these Do cultures. Do you think the writers of the tablets are just as baffled and were just as baffled as we are today? I actually think they had a lot more answers than we have today. What if they made this all up? What if it's just a story, a great book? Well, that's the thing that I've obviously pondered and wondered myself because I'm, I'm an objective person. But the more you look at what they state and then you find those ancient ruins of those cities in the locations they mention, it all becomes very real. You know, it's one thing to consider Eridu a myth. But then when you find it in the desert and you then find it's being, something, that's right. Yeah. And then it's being deliberately hidden and, and, and suppressed. You say, aha. So this really is significant. What do you think Saddam Hussein knew? Saddam Hussein is a very, he's an, he's a, he was a character that definitely knew about his ancient past in Iraq. And there, um, I think a, a later ruler, one, a, a later, um, individual who was like president of Iraq, it came later, was actually mentioned some of those ancient stargates and some of those ancient archaeological sites in Iraq out of being proud. And right. and those, and I think that Saddam did know a lot of great secrets. He played his cards wrong, though, didn't he? Well, I mean, look what happened. Not to justify his actions saying he was a great man or anything, but look at what happened after he was wiped out. Now all those sites are under civil war and we can't even get access to or them. Or destroyed in some cases. Exactly. Or destroyed the gates of Nineveh, which is the, the front gate where the Ashurbanal Paul Library, the greatest mass of cuneiform tablets in the world, that gate was destroyed by ISIS. If you could get one major question answered that you've been seeking, what would that be? What would I, that question be? I think I would really like to know where the Anunnaki came from or maybe when they came from. Uh, what about Sitchin saying they came from this extra planet in our solar system? Well, that, that, that you don't seem to be jumping for joy with. Well, the thing is, though, even if I don't necessarily agree with them coming from there, there definitely is another planet that exists out beyond it's our, out there somewhere. Oh, there's definitely a plan. And that's one of the areas that I've done quite a bit of research too, that things like the pioneer 10 probe and others have found there are secrets beyond our inner solar system that um, are very, very interesting. I mean, for Sitchin to make this, and we go back to him again, to make this incredible assertion that the Anunnaki came from this extra planet is remarkable, but he claims he interpreted that from the Sumerian tablets. It does mention it. It calls it Nibru. And the way you want to translate it is you can either consider it some kind of a planet or some kind of a temple. We, we don't fully know. A lot of those, one of the most important things to bring up is that Sumerian is a dead language. Sumerian cuneiform died out thousands of years ago. And so when Austin Henry Layard first uncovered those tablets, it took over 20 years before the first person, George Smith, in 1875, actually could translate the first one. It was, a, it was a dead language for thousands of years. This interpretation, is it just Sitchin's, or is he backed up by these? Yeah, that was what I really wanted to know. I wanted to actually understand who the best translators in the world was. Because Sitchin was, was good at understanding and interpreting things, but he wasn't an expert Assyriologist. George Smith, who, was, who I mentioned, was the first one to actually translate a cuneiform tablet. And he had studied ancient Assyrian cultures for, for years and years and years, and it, it took over 20 years, but he finally, in 1875, he translated the first tablet ever in human, well, in, in, in our human history, I should say, in the last 5,000 years. And he translated, the, the Epic of Gilgamesh was the first tablet to ever be translated. You've got a passion for this, Matt. What drives you? 
I love ancient mysteries. I have this deep connection to our past being much more complex than we've been told. And that journey of, of discovering that truth has been the core of, 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 of my drive to do this. Well, what's your next project? Actually, right now I'm, I'm co-writing a, my third book with Billy Carson where we, we're calling it the epic of humanity because using tablets and everything from Vedic text to cuneiform text to ancient Hebrew text to Aztec and Maya text, we want to understand what's the story of our story from what they say and what the evidence says, not what modern academia says. Matt, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Thank you so much, George. It's a pleasure. It's one of the greatest mysteries of humankind. What happened to the Anunnaki? Where did they go? Where were their tools? Where were the artifacts? Will we ever know? Uh. Maybe one day. I'm George Norrie. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Oh, my goodness. Mm. All right. Well, we're... We're gonna let we're gonna take a little dive into our sister uh Caroline in the collective. Yeah, I can get the music. Yes, we're we're just gonna do that. It's too too close to the end of the show to start a whole other project, but we this is a good project right here. So this week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, the Galactics the earth elements, and as Caroline is telling us, the fae elders, F-A-E. That's including fairies and feathers and and manahoonies and hobbits and all the rest of them. <laughs> Angelic legions, archangels, and other divine beings known as the collective. Greetings, friends. We are very pleased. Yeah, and then, yeah, we are very pleased, everyone. We are very pleased uh, to have this moment to speak with you again today. Today, our writer speaks again of Ascended Master Lady Portia, Keeper of the Flame of Justice and Opportunity. She is also known as the goddess of freedom and justice, as she anchors the flame of transformation and transmutation upon the earth. And then we go on to, uh, Caroline says, greetings, Lady Master. And Lady Portia, greetings, dear one. How may I, how may we assist? Mother says this all the time, the we part. Yes. Caroline, like a lot of people, I am wondering, when will the forces of light be done rounding up the criminals mm. who have ruled this planet with such blatant corruption for so long? Lady Portia, this is a highly relevant question, yet an unanswerable one. Hmm. Neither you nor I control the Earth timeline, nor does any one person or group. And so that answer is unknown to me as well. Yet the energetic tide has turned. You are aware of this. Humanity long ago 
chose to flow with the current of higher light moving through this universe. You have chosen to move away from the duality that has long defined earth life. And so, yes, you are regaining your sovereignty after millennia of earth time. Yet the hour of that completion is yet unknown. We would say that is best. You are all still gathering your inner light to new heights as you desire and create those moments that tip the scales more fully into your freedom. And Caroline says, yes, we do have freedom of expression energetically to help free our earth, and I am very thankful for that. It's just hard to see how desperate the actions of the old power structure are now. That's the truth. They seem to be worsening, even as the light is growing all the more powerful. Lady Master Portia, yes. Let that beautiful, ever-growing light quotient be your point of concentration now. We say that to all. Ram, I'm just saying, you know, quickly get... Get something, okay? Yeah, I got it. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. As I thought I saw our friend. What's his name? Matthias. Matthias, yeah. As you saw something rather miraculous occurring, would you focus on the spoiled, angry child? Throwing a tantrum off to the side somewhere? Outside your central focus? A distraction, certainly. Yet this child you are not responsible for. You can only send light, praying they will come to grow in the light and find a higher path as they are willing and able. Is that not so? Then you would turn your attention back to the beauty, back to the beauty of what was occurring center stage, one might say. Caroline, yes, that makes sense. Yes, what's difficult is that our minds have been trained for millennia to focus on survival and the trauma we have all sustained in this or other earth's lives has made survival and hyper vigilance feel very necessary. Hmm. Just gotta see here. Kind of staple together here. What are these words? Um. Our own systems are working against us in that sense. Life was very, very hard on this planet for many centuries. 
subconsciously, we remember that. We remember the plague, the famine, the fires, the failed crops, the wars. Those buried memories and some very recent are being played on the exploited now, played on and exploited now in the media and in our lives. The old crowd have seen so that to put us into fear, the old crowd, crowd have seen to that to put us into fear and keep us more easily controlled. Lady Master Portia. Yet the sentient light particles flowing in now in powerful waves with each solar flare speak to the higher mind, the high heart in all. They draw the point of focus from seeming unsolvable disaster, loss, or other disturbance to a place of peacefulness. Yes, even though the logical mind and the subconscious taught to fight outer circumstance at every turn cannot always see or feel the sense in remaining calm, your higher mind understands that to approach any issue from a place of peace empowers you to think more clearly on how to deal with that issue. In that moment of deep quiet and releasing all reaction, you make your mind and its responses and narrow expectations your friend rather than something that stands in the way as you desire to move higher in your estimation of earth, of earth life at present. Caroline, where does transformation and transmutation come into this lady master? Lady Master Portia, it is present at every turn. You see transformation when you decide to bless, love, and heal those aspects of the subconscious that hold back the higher mind and the high heart from doing what they desire to do, which is to shine in peaceful and light-inducing ways. Those moments that teach the smaller self to stand taller at times and to relax and rest more at other times. There is no need to work out, quote, what is going to happen and to solve all issues in the moment. That is not the life any of you choose. It's a relief just to hear it in my ears, everybody. Many issues will solve themselves the more you stay in the moment. The more you release the impulse to panic or to seek out information about issues you have no 
outer control over. Yet you have very great energetic influence within those issues, whatever they may be. And that is the moment, transmutation. That is that moment, transmutation. Caroline just says simply, how so? Lady Master Portia, in that moment, you allow the flame of justice to burn through the depth of density of any troubling issue, war, hunger, inequalities, injustices, illness. As you image the issue held within the power of the transmuting flame, you hand it over to those universal properties which are beyond outer circumstance. They do not answer to it and do not bend to it. They stand tall as a light warrior, protecting the principles of justice and continuous inner awareness of the power of transmutation over the apparent power of outer actions. And then we have our sister Caroline. Yet outer action may be necessary at times to protect someone or to feed or encourage them. Lady Master Portia, of course. Yet those actions they are then carried out from a place of calm resolve, not from reaction or anger or fear. Those energies then anchor energetically in the heart of all you would pray into peaceful well-being. They then travel thousands of miles. Those heartfelt images, words, and intentions. They flow around the world to people you will never meet in that physical yet who would recognize your high heart connection with them were you to meet in the etheric. And Caroline says, it sounds like a miracle. Lady Master Portia, it is. Yet it is not, dear one. It is simply how, capital H, capital O, capital W, how your universe functions. Release the immediate reaction of fear or anger at viewing an injustice or any other dense event and breathe your way into a place of calm again. Then fill that experience with higher light and place it in the transmuting violet flame. And call on me or any other guide you trust for assistance. Yes, I carry the flame of justice, yet I do not do so from the energy of retribution, nor must you do so. That is the old way. You are here to birth the new earth forms, not to rescue, not to pull another off their path, however difficult that may appear. Can you rescue all 
No. And so, for the love of your heart, and in all the hearts of all the light bringers upon the planet now, there must be a higher way. Realize this, and your path is smoothed all around, behind, and before you. Caroline says, thank you, Lady Master, putting all in that violet flame and resolving to go into quiet and call in higher wisdom before I act or form judgment. Lady Master Portia, this is the way now. Remember that from the vantage point of your higher self. All is well. Yes, even now. On a very deep level, you know this. Go deeply into that level each day and know that brilliant light being who is the higher self of all, calling out to all now. Namaste, dear ones. We are with you always. Carolina Oceana Ryan, and then that absolutely fabulous collective all right so where are we well his holiness the Dalai Lama had something to say today so let's share that all right it's just Fridays but so We have to remember that each and every one of us is part of humanity. We must be determined to achieve positive change, yet also to take a long view of what needs to be done. What is important is not to become demoralized. Optimism leads to success. Pessimism leads to defeat. This is true. All right, now we have our sister, Lady Master Tanya Gabrielle. This is something... Tanya usually comes comes to us from our earlier part of the week, so this is kind of new. So this is for yesterday. It's... Uh, Why Friday the 13th is a lucky day. Happy Friday the 13th. Even though this special day has been equated with fear in the past, the truth is that 13 represents the divine power of birth. Create and transform. 13 is the number of the divine feminine. 13 symbolizes planting the new seed, the new seed of creativity and joy, which is the number one and the number three. Creativity is one and joy is three. The divine feminine evolves through the spiral. You see the spiral everywhere in nature. Galaxies are spirals. 
blending Friday with the number 13 is a strong reminder to go with the flow and surrender to spirit. Friday is aligned to Venus, which is love, romance, sensuality, abundance. Abundance. (laughs) Pleasure, beauty, a joyful day. And end of the work week. 13 is also aligned to Venus, planet of the divine feminine. Venus has 13 cycles. 13 governs the cycles of the moon, with 13 lunations in a year. 13 weeks make up each of our four seasons. Brother Dougie, can you capture our sister Rainbird uh, there? Maybe, Lord Rama, you can write a little note there. Thirteen reduces. Well, thirteen weeks makes up each of our four seasons. Thirteen reduces to the root number four. Representing the four directions and planet Earth. Expect profound shifts and surprises on a 13 universal day. Acknowledge what appears. Forgive yourself and everyone. And let bygones be bygones. 13 is an invitation to fully immerse in the unknown. Allow it all to unfold. Create and play today. Joyful blessings. Tanya Gabrielle. Okay. We did that. You got to hurry up and... Go call, sir. Need our lovely rainbird. I know mm. it's early. Mm. I guess while we're sitting here, <sighs> hmm, we're going to capture something here. A little bit of. Maybe our brother Tom Hartman's got something to say. Um, let's see. That's uh, let's try this one. Elon Papp's book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. This is from the preface. It's titled The Red House. The Red House was a typical early Tel Avivian building, the pride of the Jewish builders and craftsmen who toiled over in the 1920s. It had been designed to, head the head to, to house the head office of the local workers' council. It remained such until toward the end of 1947. It became the headquarters of the Haganah in Zionist underground in Palestine, located near the sea on Yacht. 
Cotton Street in the northern part of Tel Aviv, the building formed another fine addition to the first Hebrew city on the Mediterranean, the White City, as its literati and pundits affectionately called it. For in those days, unlike today, the immaculate whiteness of his houses still bathed the town as a whole in the opulent brightness so typical of Mediterranean port cities of that era and that region. It was a sight for sore eyes, elegantly fusing Bauhaus motifs with motifs with native Palestinian architecture in an admixture that was called Levantine in the least derogatory sense of the term. Such too was the Red House. Its simple rectangular features graced with frontal arches that framed the entrance and supported the balconies of its two upper stories. It was either its association with the workers' movement that had inspired the adjective red or its pinkish tinge that it acquired during sunset that had given the house its name. The former was more fitting as the building continued to be associated with the Zionist version of socialism when, in the 1970s, it became the main office for Israel's kibbutzim movement. Houses like this, important historical remnants of the mandatory period, prompted UNESCO in 2003 to designate Tel Aviv as a World Heritage Site. Today, the house is no longer there, a victim of development, which has raised this architectural relic to the ground to make room for a car park next to the new Sheraton Hotel. Thus, in this street, too, no traces left of the white city, which ha it has slowly transmortified into the sprawling, polluted, extravagant metropolis that is the modern Tel Aviv. In this building on a cold Wednesday afternoon, 10 March 1948, a group of 11 men, veteran Zionist leaders together with young military Jewish officers, put the final touches on a plan for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. That same evening, military orders were dispatched to the units on the ground to prepare for the systematic expulsion of Palestinians from vast areas of the country. The orders came from a detailed description of the methods to be employed to forcibly evict the people. Large-scale intimidation, lanes siege to and bombarding villages and population centers, setting fire to homes, properties, goods, expulsion, demolition, and finally planting mines among the rubble to prevent any of the expelled inhabitants from returning. Each unit was issued with its own list of villages and neighborhoods as the targets of the master plan, codenamed Plan D, Dalit in Hebrew. This is the fourth and final version of less substantial plans that outlined the fate the Zionists had in store for Palestine and consequently for its native population. The previous three schemes had articulated only obscurely how the Zionist leadership contemplated dealing with the presence of so many Palestinians living in the land that the Jewish national movement coveted as its own. This fourth and last blueprint spelled it out clearly and unambiguously. Quote, the Palestinians have to go, end quote. In the words of one of the first historians to note the significance of that plan, Simcha Flappen, the military campaign against the Arabs, including the conquest and destruction of the rural areas, was set forth in the Haganah's plan to let. The aim for the plan was, in fact, the destruction of both the rural and urban areas of Palestine. Ah. As the first chapters of this book will attempt to show, this plan was both the inevitable product of the Zionist ideological impulse to have an exclusively Jewish presence in Palestine and a response to developments on the ground once the British cabinet had decided to end the mandate. Clashes with local Palestinian militias provided the perfect context and pretext for implementing the ideological vision of an ethnically cleansed Palestine. The Zionist policy was first based on retaliation against Palestinian attacks in February of 1947, and it transformed into an initiative to ethnically cleanse the country as a whole in March of 1948. Once the decision was taken, it took six months to complete the mission. When it was over, more than half of Palestine's native population, close to 800,000 people, had been uprooted. 
531 villages had been destroyed, and 11 urban neighborhoods had been emptied of their inhabitants. The plan decided upon on 10 March 1948, and above all its systematic implementation in the following months, was a clear-cut case of ethnic cleansing operation regarded under international law today as a crime against humanity. After the Holocaust, it has become impossible to conceal large-scale crimes against humanity. Our modern communication-driven world, especially since the upsurge of electronic media, no longer allows human-made catastrophes to remain hidden from the public eye or to be denied. Right. And yet one such crime has been, almost, has been erased almost totally from the global public memory, the disposition of the Palestinians in 1948 by Israel. This, the most formative element in the modern history of the land of Palestine, has ever since been systematically denied, and is still today not recognized as an historical fact, let alone acknowledged as a crime that needs to be confronted politically as well as morally. Ethnic cleansing is a crime against humanity, and the people who perpetrate it today are considered criminals to be brought before special tribunals. It may be difficult to decide one ought to refer to or deal with in the legal sphere those who initiated and perpetrated ethnic cleansing in Palestine in 1948, but it's impossible to reconstruct their crimes. Anyhow, it continues the ethnic cleansing in Palestine. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Hidden History of American Healthcare. Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich by, by me. <laughs> I wrote this book. Uh, this is from the introduction, the title, How a Single-Payer Healthcare Systems Helps Stop COVID-19. Healthcare systems can be national security systems. Just ask anyone from Taiwan. From January 20th, 2020, the United States, or on January 20, 2020, the United States recorded its first known case of COVID-19 infection. The following day, Taiwan got their first one, too. By the end of April, over a million Americans were infected with the virus. But Taiwan had recorded only 388 infections, and their last case of local transmission was on April 12th. A few had arrived on aircraft from other countries. All were contained by quarantine. As of this writing, in September 2020, there hadn't been a single new case or a single death in Taiwan since April. The economy never shut down and, as of this writing, was projected to have grown nearly 2% in 2020. Business, restaurants, theaters, and sports events were all open. Life was back to normal, albeit a mask-wearing normal. And it was made possible by their national single-payer health care system and their citizens' willingness to do their bit for the collective good. Back in the 1980s, Taiwan was on the edge of moving toward a democracy after a military coup in the 1960s. And about 40% of Taiwanese families did not have health insurance. If somebody in a family got sick, the cost of care often wiped out that family. And demands for reform were loud across the nation. Yua Reinhardt was a German-born healthcare economist married to a Taiwanese woman. And he attended a conference on healthcare in Taipei in 1989. His presentation impressed representatives of the government in attendance. And while he was still in town for the conference, they asked him for his best suggestion for a national health care system. He and his wife went back to their hotel and discussed the issue in depth, finally deciding that a single-payer national system would be the most cost-effective, efficient, and comprehensive program possible. He shared his thoughts with the government representatives, and the next day he left Taiwan to go back to Princeton, where he was an economic professor. Six months later, though, a representative of Taiwan's government called him to say that they were going to take up his suggestion and asked him to help craft their health care program. He enthusiastically agreed, and by 1995, Taiwan had instituted one of the world's best single-payer healthcare systems. Today, 
Everybody in Taiwan is covered for, fully covered for doctor and hospital services. Everybody has a driver's license like healthcare card, which accesses their entire medical history. They can book a doctor's appointment on any computer terminal in the country. And the entire cost of the system is a bit more than 6% of Taiwan's GDP. For comparison, in the United States, healthcare consumes 24% of our GDP. Because there is no insurance company intermediary sucking profits off the system in Taiwan. When COVID-19 hit, Taiwan chose not to use the blunt force technique of shutting down their economy and locking people in. Instead, instead they took on the coronavirus with an aggressive nationwide test and contact trace program tied into the National Health Service database. Every infected person was identified and put into a comfortable quarantine, and every person he or she had come into contact with, even very marginal contacts, were also tested and their contacts traced. By April, just a bit more than two months after the first case surfaced, the country had the coronavirus isolated and completely under control. By quarantining inbound visitors to the nation island of 23 million, they were able, as of this writing, to keep it that way. Maintaining public health is one of the most important functions of any nation's healthcare system. Because America's is so fragmented, it's inconceivable that our nation could respond to an epidemic, a pandemic, or another public health disaster with the speed and elegance of Taiwan or any of the world's other nations with single-payer Medicare for all types of systems. It's like Stockholm Syndrome, a friend who's a psychotherapist said, describing the way that Americans have clung for more than five generations to a for-profit health insurance system, while the rest of the world figured out how to provide health care to all their citizens at a much lower price. People know it and have become familiar with it, she added. They just can't imagine anything else. It's probably the largest con job ever perpetrated on the American people, one that has cost trillions of dollars and millions of lives. It's been going on since the 1940s. If it were a scientific experiment, it would have been shut down by the ethics review panels generations ago. This experiment in providing health care via a for-profit insurance system has led to the deaths of more Americans than we lost in World War II. Every year, over a half million Americans go bankrupt, often losing everything they've worked their entire lives for because somebody in their family got sick. That's a half million families a year, every year, for the past few decades. And the coronavirus, of course, has only made things worse. Perhaps most galling, this massive ripoff is costing our entire nation and each of us individually a fortune. Insurance premiums right now make up 22% of all taxable payroll, well above what the cost of Medicare for all would be at around 14% when first put into place, dropping down to around 10% within a few years as previously uninsured people get their health needs up to date. As the health insurance drug and hospital parasites push their suckers deeper and deeper into our body politic, spending on health care by Americans went up 20%, 25% between 2000 and 2014. The book, The Hidden, the hidden History of, what was it? America's healthcare system. <laughs> That's the end. <coughs> These are things that we are going to be sitting in the driver's seat with Nassara Law in place. And that'll be up to us to do something that's gonna be astounding, yet love is work made manifest, right, Rama? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Anything else you want to say, Commander? 
Oh, Blaze of Violet Fire. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to take this talking stick and blaze this talking stick with Violet Fire, along with the angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, and menahunis and hobbits. And he's going to come right over the wires here to you, sister, 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 Rainbird. Here it comes. <laughs> oh, no, another hot stick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it started out as a torch this afternoon and ended up <laughs> as a violet fire. So I think that that sort of sums up the day. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good day, and we got a big day tomorrow as well as we celebrate a combination of Easter and Christmas with Buddha's birthday. <laughs> and, yeah, and and we get to do all that. What a, what a beautiful day. Lots of really good stuff. And very, very juicy and poignant and to point and let's, let's do it. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, thank you. And I pass this talking stick over to you, Roman. What you got? This is nice and loud, honey. Alan Watts, trusting the pattern of the universe. Trusting the pattern of the universe. All right. Good idea. say spontaneity. It almost means automatic, because automatic is what is self-moving. Only we associate the word automatic with machinery. But Ziran, what is of so of itself is associated in the Chinese mind not with machinery but with biology. Your hair grows by itself. You don't have to think how to grow it. Your heart beats by itself. You don't have to make up your mind how to beat it. That's what they mean by nature. The poem says, sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and grass grows of itself. So their principle of nature is called the Tao. T-A-O, pronounced Dao in the Mandarin dialect, Tao in the Shanghai dialect, To in the Cantonese dialect. Take your choice. Dao means the course of nature. And Lao Tzu, who was a philosopher who lived a little later than 400 B.C., wrote a book about the Tao. 
And he said, the Tao which can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. You can't describe it. He said the principle of the Tao is spontaneity. He said the great Tao flows everywhere, both to the left and to the right. It loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. It accomplishes merits and lays no claim to them. So there is a very great difference between the Chinese idea of Tao as the informing principle of nature and the Judeo-Christian idea of God as nature's Lord and Master. Because the Tao does not act as a boss. In the Chinese philosophy of nature, nature has no boss. There is no principle that forces things to behave the way they do. It is a completely democratic theory of nature. Correspondingly, you see, most Westerners, whether they be Christians or non-Christians, don't trust nature. Of all things, nature is the thing least to be trusted. You must manage it. You must watch out for it. It will always go wrong if you don't watch out. You know, the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. <laughs> so we're always feeling that you, you can't trust it. See, we're absolutely instilled with the idea of original sin. You can't trust nature because it comes out with weeds and insects. And above all, you can't trust human nature because if you don't hold a club over yourself, you'll go out and rape your grandmother. Now the Chinese would say, if you can't trust yourself, you can't trust anything. Because if you can't trust yourself, can you trust your mistrust of yourself? Is that well-founded? See? You're, if you can't trust yourself, you are totally mixed up. <laughs> you have the leg to stand on, you have the point of departure for anything. And in this respect, the Taoist philosophy and the Confucian philosophy are in agreement. In Confucius philosophy, the fundamental virtue of a human being is called Yang, spelled J-E-N for reasons best known to Chinese scholars. <laughs> uh, I don't know what they are, but it's pronounced Yang. And it's a character, Chinese character, that Confucius placed as the highest of all virtues, higher than righteousness, higher than benevolence, and it means approximately human-heartedness. Now, Confucius once said that goody-goodies are the thieves of virtue. Virtue in Chinese is de. We Romanize it as P-E-H, de. And it means virtue not in the sense of moral propriety, but virtue in the sense of magic, as when we speak of the healing virtues of a certain plant. A man of true virtue is therefore a human-hearted man.
And the meaning of this is that one should, above all, trust human nature in the full recognition that it's both good and bad, that it's both loving and selfish. Now, let me give an illustration of the wisdom of this. When people fight wars, uh, I trust them if the reason for which they fight a war is to expropriate somebody else's possessions and women. Because they will fight a merciful war. They will not destroy the possessions and the women that they want to capture. They want to enjoy them. And that's a war based on simple, ordinary, everyday human greed. Mm-hmm. The most awful wars that are waged are the wars waged for moral principles. Mm. You are a lousy communist. You have a philosophy that is destructive to religion and to everything that we love and value and reverence. And therefore, we will exterminate you to the last man unless you surrender unconditionally. Mm-hmm. Such wars are ruthless beyond belief. We can blow up whole cities, wipe people out because we are not greedy. We are righteous. Mm. That is why the goody-goodies are the thieves of virtue. Mm. If you are going to do something evil, do it for a plain, honest, selfish motive. Mm. Don't do it in the name of God. Please. (laughs) Because if you do, it turns you into a monster who is no longer human. A sadist, a pure destroyer. So an inflexibly righteous person is not human. And that is why in Chinese ideas of justice, a good judge is not somebody who abides by the book. Their idea of justice is, for God's sake, keep the case out of court. Mm, My goodness. Hmm. Appropriate lesson for the moment. Thank you, Rama. Okay, here we go. scene in that song is this wild white horse uh, unicorn excuse me you're right Rama comes up to the young lady and and touches her touches her hand <laughs> it's really very amazing so his holiness has something to share just at the last moment We have to remember that each and every one of us is part of humanity. We must be determined to achieve, to achieve positive change, but also to take a long view of what needs to be done. What is important is not to become Demoralized. Optimism leads to success. 
pessimism leads to defeat. And so it is. So join us on Sunday evening and Monday evening with Cheryl for about three hours of meditation and affirmation and transformational sharing and music. It's a collage of of that yellow brick road. Follow it. (laughs) At 425-436-6260. PIN code 946741 pound. And that will be at around 10 minutes of 7 Mountain Time, 10 minutes of 9 Eastern Time. And we'll get together then on Sunday evening and Monday evening. So, inshallah for now. Sat Nam. Sat Nam Deep. Ah, homie Takuyas and 13 thank yous. Honey in the heart. No evil. Live long and prosperous. Prosper and happy Buddha birthday. Manana, three o'clock. Wherever time zone you are, let's just touch base with Maitreya. Our tray of gold to be with us. Aloha, everyone. <laughs>